show hasn't started yet. David Sirota is going to be on in about an hour. Show has still not started yet. Welcome to the mop up for May 23rd, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 64 degrees and sunny and I overslept. <laughs> I overslept today. Well, after a two year covid hiatus, the Israeli pride parade took place walking down Fifth Avenue on Sunday, and the theme was unity. Former Mayor Rudy Giuliani clutched an Israeli flag and kept the unity thing going by telling New Yorkers that they are brainwashed assholes who are as demented as Joe Biden. I don't know if you can hear this. We pumped up the EQ on this. This is Rudy Giuliani's Rudy Giuliani spreading the love uh, on Sunday. <laughs> You are a brainwashed asshole and you're probably as demented as Biden. And then he waves the Israeli flag and keeps marching. On Friday, Rudy testified before the House Select Committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Instead of pleading the fifth, Rudy pleaded for a fifth of vodka. He's an alcoholic. Rudy's testimony reportedly lasted nine hours, 30 minutes, 30 minutes if you don't count his eight and a half hour uninterrupted nonstop bratwurst fart that left little room for a second round of questioning he's gaseous rudy's imbecile for a son andrew is running for the republican nomination for governor of new york next month capitalizing on his dad's reputation as america's mayor andrew giuliani says if elected he would like to be known as America's governor of New York. He's just as stupid as his father. The 50 richest people in the world have lost a combined half a trillion dollars this year. Not in the stock market, bribing Jelaine Maxwell not to reveal who's in Jeffrey Epstein's little black book. The stock market sell off is hitting the richest one percent, especially hard. Elon Musk lost nearly 70 billion dollars this year. So instead of Twitter, he's now buying MySpace. Amazon's Jeff Bezos lost 61 billion dollars. So he's fired his penis pump caddy. And from now on, before making love to a prostitute who pretends she loves him and wants to marry him, Bezos is saving money by using a trained chimpanzee to keep pressing the bulb on his penis pump that's attached to his left thigh as it sucks blood into Jeff Bezos's tiny flaccid penis, thereby creating a temporary but non-semen producing erection for Jeff Bezos. Seriously, I look at Jeff Bezos and all I see is Peroni's disease in which his micro penis curves up into his urethra. That's why he needs, you know, $200 billion. 
Speaking of things that are Microsoft, Bill Gates lost $22 billion this year, but that's nothing compared to the $100 billion Gates lost last year after his wife discovered just how many times Bill spent with the aforementioned Jeffrey Epstein. The grounds for divorce, Melinda Gates says she sued Bill for divorce when she found out how much time her ex-husband had been spending with Jeffrey Epstein. You know who made money this year? Warren Buffett, folksy Warren Buffett. We all love Warren Buffett. Remember he told us to vote for Obama? Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway. He's made $1.2 billion this year. Everybody else is losing money, not the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett. That's because Warren Buffett is investing in fossil fuels. Our beloved Warren Buffett, his Berkshire Hathaway, that's Warren's company, it owns huge stakes in petroleum companies, including $26 billion worth of Chevron. Chevron is Warren Buffett's fourth biggest holding, Chevron. If you remember, the environmental lawyer Stephen Donziger sued Chevron and won a multi-billion dollar judgment against Chevron for destroying the Lago Agria region of Ecuador, which ended up killing and destroying the lives of the indigenous people and farmers down there. But lawyers for Chevron do not recognize the courts of Ecuador. They do not recognize the settlement. Lawyers for Chevron responded to the ruling by saying, and I quote, any jurisdiction that observes the rule of law should find the fraudulent Ecuadorian judgment to be illegitimate and unenforceable. Unenforceable? Why? Because we're Chevron. We do what we want illegitimate and unenforceable. Chevron doesn't recognize the Ecuadorian courts. That's who Warren Buffett is is uh, betting on. That's who he puts all his money on. Chevron, $25 billion worth of Chevron stock. Chevron launched a smear campaign against Donzinger that placed him under house arrest for nearly 1,000 days. That's Warren Buffett's, the beloved Warren Buffett's Chevron. By the way, our friends over at Consortium News, they have asked the White House Correspondents Association to speak out against the impending extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. But the White House Correspondents Association has refused to speak out in favor of Julian Assange. Get my newsletter. It comes out every Friday. It's a recap of the week's shows, complete with timestamps, so you can click on which segment you want to watch when you want to watch it. Also, we have links to some of the reading material we talk about on the show. Subscribe to my newsletter. It also includes an invitation to Friday night's office hours every Friday at 8 p.m. where I meet the listeners, the listeners meet me, and the listeners meet other listeners. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Every page of the website, around near the bottom, there's a sign-up form for the newsletter. Or go to the pull-down menu labeled Talk to Me. You'll see newsletter. Click on it and sign up. Australia has a new prime minister, and he's from the Labor Party. Imagine that, a party that speaks for labor. 
Anthony Albanese defeated the Conservative Party's Prime Minister Scott Morrison over the weekend. This marks the first time in almost a decade that Labour is in control, although not by much. Labour won 72 out of 151 parliamentary seats, meaning we'll have to form a coalition with smaller parties like the Green Party, which held one seat prior to this election. They seem to have picked up three more. Albanese won on a promise to cut carbon emissions to zero by 2050 as Australia continues to take the brunt of climate change with fires, droughts and flooding. President Biden is in Japan and today he was asked if America would get involved militarily if China invaded, if China invaded Taiwan. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. That's the commitment we made. Today, Biden said, yes, America would get involved militarily if China invaded Taiwan. But Defense Secretary and former Raytheon executive General Lloyd Austin quickly walked back the president's statement, as they always do when the president makes a statement. Here's the defense secretary. Policy has not changed. Uh, our one, uh, one China policy has not changed. Uh, he uh, reiterated he, uh, our one China policy has not changed. Yes, it has. The president just changed it. I mean, Grace Jackson isn't here, so I'll try to explain. President Biden has said America would get involved militarily now if China attacked Taiwan. Biden's comments today suggest a shift away from America's previous policy of what is called strategic ambiguity. Strategic ambiguity is America refusing to say specifically how it would act if China invaded Taiwan. Strategic ambiguity. Grace Jackson talked about this two weeks ago. Strategic ambiguity is like when your kids say they want a puppy and you you deploy strategic ambiguity by saying, OK, you want a puppy? Let's investigate that. And then you never get a puppy. That's what my parents did to me. I never had a puppy or a kitten. So when I had kids, we ended up with so many puppies and kittens. My house ended up smelling like Chris Christie's car seat. For another conversation. Well, anyway, President Biden made the comments about acting militarily should China invade Taiwan. He made the comments while making his first official trip to Asia while standing next to the Japanese prime minister who thought about throwing up in his lap. Uh, now, America's one China policy, that's what Austin said. Uh, Defense Secretary Austin from Raytheon said, no, 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 the president reaffirmed our one China policy today. No, he did not. He changed our one China policy today. Our one China policy says America recognizes mainland China as the representative government for all of China, including Taiwan. However, America doesn't recognize China's right to bring Taiwan into its jurisdiction through force. That's our one China policy. As Grace Jackson said on previous episodes of the show, America employs what is called a strategic ambiguity, or at least it used to 
employ strategic ambiguity as to what it would do if China invaded Taiwan. But this is the second time this year that Joe Biden has said, if China invades Taiwan, we would uh, engage militarily. That's unambiguous. We're no longer strategically ambiguous. This is unambiguous. Uh, Unlike... uh, (laughs) Biden's uh, capacity to uh, be our commander in chief. That remains debatable. Earlier this year, as I said, Biden did what he did today and broke with the one China policy saying America would defend Taiwan militarily. But his spokespeople immediately walked it back. President says one thing and then the West exec executives who uh, control our foreign policy, tell us what he's really going to do. Well, today's China, today, China's foreign ministry angrily condemned Biden's statement. And for more on America's strategic ambiguity, check out our YouTube channel where our China expert, Grace Jackson, talks extensively on this subject. The president's moratorium on paying back student loan debt is set to expire in August, right before the midterms heat up. Biden can relieve all $1.7 trillion of student loan debt with the stroke of a pen right now. The White House is reportedly floating the idea of relieving far less than the $50,000 per borrower that leading Democrats on the progressive side are asking for. Joe Biden was elected on the promise of relieving student debt, which, like I said, he could do with a stroke of the pen instead of what he's offering now, a stroke of the brain. A real clear politics average of polls shows Biden underwater by 13 points, with 54 percent of Americans disapproving of the job Joe Biden is doing right now. To the 46 percent of Americans who approve of the job Biden is doing, I want you to know that I don't approve of the job you're doing. I disapprove of the job you're doing. Whatever it is you do for a living, if you approve of Joe Biden, Your job, I don't approve of your job because it can't possibly be good for anyone other than yourself. Joe Biden cannot get it done. I'm a Democrat. I would vote for him again. Wrong guy. Wrong guy. He never got it done. He couldn't get it done when he was vice president. There's a new piece in the Washington Post about how Obama gave Biden the gun control portfolio after Newtown. And Biden worked with with all people, Manchin, to craft a a gun control bill. Manchin put his name on it and Biden couldn't seal the deal. He never picked up the phone as vice president to urge anyone to vote for this gun control legislation. Three thousand five hundred mass shootings later. Biden is still dropping the ball on gun control. He can't do it. Biden is a funeral director. He spoke at the memorial service last week in Buffalo. You know, we all teared up. That's what he's that's what he's great at, helping us accept death, helping us accept what we can't control and convincing us that we can't control anything. On the flight home from the memorial service in Buffalo, he was asked about gun control. And our funeral director in chief said, well, we must do something. But he added, I just don't know. 
I just don't know. Well, then don't be president. Don't run for office if you just don't know. He said, quote, the answer is going to be very difficult. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, and then he caught himself and said, but I'm not going to give up trying. Yes, you are. You gave up trying in the Obama administration. You're nothing more than a funeral director. If it's difficult for you to get gun control legislation passed, you shouldn't have run for president. You gave up trying before you even became president. You gave up trying when you were the vice president and Obama put you in charge of gun control. In the Washington Post, they said when he was vice president, Biden held 200 meetings on gun control. Zero results. He loves the meetings because it gives his life purpose. You know, he loves meetings so long as nothing ever gets done. He should be a producer. He should get work in Hollywood because it's all about the meetings and getting nothing done. A former Democratic Senate aide told The Washington Post that Biden's effort to get gun control law passed was, quote, a joke. He goes on to say, quote, Biden couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag. Biden did not move one single person. Manchin got to me and Manchin is the one who really put things together, unquote. That's who Joe Biden is. He's accomplished nothing as a senator, a vice president, and pretty much nothing as our president. As vice president with the gun control portfolio handed to him by Obama, he reportedly, according to The Washington Post, never once got on the phone with Manchin, whose name was on the bill, to help move that bill along. He is a zero. He's unqualified for the job. He wasn't a master of the Senate. He doesn't know how a bill becomes law. Consequently, 60% of Americans disapprove of the job Joe Biden is doing on the economy. Nearly 70% of Americans believe this country is on the wrong track. But I'm the bad guy. I'm the bad guy for pointing all this stuff out. I'm going to be held responsible for uh, the Democrats losing the Senate and the House be because I was so divisive, demanding that the Democrats keep their promises. It's my fault. It's the left's fault because we're asking the Democrats to behave like Democrats. Well, how does this translate come November? Nationally, Americans right now prefer Republicans by 2% over Democrats. This party has been taken over by fascists and Americans prefer fascists over Democrats by 2% right now. However, the least favorite leader in Washington, D.C. is Republican minority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell. He is the least favorite leader in Washington, followed by Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Among Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, Vice President Harris, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, and Donald Trump, the most popular leader is Donald Trump right now. Donald Trump right now is the most popular leader in Washington. He's followed by Joe Biden. Joe Biden is the second most popular leader in, uh, in Washington. So if Bi it's up to Biden, if, if, if the Democrats, if we, I'm a Democrat, if we lose the Senate and the House, it's Joe Biden's fault. And ultimately, it's Obama's fault for putting the thumb on the scale in 2020 and handpicking Joe Biden to get the nomination. 
Last Tuesday's Republican primary for Pennsylvania governor is too close to call Dr. Oz, who was endorsed by Donald Trump and hedge fund executive David McCormick are neck and neck heading for a recount where we won't know until June whether Dr. Oz won or if it was the most rigged election in U.S. history. On Tuesday, there's a runoff election in Texas's 28th congressional district between the only pro-life Democrat left in the House, Congressman Henry Crayar, and his 28-year-old challenger, immigration lawyer and union organizer Jessica Cisneros. Congressman Cuellar refuses to support legislation that would codify a woman's right to an abortion which has been trampled upon in Texas, where he comes from. Texas is forcing women to carry a fetus to term, which hits poor women especially hard. One out of five voters in Henry Cuellar's district live below the poverty line and can't afford a child. Congressman Cuellar opposes the PRO Act, which would make it easier for unions to organize, and he is also against expanding overtime pay. Cuellar is running on strengthening the border, while Cisneros is running on a promise to dismantle ICE. United for Democracy, a front group for APAC, APAC, the ultra-right-wing Republican lobbying group called APAC or the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, they have poured at least $1.2 million into attack ads, calling Jessica Cisneros a bad Democrat, but never mentioning where she stands on the treatment of Palestinians because voters in her district, where one out of five live below the poverty line, couldn't care less about Israel. And if pressed on the subject, would probably relate more to the Palestinians suffering in Gaza. By the way, in 2020, Howard Kaur, the CEO of APEC, that would be Howard Kaur, K-O-H-R, the CEO of APEC, earned more than $1 million a year. $1 million a year. APEC is a tax-exempt 501c3 and along with crypto billionaires, APAC is one of the largest influence peddlers this year, throwing money at the Democratic Party to destroy progressive candidates heading into the midterms. APAC, as I talked about on last week's show, is a Republican lobbying group, but they are interfering with Democratic, Democratic Party politics. Go to APAC.org right now, hit the contact button, and tell APAC to stop meddling with the Democratic Party. That would be APAC.org, hit the contact button, and politely tell APAC to stop tampering with the Democratic Party. Back in July of 2021, President Joe Biden nominated outgoing Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti to be his ambassador to India. Garcetti's nomination has hit several roadblocks. The latest is an accusation that Garcetti looked the other way while one of his top aides sexually harassed members of the mayor's security entourage and also made racist jokes. But Eric Garcetti wants to be ambassador to India. So Suki and Gil Garcetti, the mayor's parents, on Thursday of last week, did what all good parents do. 
they registered as Washington lobbyists to push their son past the goalpost. What is Eric Garcetti? What is he, eight? The kid can't get approved by the Senate, so they want a parent-teacher conference with Mitch McConnell? This is a grown man, mayor of Los Angeles. He calls his parents. I want to be ambassador to India. Pick up a phone. Call, call them, mommy and daddy. This is a Democrat. This is the guy who represents the working people, a grown man whose parents register as lobbyists so he can get named ambassador to India. Who ever heard of such a thing? Mom, dad, they won't let me be ambassador. Pull some strings, do something. Look, I'm a Democrat. Eric Garcetti, get out of my party. Get out of my party. You are the enemy. You are the enemy. Eric Garcetti graduated from Columbia. During middle and high school, he attended Los Angeles's exclusive Harvard Westlake. I uh, raised my kids in Los Angeles. I know all about the, the, the assholes who go to Harvard Westlake, which costs $45,000 a year per idiot kid. $45,000 a year per moron. Imagine what $45,000 a year could do for a single school in the Los Angeles district. But Eric Garcetti's parents, they believed investing $45,000 in their prince, Eric, and investing that $45,000 in Prince Eric alone was more important than investing $45,000 in their community. This is the Democrat who claims, you know, I want to level the playing field so there's equity. You're full of shit. Get out of my party. Get out of my party. Harvard Westlake, that's where Eric Garcetti went to before he went to Columbia. This is that $45,000 a year high school. It serves as, a, as California's number one feeder school to Brown, Columbia, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and every other smug hotbed of neoliberal complacency. Listen to me, if a politician graduated from any of those schools, do not give them your vote. They work for themselves, not you. These schools produce failures who circle the wagons to protect other well-educated failures. They are failures. They're unimaginative. The mayor of Los Angeles's parents have registered as lobbyists to get their son an ambassadorship in India. How much is that going to cost them? This is like Stephen Miller. Also, I think he I don't think he went to Harvard Westlake, but he grew up in the same uh, oeuvre. Uh, he's still on his parents phone plan. This is the lowest of the low from the richest of the rich. Meanwhile, one third of Los Angeles, who can't afford to have parents lobbying Washington so they can get named ambassador to India, get out of the Democratic Party. If you if your parents have enough money to lobby Mitch McConnell to get you a job as ambassador to India and, and they're spending the money on that instead of low income housing, get out of my party. Eric Garcetti, you piece of shit, you privileged, pampered, self-serving piece of shit. One third of your city spends pretty much all its money on rent, Eric Garcetti. 
As a result, close to 70,000 people are homeless in Los Angeles County, with the percentage increasing anywhere between 10 to 15 percent each year since Garcetti took office. That's lowballing the number of homeless. Somehow the Garcettis have money to burn on lobbying Washington for their son's ambassadorship. Somehow the Garcettis have $45,000 a year to spend on Harvard Westlake, and they just can't seem to solve the homeless problem. You know what causes the homeless problem? Greedy neoliberal hacks like the Garcettis who lobby City Hall against building low-income housing because then their real estate investments would go down. That's what causes homelessness. Eric Garcetti and his parents are the cause of homelessness. Garcetti's parents are lobbying for his ambassadorship to India, which, by the way, is one of the poorest countries in the world. So after eight years as mayor of Los Angeles, Garcetti should feel right at home, surrounded by all that desperation, if he ever if his parents come through with this job as well, oh, you know, maybe they'll get him another job. You're not a self-made man, Eric Garcetti. You're not a man. By my definition of an adult, you're not an adult and you're not a man. If your parents are lobbying for you, you're not anything close to a man. But then again, you graduated from Columbia and Harvard Westlake. What would you know about anything resembling adulthood or manhood. These are bad people. Eric Garcetti is a bad person. And they're not ineffectual. They are purposely ineffectual. They don't care about anyone other than themselves. I'm in a good mood. This feels so good. I spent the weekend just relaxing, not yelling like this. This is more fun than you know, walking in the woods. This is this is so much healthier for me. Just hating on people and and being right. That's the great thing. Eric Garcetti is a piece of shit. Jessica Schumer, uh, Chuck Schumer's daughter, the Harvard Law School graduate who now lobbies for Amazon. She is just as big a piece of shit as her father. You graduate from Harvard Law School. Your father's the Democratic majority leader and you take a job lobbying for Amazon, you look up piece of shit in the dictionary. I won't. Anyway, cases of monkeypox. Speaking of the Schumer family, cases of monkeypox, monkeypox have been reported throughout Europe, including Great Britain, as well as Canada, Australia and here in America. On the brighter side, city streets will no longer be plagued by smiling organ grinders oozing old world Eastern European charm. That's the one good thing about monkey plague or monkey pox. We will no longer have to endure those smiling organ grinders from Eastern Europe. I hate organ grinders. A federal judge has reversed Joe Biden's plan to end. Yes, I'm insane. Yes. Yes. A federal judge has reversed Joe Biden's plan to end Title 42, a Trump era executive action that keeps asylum seekers from entering America because they might pose a health risk bringing COVID into America. I think you're more of a health risk. You're more of a health risk if we let you into America. 
Uh, the judge said Biden didn't consider the health risk of, quote, unquote, migrants, he called them migrants, testing positive for COVID while in custody, unquote. Okay, first off, these are not migrants. The same way the six million Ukrainians in Poland, uh, six million Ukrainians now in Poland, Romania, Moldova, they're not migrants. These are refugees. These are refugees at the southern border. That's the first thing. Second, they don't have COVID because if they had COVID, they couldn't walk from Guatemala towards the American border. They're living outdoors. You don't catch COVID outdoors. And most importantly, these are refugees. They're not migrants. These are refugees who don't belong in custody. Placing asylum seekers in custody makes them more likely to catch COVID because they are being held in ICE's illegal for-profit concentration camps with poor ventilation and little to no COVID safety protocols. ICE runs its for-profit concentration camps the way Andrew Cuomo runs the nursing homes here in New York City. You don't want to go inside of them. People who seek asylum are not supposed to be held in for-profit concentration camps. It's against the Constitution and it's against international law. Under America's immigration law, anyone who steps foot on U.S. soil, no matter where or how they arrive, have the right to seek asylum. The ACLU says detaining refugees indefinitely or sending them back to their country of origin violates the Constitution, which guarantees citizens and non-citizens the right to due process. It's the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment, the right to habeas corpus and the right to know why they are being held. Detaining asylum seekers indefinitely violates the Department of Homeland Security's official policy, as well as an executive order dating back to the Obama administration. We don't have an immigration problem. We have a problem of white supremacy. We have white nationalists spouting replacement theory, and it's getting blacks, Muslims, Hispanics and Jews killed. America's immigration policy is one of white nationalism based on replacement theory. It always has been. And if you think immigrants seeking political asylum belong in for-profit concentration camps or need to be shipped home, then you don't believe in our Constitution. You don't believe in the Fifth Amendment. You don't believe in the 14th Amendment. You don't believe in international law. You subscribe, whether you know it or not, to the replacement theory, and that inadvertently makes you a racist. Racism comes in all shapes and colors. A lot of people are racist and they don't know it. Now, I understand that it's not just white people who think these asylum seekers uh, should be held in for-profit concentration camps. I get that. But that's only because ignorance also comes in all shapes and colors. And you can't have racists without ignorant people. So find out about our Constitution. It might be for you, America, the Constitution. It might be just for you. Speaking of ignorant people, economists, and those are the most ignorant of the most ignorant profession on this planet, 
economists. They were polled on inflation. 70% of these frauds who call themselves economists who know nothing other than how to cash a six-figure check spouting whatever statistics their billionaire paymaster tells them to spout. 75% of these courtesans in three-piece suits, economists, 75% say inflation has peaked and will start heading down by the end of the summer. So you know what that means? <laughs> it's going to get worse. By the way, also heading down by the end of the summer, Joe Biden's approval ratings. I love this story. This is this is this is why economists are, you know, they might as well be diviners for water economists. Last week, Joe Biden reminded reporters that the 2022 budget deficit has been reduced by more than one trillion dollars. Biden then added reducing the budget deficit is one of the most effective ways to beat inflation. Our president said reducing the budget deficit is one of the most effective ways to defeat inflation. Of course, because it's America and American media, nobody asked him to explain that. And that would have been fun to watch him trying to explain how lowering the budget deficit lowers inflation. There is no correlation between lowering the budget deficit and lowering inflation. I bring this up because being a chiropractor makes you more of a scientist than being an economist. You can say whatever you want about the economy. And if you keep repeating it, nobody will question you. Like lowering taxes for the wealthy balances the budget. Repeat it enough times you can build an entire political party around that idea. As I said last week, there is no free market. Now, I'm going to tell you something economists won't tell you, but I will. There's no free market and there is no economy. There is no economy. There's no economy for economists to study and to prognosticate upon. One third of America's entire economy is government spending. Government is our economy. Anything that's responsible for one third of anything is everything. Anything that's responsible for one third of anything is everything. The government determines our economy. It determines what we spend money on and what we don't spend money on. You know who knows that? Billionaires. They preach the free market while controlling the government because they want us to believe in this mythical free market and not believe in the government. Because if we believed in government, we would wrest control of it from the billionaires and then we would decide what our economy is. There is no economy. There is only control of the government. The government is controlled by the corporations that the government spends money on, which is why the government spends money on those corporations. The U.S. oil companies wanted us dependent on fossil fuels. They took control of the government and we became dependent on fossil fuels. The government gives tax breaks, free drilling rights to the oil companies. It fights wars overseas for oil companies. Iraq, Afghanistan and Ukraine. It's a cliche to say this, but it's true. They're about oil and oil pipelines. And who pays for those wars for oil? You do. 
and Exxon and Chevron returned the favor by charging you double for gas, right? Hey, thanks for fighting that 20-year war for oil. Now pay us double for gas. Listen to me. I had an accountant who stole money from me. Then he sent me a bill for the hours he spent stealing money from me. Okay, that's what the oil companies are doing. They're my accountant. Trust me, these people get off on this shit. They love the fact that you and I are going broke, fighting wars for oil, then going broke, paying for that oil and having our men and women die from that oil, either overseas or from the air and water they breathe. The, the fact that that's happening makes these oil company executives hard. Oil, fossil fuels control our government. And so our government builds and man maintains our nation's roads with your tax dollars. So the oil companies can sell us more oil. The oil companies turned out to be unfortunately more powerful than the railroads. And that's too bad. I'm sorry that railroads lost their juice. Instead of mile after mile of asphalt, there would be rail cars and trolleys for as far as the eye could see. But the railroads lost their clout and that's bad for the climate. The market didn't decide this. The oil companies did. There's no such thing as a love affair with cars. Our love affair with cars was manufactured by the government. We could have had a love affair with commuter trains. Have you ever traveled on a nice train in Europe? Believe me, you could fall in love with that. But the oil companies, the car companies and the airlines, they took control of our government and they destroyed both the environment and travel. They ruined travel. Does anyone, for example, like flying? No, you get on a flight. Now, the first thing the flight attendant asks if you would like, they ask if you would like a black or a red ball gag in your mouth after you've been duct taped to the seat. You don't love flying and you don't love being in your car. Nobody likes being in their car. These two hour commutes, road rage, traffic jams, having to listen to this shitty podcast. You don't love beef. Nobody loves beef. You were trained to love beef. You don't love cheese or pizza or pork. Americans never consumed beef, pork, cheese and pizza the way they do now. But those are the food interests who got control of the farm bill. And suddenly you crave this shit. Your tax dollars subsidize beef, pork, dairy and pizza. And because of that, you're forced to crave it. These are the uh, these are the lucky ones or the, the bullies who pay our politicians to give them subsidies. And if they're paying our politicians, they're also spending billions on advertising that brainwashes you into thinking beef is part of our heritage. It isn't. It isn't. You give me a billion dollars. I'll convince Americans that tempeh is as American as apple pie. And by the way, there's nothing American about apple pie. Apple farmers had too many apples, so they decided apple pie would be a, a great way to unload the surplus apples. The British invented the apple pie. Some American advertising hack was paid to give you a craving for apple pie. The, our founding fathers, the Native Americans, they didn't eat apple pie or apples because American apples back then tasted like Dennis Prager's truss. American apples back then tasted like Dennis 
Prager's trusts. The colonists had to bring over European apple trees because American apples back then were inedible. And then when the apple trees finally bore fruit, the colonists used the apples to make cider, liquor, so they could drink something that didn't give them explosive diarrhea. You couldn't drink water back then because it was filled with worms. You had to drink something with alcohol in it because alcohol kills parasites, bacteria, worms. They were all drunk back then. It was before indoor plumbing. They had to drink alcohol. The Constitution was written by hardcore alcoholics. They had no idea what they were signing. They thought it was like the bar tab. When Patrick Henry shouted, give me liberty or give me death. He was talking about his favorite brand of vermouth. As American as apple pie, more like as American as cirrhosis of the, of the liver, cirrhosis of the liver. Our country wasn't founded by people who ate apple pie. Nobody ate pie for dessert. Pie was for dinner and it wasn't apple pie. It was whatever looked like meat that you could stuff into a, a pie, which back then was appropriately enough called a coffin. They weren't called pies back then. They were called coffins. That's the truth. Look it up. Pie was called a coffin back then. And it was mincemeat coffin and squirrel coffin. Pie was invented. So nobody had a look at that night's ignominious source of protein. American as apple pie became a term because someone wanted to sell us apple pie. And considering the sugar, fat, whipped cream, ice cream and cheese, they're putting cheese on American pie. It should be called an apple coffin because that's where you're heading. The point is. Oh, I still have some time. The point is the economy. Yes. Yes. I'm OK. Did I mention that Chuck Schumer's daughter is a lobbyist for Amazon? She graduated from Harvard Law School. She could have any job she wants. All her father has to do is pick up the phone and say, hire my idiot kid, Jessica Schumer. And she chose to be a lobbyist for Amazon. Her father, Senate Majority Leader, Democrat. And she chooses to be a lobbyist for Amazon. By its very definition, that is the definition of a piece of shit. The point I'm making is the economy is whatever the people who control the government decide it is. You don't crave apple pie. You've been trained to crave it. The American people could be trained to crave eye booger pie if it was advertised enough. One trillion dollars a year on weapons. Yet we have no enemies. How are we spending all this money on weapons? We have a wartime economy and no war. That's because the defense contractors have more power over government than people who provide daycare. Imagine if daycare workers had more control over the government than the dairy industry. And by the way, dairy, the worst thing in the world for you. Daycare? The best thing in the world for you. Daycare is is great because it keeps children safe from the biggest threat on the planet, their parents. The quicker you get children away from their idiot parents, the safer the world will be. I can guarantee you Stephen Miller never stepped foot inside daycare. If daycare workers had the clout 
that dairy farmers had. There would be a daycare center for every single child in America. Preschool teachers would be treated with the same reverence as pediatricians, which they should be. And entire microeconomies would be built around daycare centers. Right. If day if daycare had more clout than the oil companies, then economies would be built around daycare centers instead of truck stops, coffee shops, dry cleaners, clothing stores, bookstores, restaurants would all grow around the government spending money on daycare centers instead of the government spending all this money on fossil fuels. If our government sp spent more money on free community college than it did on making sure we stuffed our arteries with cheese, entire economies would grow around these community colleges. The government is our economy. Construction jobs, teaching jobs, food service jobs, restaurants, clothing jobs. That's how you sustain a community. And that flows from the federal government injecting money into a public good like education, community colleges. That's how you build a sustaining, sustainable community and environment. That's the way it's supposed to work. A government is the economy. It reflects a nation's values. There is no inevitability to what the oligarchs call progress, and they always define what progress is. There's nothing inevitable about self-driving cars. The American people have to stop thinking the economy is just something that happens to them. No, the economy is controlled by the government. And right now, the government is controlled by corporations. And right now, corporations, not the economy, are happening to us. Government, government controls the economy. The economy is whatever we decide it is. And one of the pieces of shit who controls our government and therefore our economy is war profiteer David Rubenstein, chairman of the Carlyle Group. David Rubenstein just announced he's spending four billion this month. He's spending four billion to buy defense contractor Mantech. I think I have a stay hard cream by the same name. Uh, David Rubenstein, chairman of the Carlyle Group, was in Davos this week. And here's what he said, you know, because they ask him everything because he's an expert because he's a war profiteer. They asked David Rubenstein uh, what he thought about recession. OK. Well, when I worked in the White House under President Carter, uh, the inflation advisor, Fred Kahn, uh, said that he thought we were heading into a recession right before the 1980 presidential election. And President Carter called him into the Oval Office and said, look, I'm running for re-election. Don't use the R word. It scares people. So Fred Kahn said, what am I supposed to do? I'm an honest man. So he said, just don't use the R word. Subsequently, Fred Kahn said he thought we were heading into a banana. And he used the word banana because he realized reporters wouldn't put a headline that said Fred Kahn thinks we're heading into a banana. So I'm very <laughs> reluctant to use the word recession, but let me just say that we're 
We're not in a banana yet, but I think the signs are not as favorable as I would like, uh, only because the war in Russia and Ukraine is not any like likely to end soon. If the war ended tomorrow, mm-hmm. I think the economy would bounce back. But since it's not likely to end tomorrow, I suspect that will be the precipitating factor, given all the food chain and energy problems that, are, that come about because of it. So I think I don't want to say we're in a banana, but I would say a banana may not be that far away from where we are today unless the war ends very quickly. Yeah, we're not far away from a banana. Yeah. Banana Republic is where we are. That's where we are because of David Rubenstein. Nobody questions this. Nobody questions him at Davos. He's saying war is causing the inflation, the recession and starvation. If only this is what David Rubenstein is saying. If only there was some magical way to stop the war. Oh, I don't know. Maybe diplomacy. David Rubenstein. Maybe diplomacy. President Zelensky yesterday said the war can only end through diplomacy. But Joe Biden, who's controlled by West exec war profiteer lobbyists, no diplomacy. And David Rubenstein is fretting, wringing his hands about the effect of the war in Ukraine, but never brings up diplomacy. Why is that? Why is it? Because David Rubenstein is a war profiteer and he wants the war. He's the Carlisle group. He acts like there's no way to end the war. There is. There is. Stop listening to war profiteers like unpatriotic David Rubenstein, who is making a fortune off this war in Ukraine while the rest of the world starves. I'm David Feldman. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. When we come back, I hope, I hope we will be joined by David Sirota. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. We wake every morning like the Rolling Stones, cause we just can't get no satisfaction. Democracy's in change, we could bury its remains, but infotainment culture has infected our brains. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. 
the pathological pursuit of power and profit drives everything in sight. Not sure we can stop it. Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top. We've lost the power to think, so we shop until we drop. We're surveilled and monitored while they keep us all distracted. So we never notice that our data has been extracted. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. All right. The Reagan agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation, has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, gone, gone. Slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, the media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. Now we can't seem to get out of this neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. We've been diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. Yeah. We're living every night. A distraction We're living every day What is I can't catch a break today. Oh, okay. That's right. All right. Thank you. That is uh Professor Mike Steinel, who will be with us a little later on 
in the show. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And we are now joined by David Sirota. He's an award-winning American journalist and author. He served as Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign speechwriter in 2020. He created the Financial Crisis podcast series Meltdown, and he helped Adam McKay create the story for the film Don't Look Up. He is a columnist at The Guardian, editor-at-large at Jacobin Magazine, and founder and editor of The Lever, which I just subscribed to. Now, look, before I bring him on, the only way he's going to come back is if you subscribe to The Lever. I don't ask you for much. Go to The Lever right now and sign up for The Lever. Just do it. I want to, I've been trying to get David Sirota on this show, I think for seven years. We were on the Young Turks together, and I know I'm small potatoes, so I stopped asking. But if more people go to the lever and sign up for this, I, I am, uh, I'm going to try to impress you. Welcome, David Sirota. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've been holding on to this. It was either going to be you or if I had Adam McKay on the show. The Mark Ryland character in Don't Look Up. Yes. I, I'm just, I, this is what I'm utterly convinced of. Is it based on Doe from Heaven's Gate? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Um, this is the thing, like, I've been waiting to either spring on you or Adam. I've been holding on to the. Remember Doe? He was the, yeah. he was the uh, musical... He he, uh, Broadway. He failed in Broadway musicals, so he created yeah. a cult in San Diego. You know, I think um, uh, you're talking about Heaven's Gate, the cult, the actual cult. Yeah, not where everybody, the movie. everybody. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he kind of looks like that guy. And I, I, it's funny. I was actually living out in San Diego uh, at the time on a, on a newspaper internship when that all went down, which was crazy. Um, uh, and the answer is, uh, I, I don't have an answer for you. Um, he's kind of an amalgam of a lot of oligarchs. Uh, Mark Rylance, uh, I think, has said that he took some inspiration in the way he portrayed it at, uh, from Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly uh, it is kind of an amalgam of an oligarch and somebody who uh, believes almost religiously uh, in their own bullshit. Right. Uh, and so that's what that character really is. And I think we've now gotten used to those kinds of oligarchs, um, unfortunately, running the world. Right. Doe was going to they they were going to fly up to a to a comet, but it was necessary. That's right. But you had to That's cut right. your you had to castrate yourself. That was yeah. Or, or they, I think it was it was a doomsday cult, and they all commit yeah. suicide. Yeah. yeah, getting people yeah. to castrate themselves. Yeah, that seems to be the Republican Party right now. This is <laughs> it is a doomsday cult, isn't it? It does feel I mean, the Republican Party really does feel like a genuinely a, a doomsday cult uh, when you look at it on everything from climate to the to the economy to to democracy. I mean, it really we're really living. It really does feel like we're living in, in some kind of end times right now. And it's some days it can be it can be difficult to to do the kind of work that we do of journalism and reporting on it. But but put it this way, I don't think I don't think you're crazy. I don't think anybody who's listening is crazy for um, seeing the Republican Party as a kind of doomsday cult. I think I think that's actually it's not even casting a value judgment. It just kind of is what it is. So I want to ask you about a story you have over at Lever, uh, levernews.com. Go to levernews.com. 
the only way I'm getting David Sirota back on this show is if there's a bump <laughs> in subscriptions to levernews.com. So do me a favor and it's $8 a month and it, you'll, I'll tell you what, if you sign up for levernews.com and you don't like it, I'll reimburse you. Just, <laughs> that's, it's got the Feldman stamp. I want to ask you, you about, uh, they are not even pretending anymore, the piece you wrote. Yeah. But, yeah. but you worked on the Goldbergs. I did. You're I, a comedy well, I, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't work on the Goldbergs. I'm, I'm, I'm a character on the Goldbergs. You didn't because write? I grew up with Adam Goldberg. Oh, you didn't write on the Goldbergs? No, 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 no. I've been, I've been on the Goldbergs, and there is a character on the Goldbergs who is David Sirota because uh, I grew up with Adam Goldberg. Wow. So he is telling the story of the town and the life that, that we grew up in. I see. So being a speech writer for Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Now, you've been tweeting out that you're in love with Bernie Sanders. You've <laughs> you've confessed. I know your wife is in the state assembly in Colorado. Uh, my wife is a state legislator here in Colorado. Yes. 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 Uh, but you've admitted, um, their session just ended. You're, you're, you've admitted to this love of what is it? I, I want to ask you about Bernie Sanders. What what is sure. it like writing for him? What can you tell us that you've learned from Bernie in terms of messaging? Because I think he and Ralph Nader understand messaging. Well, I, I would agree with you in the sense that um, Bernie Sanders knows how to stay on message, uh, knows how to deliver a message, and is always focused on delivering a message in uh, vernacular and language that everybody can understand. Um, he, I mean, and that's uh, that's by design. So when you're writing speeches for Bernie Sanders, you're not writing really um, necessarily highfalutin speeches with flowery language. You're writing uh, in language deliberately so to try to simply connect with as many people as possible. So I think the um, experience of, of practicing that, of, of working on that, of knowing uh, that that is the is the mission, I think actually transferred fairly well from, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. So when you're, when I write stories, I'm trying to write stories that anybody can understand. So I think the actual work of being a speechwriter for somebody like Bernie Sanders, there are a lot of overlaps uh, in that. Uh, and of course I, I'm a, I'm a kind of an, an investigative journalist that does a lot of adversarial accountability journalism. And, you know, some people have said to me, why have you gone in and out of working in politics and journalism? And that's a little bit weird. And I, I don't see it as weird. It's all part of the same work. I mean, journalism is supposed to be questioning assumptions, challenging power. Bernie Sanders and a lot of the other campaigns that I've worked on are the same thing. I mean, I don't, I don't just work for any, I, I haven't just worked for any kind of, you know, Democrats. I've worked for people like Bernie Sanders or people in positions uh, that are trying to shake the status right. quo. And that's what journalism is supposed to be about. Right. And I think a lot of times that's forgotten in journalism now because journalism, I think, frankly, we're living in an era where what is called journalism is really about protecting power and, right. and protecting the status quo. I mean, when you turn on your television and you watch uh, network news, cable news, it, it really does feel like a defense of the status quo, a defense right. of, of the of the establishment and the political machinery and the oligarchy. It does not really feel like um, 
content in a lot of ways that is that is questioning assumptions and challenging the status quo. And I, I think that's that's pretty bad. Now, what we're trying to do with the lever is something different. We're a reader supported news organization. And part of the reason why we're reader supported is because I think you need to have that kind of reader support to be able to do reporting uh, that does not placate uh, big money and and power that, right. that actually questions big money and power. Right. So everybody go to levernews.com. That's L-E-V-E-R news.com. It's $8 a month. You need to support levernews.com, especially since it means we might be able to get David to come back. So go to levernews.com. <laughs> it's it's great. And if, if you don't like it, I will reimburse you. That's how much I believe. You're a great writer. I, you know... I put you in the same category as William Sapphire and Pat Buchanan because your politics are not the same. They were, however, speechwriters, and they learned how to write clearly. You write very, very clearly. You don't write to... Thank you. That's, that's high praise. Yeah. You write to explain things. And that's what politics is. That's what speechmaking is. It's explaining. And journalism, sometimes, I think sometimes... We get too caught up in our florid usage and trying to show off that, you know, we're great writers uh, rather than passing along some information. Did Bernie change your politics? How much of a leftist were you before you were exposed to Bernie? I'm going to assume you were left of center were you as were you always as much a diehard leftist as you are now, or did Bernie change that for you? You know, um, when I first got to work for Bernie Sanders, I had pretty, I think, moderate or really undefined politics. What frankly. years I mean, are we talking? Very, about? What years? It was very long ago. It was it was uh, end of the nineteen nineties. Um, I first worked for Bernie Sanders as his press secretary when he was in the house and I had just gotten out of college and I'd worked on a couple of campaigns and um, I sort of sent in my resume to a bunch of places on Capitol Hill. I'd grown up as a kind of a you know, big D Democrat, you know, I, you know, I was a young person. I didn't really have politics. And I went to a, a, a university that, that was kind of a, um, uh, not known as a very political student body, Northwestern university. And I went for journalism. And so um, when I went to work for Bernie, I, I really didn't have, uh, well-formed politics beyond sort of not liking the Republicans and knowing I was essentially not a Republican. Um, right. Working for Bernie Sanders in 1999 into 2001, so at the end of the Clinton era into the uh, Bush era, uh, was uh, probably the most formative political experience of my whole life. Uh, just those two and a half years on the Hill working for him to be able to watch how Congress worked through the this uh this office that was in the only independent in the Congress was just incredible. And, and his focus on, you know, the issues that we know he focuses on the kitchen table issues, economic issues, following the money, corruption, that kind of thing was just something I had never been exposed to. And right. that really was, and I've told him that it was the absolute formative political experience of my entire life. It remains the formative political experience. Um, I, I would say this, not not that I I steer away from, you know, quote, left and right. But I, I do think those terms are sort of scrambled now. And, you know, I 
I don't know how, I don't know what to label my own politics other than my politics are, I guess the closest I can come is kind of new, new deal, new, new deal, FDR right. kind of economic politics. Um, the answer is that's democracy. Not a, the answer is get everyone the right to vote, get them in this temple of democracy in Washington, D.C., and let the people decide. I, it's not Marxism or capitalism. It's just let everyone vote and yeah we decide what's best for everybody. Uh, I think we get yeah. caught up on ide ideology. What is best for everybody, not who's smarter. Yeah. Or, or Yeah, and make sure that every, and democracy means that everybody has, if not an equal say, that everybody has, because you can never have, I, I mean, that's the, that's the goal. Um, right. But right now we have, I mean, truly we have oligarchy where, right. where the right, to, the right to vote itself is under attack, but even the, uh, preserved rights to vote are limited. And, and I think we need to understand that they're limited as just the best example, right? I mean, you can vote for your U.S. Senator, but your vote counts more or less depending on what state you live in. So if you really start thinking about how limited our democracy is in the sense of like how extreme it is to try to prevent people from actually voting, that's the tip of the iceberg in the sense of how much your vote actually matters has been limited. I mean, it's been limited in so many ways, how the Supreme Court, which isn't elected at all, has so much power over things. The U.S. Senate, which is fundamentally undemocratic. And then you add the filibuster. So it's if you really think about how extreme it is to try to prevent people from just casting a vote, considering all of the other ways your vote's power has been limited, it really is hard to say that we we live in a functioning democracy anymore. But I do agree with you. Ultimately, if you do have a much more functioning democracy, whether it's workplace democracy, unions, uh, or and into the political sphere of, of democracy, you, you, my view is you'll get better results. You'll get better policies. You'll get policies that will serve most of us rather than policies that fleece most of us and serve a handful of people. Let me ask you about the Democratic Party and mainstream media. I remember watching Bernie debate Hillary in 2016, primetime CBS, thinking you're not allowed to say what he's saying about the health insurance companies and the drug companies. You can't say that on primetime television. By 2020, he normalized that to a degree, but he was drowned out. Did he ever get an opportunity in front of millions of people to spell out Medicare for all without resorting to sound bites while Buddha Judge and Klobuchar spoke over him. Did he ever get an opportunity to spell out Medicare for all in front of uh, the American I think he, I, I, you know, I think he got some opportunities, maybe not maybe not fully unfiltered opportunities. And I think that the polls show that that it resonated. But I also think that what the experience showed is that there will always be powerful figures making bad faith arguments to try to undermine uh, that kind of proposal in a way that appeals to our worst instincts. Ultimately, Medicare for all, we talked about democracy and, and inclusion. And I think that ultimately a policy like Medicare for all requires a a sense of a social contract between the government and its people. And that when the social contract breaks down, when people do not have faith in the government, when people see have, have been not wrongly, by the way, 
learned to see that the government uh, is oftentimes only serving the very wealthy, it makes it much harder to realize a policy like Medicare for all. And it makes the bad faith arguments against Medicare for all a policy like that uh, much more potent because all of the arguments made against it are kind of weaponizing that nihilism over many years. I mean, it's why the the right has a much easier time of things that it, it, it's got a kind of a self-fulfilling cycle. Destroy the government's ability to provide services, then cite the government's uh, uh, failures as reason to continue destroying the government's ability right. to provide services, and then go to the voters uh, and continue saying, look at the government can't do anything, anything good at all. So that's a real problem. And I think ultimately we have to fess up to, you mentioned the podcast that I worked on, Meltdown, which was one of my, you know, one of my favorite projects I ever worked on. And Meltdown was about how, in my view, uh, the failure of the Democrats to seize the opportunity after the financial crisis, to seize the opportunity to really uh, challenge Wall Street, reframe the economy, really, uh, you know, every crisis is an opportunity. The Democrats' failure to do that and their complicity with Wall Street. I mean, essentially their policies propped back up Wall Street, propped up the health insurance industry, that their failure shredded what was left of the social contract, said to people, even in a crisis, we were willing to hope, voted big time for Obama. And even in this crisis, uh, the government has decided to go all in for the people who literally created the, the disaster. And I think that ultimately shredded what was uh, already a tattered social contract. Uh, sowed the disaffection. 200 plus counties switched, went, tr- went Obama, Obama, Trump. Uh, and it, you don't have to believe me on that. I mean, it was Steve Bannon who said the legacy of the financial crisis is Donald Trump. And I think the Democratic Party has not fessed up to that. It doesn't want to fess up to that because its donors don't want it to fess up to that. But I think we have to understand that when people's relationship with government is so blatantly torched, and people are so many people are taught a message of nihilism that when you then go to voters and say we have to do something like Medicare for all, you're going to have bad faith people like Pete Buttigieg and others in the Democratic Party in their own self-interested way, make a similarly nihilistic argument. Oh, nothing can be done. Oh, you know, it, it, this is not what people want. And essentially, the previous failures the previous disasters have created the conditions for more right. nihilism. The, so how to break that cycle? It's very difficult. Right. The adults in the room are the nihilists. We're talking with David Sirota. And everybody, please, as a favor to me, go to levernews.com. And it's $8 a month. Support investigative journalism. You have a whole staff of writers. And uh, it's it's great. It's worth reading. And I wanted to ask you about this latest piece you have entitled They Are Not Even Pretending Anymore. Democratic leaders are joining with oligarchs to try to permanently destroy the progressive movement. Let me read you a quote and we'll this is what you write. Democratic leaders just don't want avocado toast and mimosas. They want an outright counter revolution only not against the GOP insurrection, against the Democratic rank and file, and in many cases for the politicians most hostile to the party's purported agenda. Explain that. Well, I think what you've seen in these uh, first uh, congressional races, uh, um, 
from the Democratic Party leadership is something that that represents kind of a break from the past. Uh, in, in the past, up until about mm, two, four years ago, Democratic Party leaders, we're talking about, you know, House Speaker, top party leaders, would sort of tread lightly in contested open seat primaries. Uh, they, there was an idea that, you know, we have to let the voters pick. We can't be too heavy handed about putting the thumb on the scale in contested Democratic primaries. And in the last two to four years, you've seen something different happen. You've seen party leaders intervene very heavy handedly in House and Senate races across the country, trying to preference corporate aligned candidates, candidates who the party donors like preference them in contested primaries rather than essentially allowing for a a modicum of an even playing field for primaries to play out. And I think in this particular cycle, you've seen um, them backed up by these super PACs uh, that are funded by, you know, a a kind of a rogues gallery of oligarchs, an oil mogul, uh, a crypto billionaire and the like. And what's United Democracy Project. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think what's happened is, is that this has become very explicit. And, and in some ways, we should we should be thankful for that. There's no pretense anymore. They're not pretending. Right. They, they used to say, hey, you know, let the voters choose. And then maybe, you know, sort of behind the scenes, they would help one or the other candidate. But now it's just completely explicit, just totally explicit. And I think it's very a very revealing moment. Because what we're seeing is that the party leadership is saying we want a corporate party. That is explicitly what we want. We want it so much that we're willing to intervene in far flung primaries across the country, in Pittsburgh and Oregon, in North Carolina. We are willing to come into local communities with lots of spending to try to buy local primaries by running Republicans. Huge amounts of money. They're using Republican donor money, although, you know, and running Irwin in, in Pittsburgh, Irwin who ran against Summer Lee is a Republican. Yeah, union avoidance lawyer as well. Yes. So 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 I think it's important for everybody to understand that that this is not conspiracy theory anymore. This I mean, it never was conspiracy theory. But the point is, is that now it's undeniable. And so in a sense, I think we can be thankful for it because the party leadership is, is effectively being quite honest. I mean, look at what's going on tomorrow. It's incredible. The Democratic Party leadership has responded to the likely overturning of Roe by going in hard for an anti-choice Democratic candidate, also a candidate who gets huge amounts of money from the oil industry, Henry Cuellar, in South Texas, against a Democratic candidate who is pro-choice in a primary. I don't know. You can't make it any more explicit. So I think the good news is, is that there's no pretense this is what it is. And now we have to sort of, I guess, in our activism. Well, but there is pretense. So- you you do have APEC putting up front organizations. I think it's called the United Democracy Project, which poured $1.2 yeah. million dollars into yeah. Henry Cuellar's campaign. And that's not out in the open. They're hiding. They're ashamed that they're an Israeli. I, guess, I, I, I think that's I think that's that's fair in one sense, which is that the which is that the money Look, in my view, I'm not sure what exactly the money is motivated by. By that, I mean this. Some of these groups have the 
U.S. Israel relationship as their as their brand. Other groups have, you know, vague, um, you know, sort of vague branding. I can't tell you what those huge donors are actually motivated, motivated by. But I can tell you, I don't believe it's a coincidence that the donors come from various industries that don't want progressive policies, right? Like the uh, uh, Democratic majority for Israel was funded uh, by uh, one of their big donors is a an oil mogul. A longtime Republican donor. They killed Nina Turner. That was right. Intervened for against Nina Turner for a candidate who just so happened to not be willing to co-sponsor her party's major Green New Deal legislation, major climate legislation. Right. Right? So I, I, I think it's it's not to say that the Israel issue or whatever Sam, the crypto billionaire is doing, isn't their actual issue. It's to say what we let's just say what we know, regardless of their branding. It is oligarch money coming in to support pro oligarch candidates or at least at minimum candidates who much less threaten the oligarchy and much less threaten the Democratic leadership, which, of course, is aligned with the oligarchy. So that that when I say there is no pretense, I would agree with you. At a at a rank and file voter level, people who are not following exactly where every dollar is coming from, you're, you're right. It's hard to it's probably hard to know what's going on. But for for anybody who follows this at all, anybody, the, there is no pretense. The leadership is is you know it's 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 I, I'm much more of as a journalist, I'm much more of a show don't tell. You know, you you look at what right. the politician is doing, not what they're saying, and in this situation. We know what the Democratic leadership is actively doing. They went down and they're campaigning for Henry Cuellar right now. I don't care what they say about climate change or they, they you know, they support abortion rights. You're literally campaigning for an anti-choice Democrat. That is showing, not telling. And we should all there, there's no pretense anymore about what they are showing us. OK, before you go, let me add, I have one final question. Thank you for doing this. David Sirota is editor-in-chief of levernews.com, L-E-V-E-R news.com, levernews.com, $8 a month, support investigative journalism. He's a great writer and he surrounds himself with great writers. Go to levernews.com. It has my guarantee. If you subscribe and you don't like it, let me know and I will pay you back. Alternative history. Uh, Bernie is a miracle of democracy. And I thought if Obama and Clyburn and whomever stayed out of it, uh, he could have been president. But do, do we have a, an infrastructure on the left that would have backed him up? Could he have ended up, if he had gotten elected, would he have ended up like Jimmy Carter? Because Jimmy Carter, uh, and rightfully so, got undermined by Tip O'Neill, Ted Kennedy, and the liberals in the Democratic Party. And they were right for doing that. They undermined his presidency. Wouldn't the Democrats have done to the opposite wing of the Democratic Party done to Sanders what the liberals did to Carter? I, I certainly think that dynamic w would be uh, potentially there. 
Uh, and I certainly think that the American left is, is in, a, in a somewhat weakened state right now in some ways, in some ways. However, I think the X factor would be that Bernie Sanders would not sit in Washington hoping to work out deals only playing an insider game. Right. I think Bernie Sanders would be barnstorming the country using the bully pulpit of the presidency to actually activate and motivate people. Uh, and I think that would have there's a symbiotic relationship. I think that would have motivated community groups, unions, environmental groups and the like. You have not seen Joe Biden campaign for his agenda. You just have, I mean, it's barely happened. You certainly haven't seen him put any pressure on uh, recalcitrant Democrats on the corporate wing of the party. I'm not saying that would necessarily solve some of the gridlock problems in Washington. What I'm saying is that's something that has not happened. In fact, I would argue that's something that we haven't actually seen in my entire lifetime. Barack Obama, when he campaigned for the ACA, I mean, I, I, you know, I was remember I was, you know, I had lived in Montana. He went to Montana to tout conservative Democrat Max Baucus, who was watering down that bill. I cannot name for you a time when we have seen a Democratic president go to the states and districts of conservative Democrats and try to bring pressure on them. I can't name a time in my own lifetime where that's happened. I think Bernie Sanders would have tested that. I don't know if it would have been successful, but I think he would have tried. And that is more than you can say, certainly for Joe Biden, and frankly, more than you can say for any of the presidents, uh, you know, in my lifetime, which basically is Carter, Democratic presidents, Carter, Clinton, uh, Obama. You've seen Republican presidents do that. You right. just haven't seen Democrats do that. Right. Charles Schumer. And, and, and I, should, I should add, it, the reason you haven't, in my view, is because they don't want to. Because this is this is a game. This is their game. Right. Is to say the things because they perceive that liberals want the rhetoric. They want the speeches, but that liberals don't necessarily care as much about the actual doing of things, the actual getting things done. And they know that their donors don't want them to realize their rhetoric. They don't want them to do the things that they are promising. Jessica Schumer, Charles Schumer's daughter. Harvard Law School, is now a lobbyist for Amazon, which mm -hmm. means when the Schumers get together to discuss politics, they agree that it's complicated. <laughs> and they are not your friends. They're your enemy. If your daughter, it's, it's a reflection of your values. If your daughter goes and becomes a lobbyist for Amazon, or if Joe Biden's press secretary and Obama's press secretary, Jay Carney, is now a lobbyist for for Amazon, it tells us exactly who who you are and what your values are. Well, I certainly I certainly I don't want to speak to somebody's family member in the sense of I think, you know, it's hard. It's everybody has their life, a life of their of their own. But I do think I, I will agree with you that the Jay Carney example is so powerful. Uh, and, and by the way, the and by the way, you have a great piece over at the lever about this. You have a yes, laundry yes. list. Yes, I can. I'll get, I, I, want, mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, it was Jay Carney. And before that, it was Robert Gibbs, mm -hmm. Obama's press secretary, who then be, went, went to go work at McDonald's. Right. That is saying something about if the transition from a Democratic uh, being the spokesperson 
for a democratic administration. If the seamless transition is to go from that to, to the spokesperson for McDonald's or the spokesperson for Amazon, that is saying something about the values and policies of the administration you represented. The fact that you can just move to that and that that's like, hey, that's that that's not a huge jump. That says it all. Right. And you would think MSNBC would have the decency when they have David Pluff on identify him as what is he Uber? What, he's, yeah, he, was, he was Uber. I don't even know what he's doing now. Did, but yes, did, did Ariana Huffington Uber. get him that job? Before you go, I just want to introduce you to Jason and Pascal Robert from the This Is Revolution podcast. Hey there. This is uh, David Sirota, and I will try to share him with you. Uh, he was Bernie's uh, chief speechwriter during 2020. So. I will appear on Kenzo Sabato with David Sirota. I don't know. If that's you're... right. That's right. I remember that. Nice to see yeah. you again. Yes, we have an interesting conversation about that. Was, that's oh, right. A while back. By yeah. Congratulations on the success of your movie, by the way. Thank you. Thanks so much. Right. I appreciate it. Thank I, you. I'm going to try to get you on. This is revolution. Uh, you, no, I'd love to do it. This is great. David Sirota, thank you so much. I've been trying to get you on the show. for. Get for in so touch with me anytime. I'm so glad to do it. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. You. Thanks thank you me. so much. And I'll plug your... Your, uh, Thanks again for thank that. You, David Sirota. Thank you, David Sirota. Thank you. Good to see you. All right. Great to see you. Thank you. David Sirota, by the way, is a brilliant writer. He really is. If you haven't read him, he writes clearly. And uh, he's an editor at large at Jacobin Magazine. And he is founder and editor of The Lever. Go to levernews.com. Levernews.com. $8 a month. Support levernews.com. It's investigative journalism opinion pieces and it's uh it's important as important as this is revolution jason miles and pascal robert join us now whenever i hear a word and i have to look it up in the dictionary all of a sudden i start hearing that word in conversation right yes last week Rodrigo, who comes on at the end of our show and rants, he's our correspondent in Mexico, asked me to ask you about France paying, I'm sorry, France demanding reparations from Haiti up until 1947. They wanted to be reimbursed because they freed the slaves. I didn't oh. believe this when you told right. me this. Right. Two days later, I pick up the New York Times. There's a whole special in the New York Times about Haiti having to pay France compensation. I remember I got the email from you, yes. It was like, what? And uh, so do you, I, I know we, we, we there's a lot to talk about, but I just wanted you to to comment on that. If Jason had any thoughts on that, because you weren't on last week. But we you're muted. Jason, we don't have your audio, Jason. We don't have audio. Let's not say they freed the slaves. There was no Emancipation Proclamation. No, they, were, they didn't free. The, France wanted compensation for losing the property. For losing. They lost. They lost property. Correct. They lost. But one of the things that you have to understand is that there was an internal conflict among the combatants within the Haitian Revolution. This gets a little nuanced, if you will indulge me, if you will. Yeah, but now, you, you, you're, you have some relatives from Haiti. 
I'm from my, my parents are from Haiti. I'm, I'm Haitian. I'm, I'm, Haitian. I'm, I'm, so, I, so that means you have some relatives from Haiti. More than some. <laughs> his mama. <laughs> now, we don't have to bring. We don't have to talk about his mama. His mammy. <laughs> what I wanted to make is that the the nature of the people who were fighting against the French during the Haitian Revolution was divided in that some of them wanted to maintain their loyalty to France because they were the children of white plantation owners. They were mixed race. The, the term we use in Haiti is mulatto. I know that term is out of out of favor nowadays, but they were the mixed race children of white plantation owners who many of them owned black slaves themselves and actually felt a closer allegiance to France than desiring to be an independent republic. So even though there was a pressure from France to pay this indemnity, there were internal forces among aspects of the leadership within the actual nation state that were more willing to indulge in this rather ridiculous compensation because they wanted to have that patrilineal connection to their ancestral homeland. And that internal conflict has been somewhat of a problem that plagued the early nation state of Haiti early on. We are responsible ultimately because of the Monroe Doctrine. As Smedley Butler said, he was a, a racketeer for capitalists, for bankers in Haiti, that we literally went, we America using Citigroup, the bank Citigroup or Citicorp, they yes. went down and just removed gold from yes. Haiti's treasury. That's correct. And That's it enslaved our military, enslaved Haitians. This we're That's talking about correct. the 20th, 20th century. It's, it, that the U.S. occupation of Haiti from 1915 to 1934 is an aspect of American history that very few people know about. And I would make the argument that Haitian politics has never recovered from that recovery, from that U.S. occupation, because Haiti has never truly been a sovereign country since that occupation, because the footprint of the U.S. State Department on the selection process of Haitian political leaders and presidents has not evaporated since that time. Unfortunately, the United States still has a significant role in the choosing of what goes on politically in Haiti. The recent U.S. Ambassador Daniel Foote, who resigned under the Biden, under the Biden administration, said, uh, literally stated, are you guys going to try to orchestrate this again? This, does, this doesn't work out too well when we try to do this. So unfortunately, there is a rather long, very tortured history between the United States and Haiti. And what would add what is it that a country that is deemed to be so quote unquote poor have that threatens the, 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 the great and powerful sovereign United States of America? And some argue that the role model of Haiti being an independent country that found its freedom from slave shackles to create a, a nation state founded on freeing of black slaves is too much of something for a major imperial power like the United States to weather. And frankly, it's a model that needs to be suffocated for the world to not ever be able to make it known that, you know, countries under such arduous opposition have the potentiality to do something as, you know, as strong as, strong as free themselves from the shackles of slavery. So the difference between, slavery, by the way, as well, the and difference that picture between, is Mexico that you have up. I'm sorry. The picture is Mexico that you have. Up. Well, I'm going to there's a reason I'm showing it, uh, but I'll get to it in a second. The, the difference 
between Haiti and the United States is, as I understand it, the the slaves freed themselves and there was a bit of noblesse oblige here in the United States, right? Well, in the United in the case of Haiti, that's correct. The Haitian Revolution was a product of Haitians freeing themselves through a violent revolution that divided three empires, not only France, but Spain and Great Britain. But there was a direct correlation between what happened in the Haitian Revolution and the United States. First of all, the Louisiana territories, which doubled the size of the United States and expanded the United States and made it made the United States the empire that it is, would not happen without the Haitian Revolution. That was a direct consequence consequence of Napoleon having to subsidize his losses in Haiti and selling that territory to the United States for less than 10 cents an acre and allowing Thomas Jefferson to basically help the United States become the empire that it was. As a matter of fact, Napoleon's plan was to send an army to New Orleans and have it invade North America after defeating the uh, the army of the of the of the Haitian in, uh, revolutionaries in Haiti, but because they had been they had vanquished his first embarkation, he had to send that army. Napoleon had to send that army to Haiti, where they were defeated once again a second time, which stopped his ability to invade North America. So you can make a very historically sound argument that the Haitian Revolution saved the United North America from having to deal with the invasion from Napoleon's army. I have a picture right now of American Border Patrol, the Marlboro Man cracking a whip along the southern border, trying to stop a Haitian refugee from seeking asylum here in the United States. Correct. So, again, uh, Title 42 was going to be suspended by Biden, but a judge last week said no uh, and referred to the people at the border as migrants, not refugees. The six million Ukrainians living in Poland, Hungary, Hungary and Moldova are not migrants. They are refugees. The Haitians, the, the Haitian who, who's getting whipped by American Border Patrol. Is this a migrant or is this a refugee? Well, I guess it depends on the way in which he wants to be defined by American law. Well, I like to hear Jason, what your thoughts are. <laughs> I agree with you. I guess it depends on uh, which way you want to uh, define him. I mean, me personally, um, he's a refugee. I do live here in Mexico. There is the side that I'm on. This was actually on the Texas side. The side I'm on has a sm much smaller population um, of Haitian refugees, but there is Haitian refugees here. Um, they seem to be getting along fine from what I've seen. I've never heard anybody say anything uh, negative uh, about them. But again, the Texas side is a little bit different. Um, you know, the situation in Haiti, I actually asked Pascal about it uh, quite often. And he actually, <laughs> the last time I asked him about it, kind of shook his head. He goes, it's really, it's really bad down there. So you do have refugees, but everything is complicated, right? Um, it's not as simple as... Um, these people are are migrants and these people are, are refugees but hold on it really was at the drop of a dime that ukrainian people were deemed refugees there's a great story in the la times that that speaks of a ukrainian woman that actually got stuck in some of these refugee camps before the biden administration decides that they're going to be per protected uh, with given uh protective status so it's it's a lot more political plays 
But there's a lot to be said about how Haitian refugees get caught up in in the politics of U.S. immigration. In Title 42, we're going to actually do an, another uh, deep dive on that on Thursday. We're talking with Jason Miles and Pascal Robert. They are the co-hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast. One of the conversations they're having is about a lecture that's on YouTube. It's part of the Yale University lecture series entitled The Value of Marx's Capital. And I believe it was in November of 2020 where the speaker in the video argues that Karl Marx is negligent of the contribution of the transatlantic slave trade to the development of capital. Uh, Go ahead, Pascal. Yeah, I, we have, I think we both have a bit of a problem with this particular trend that's going on in a certain scholarship. There's a very popular book right now called Black Marxism by a scholar named Cedric Robinson, who is an African-American, some would call Marxist, some would actually call him a post-Marxist or a critic of Marxist. And what it is, is it is an attempt to paint Marxism as uh, bereft or neglectful of understanding the role of slavery or the transatlantic slave trade or plantation slavery in Marxism overall analysis of capital and labor. Now, as you know, anyone who has a basic understanding of Marxism realizes that Marx is primarily interested in the way in which industrial labor and work free labor under capitalism is exploited or has its value extracted to create surplus value for the capitalist or for the or the owner or the, the owner of the actual establishment. However, contrary to what some of these intellectuals are arguing, Marx did spend a significant amount of time talking about the danger of slavery and how slavery was part of what he called primitive accumulation. In other words, it was one of the key elements in the way in which the empires of North America, the United States, and the West accumulated their wealth was through the transatlantic slave trade. And it was a there was copious amounts of writing by Marx explaining how the nature of free slavery was a preclusion, the capacity of of, of men who are working as laborers to truly have freedom. And as long as black men were branded as labor do we work as working as slaves in America? They can never truly be free labor. So I would argue that Marx, contrary to some of these scholars who make the argument that he is neglectful or bereft in his analysis of slavery, I have made the argument, and I'm not even an orthodox Marxist. I use Marxism as a tool to challenge capitalism, that Marx is probably the premier Western philosopher that argues against slavery that I think we can actually state exists in the whole canon of Western philosophy. I don't know, maybe you can educate me, David, if you know of any I mean, Western philosopher that is more interested in arguing as to why slavery should be abolished than Karl Marx. I don't think we can find one that, that is contemporary within this period of time. Would you go as far to say, Pascal, that it feels like there's a, a, a mood to change, especially in the, in the light of 1619, to change even the Marxist analysis of slavery that is definitely taken out of the history books? We never talk about that. I think that. But, but, but hold on. Let me ask a question. Do you think it's a, it's, a, it's a mood to change slavery as just the savagery of white men and no longer any sort of labor issue or capitalism issue whatsoever? To, to uh, demonstrate your point. I think what the, the goal is to separate slavery from political economy mm -hmm. and root it 
in being a product of racism. And the, the thing that we have to understand is that racism is a consequence of the necessity of slavery's economic aggrandizement of wealth and capital. The purpose of slavery was not a white male torture machine. The purpose of slavery was to extract free labor from black workers to generate profit for these nation states, plantation owners and capitalists. It was a wealth aggrandizing process. But I think to your point, Jason, there is an attempt to separate slavery from political economy and turn it into a race relations exercise because now today everything is about trying to leverage guilt from the system of American society under the cause of all arching white supremacy as about as opposed to talking about how these systems are rooted in the political economy of capitalism. I mean, isn't that what we get with critical race theory um, when it comes to the real critical race, not, not what Republicans say is critical race theory as far as just anything to mention the word slavery. Isn't that ultimately what critical race theory is? Well, I would argue that the, the problem I have with critical race theory is that it doesn't go far enough. It says that, okay, yeah, race is, is, is the key to the institutions that exist in the American legal system. Number one, I would say that the race is an aspect of the capitalist system that is part of, that is a key actual part of what motivates our legal system. And I would also say that what the remedy that critical race theory offers is nothing but diversity, equity, and inclusion. And my, my constant question when I hear people say diversity, equity, inclusion, if we agree that capitalism is about shrinking the pie smaller and smaller, if our only remedy is more diversity, equity, inclusion, are we simply arguing for people to get a smaller piece of a shrinking pie that's becoming less equal over time anyway, and no real redistribution of the resources and the wealth in the first place? What good is DEI in a capitalist society if you know the pie is getting smaller all the time? It means Karen can't make jokes about your hair anymore in the lunchroom. David, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. Well, yeah, well, I'm just curious. But nobody's defending slavery as like uh, a transitional labor force that was necessary for capitalism to get to where it is now. Nobody in their right mind would be saying that. They're just attacking, in this lecture, they're just attacking Marx uh, uh, mistakenly for not addressing they feel that he's negligent in the extent to which he addresses its core importance to develop of capitalism. And I would make the argument that Marx, in many copious writings in his compendium of work, is very clear about the importance of slavery to the development of capitalism, particularly within the context of the United States. I mean, Marx talks, talks about slavery even before uh, Africans are brought to North America with, with Native Americans, and he definitely talks about the savagery of what was going on in the, the British colonies as well. The problem for me is that when you make it strictly a race issue, what is your end goal for describing this? If we always talk about building out a left, how can we build out a left when there's people that are constantly playing the oppression Olympics? Right. So what are, what are you really doing by even trying to make this point? There's, you know, when you start looking at like funding dollars, there's more money to research things like this, reparations, uh, the DEI, what Pascal talks about, uh, 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 there's a lot of money to be made in, in that world. And 
and what are you what are you doing in the end? I mean, one of the best examples, one of the best real world examples is a company like Abercrombie and Fitch when they lost a lawsuit in the Supreme Court, uh, a discrimination lawsuit. Ultimately, they just hired uh, a, a, a person to hire more black people or people of color. And then they gave those people of color a different title and stuck them in the back of the store. So right. what changed? What got better? Right, right. So the in Davos, the World Economic Forum is meeting and mm-hmm. the story is Russia. The president of Ukraine spoke uh, via Zoom to the World Economic Forum and he got a standing ovation and there's a big display of the atrocities in Ukraine and the World Economic Forum is speaking out against Putin and these atrocities. What role, what, what, what is the cover that Putin and Ukraine provide to the World Economic Forum? Oh, that's a very, 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 very good question. I think that the, 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 the well, Jason, let you go. I'll let you go first. I don't. I'm, oh, I don't you go ahead. I don't. I don't have an answer for that. Well, I mean, I tell us what the world economic. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put pose it in that that term that it's covered for anything. So, well, well I think I, the World Economic Forum is one of those global consortiums of economic and geostrategic interests of uh, corporations as well as foreign nation states that come together. Some people use the term. I think it's a bit of a conspiracy term. The globalists, mm-hmm. if you will, it's a globalist organization like the. the the, the United Nations, if you or the Davos is this place where I, I remember what Steve Bannon used to call them the party of Davos, the, the elites that coalesce around Davos and these these meetings. So they give this they give it this kind of almost secret society esque kind of appeal. I don't think it has to be that complicated. I think that these meetings are places where elites of represent the interests of whether they be corporations or nation states they come together they present white papers they present advocacy articles and they try to find ways to coalesce to meet means by which they can come together to advance their interests i believe their interests are the furtherance of capital empire the nation the the, the, the military industrial complex but all under the patina of solving world hunger oh, right. exactly yeah. exactly Exactly. I mean, they, you know, David, you're old enough to remember the, the the conspiracy theories about you know um, the Builder, Council of Foreign Relations, the Builder Bilderberg Trilateral yeah. Commission, all of those, all of those alphabet groups that we used to hear about back in the day. I think Davos is just kind of like the latest maturation or the latest iteration of all of, all of that kind of alphabet soup of various roundtable groups, which did exist. It's not like they were total conspiracy theories, but they were basically just places where people who had a certain degree of access and power meant to coalesce around agendas of uniting their power in the furtherance of their ends. And their ends are generally to promote capital, imperialism, world growth around those things. I think that what Russia and the Ukraine crisis does it legitimizes them as a force of good and that they can now say that this is a crisis in the world that we must now, we must administer a just 
decision to, for humanity about, as opposed to them being parts, partly maybe. Some they the didn't need Russia. That's the thing, though. They didn't need Russia. I mean, Davos has been going on before Russia. The last. Oh, no, I'm not saying they hate. They hate or love either party. I'm saying is that it gives them something to act as if we are the judge. We now must judge how this. This must be right. Dealt they're, they're, with. They're, they didn't need that anyway. But there's the well, well you do have the Steve Bannons, the Trumps, and the Bernie Sanders of the world attacking the these neoliberals and and the the world forum and Russia and Putin give them uh, a way to divert attention away from them and say no these this is the bad guy it's not our economic system it's it's Putin and look how all the good we're doing we're going to spend money on weapons we're I not going to we're not going to feed everybody we're not going to figure out how to get vaccines to nope. third world countries but we're going to save they the world Let's keep in mind the people that speak at Davos are the people that destroyed the world, right? Tony Blair speaks at Davos. Bill Clinton speaks at Davos. Hillary Clinton speaks at Davos. And every so often you get someone stand up and now in the days in the era of the soundbite, there are people that are stepping up and saying kind of more outlandish things that you would ever think of hearing there because you can you can now say some outlandish things at Davos and then get a platform after that or write a book after that. You know, it's it's interesting because was it two, three years ago? Yeah, someone someone posted God bless Rucker Bregman. How did he get there in the first place? You don't I'm not going to get an invite to Davos. So people always forget that these people got to Davos in the first place for a reason, because they don't really they didn't really challenge power. And in the end, they said some things to powerful people about why don't you pay taxes? Those powerful people went, what? And then, you know, that was it. Right. And that was, did, did the world stand up and demand that rich people pay taxes? Right. Or did it go down the, the rabbit hole of sound bites um, that come out of places like Davos? No one really gives that much of a damn about rich people in the, in the ski slopes vacationing in places that we can't fathom right talking about how they're going to handle world affairs and give back some crumbs to the people and to the nations that they've destroyed with their projects right i think we're getting a little we have to wrap it up and thank you for this and i, I love having you on the show both just you've added so much i think we run the danger of being too cool for school by jumping ahead to Davos being evil, at least for my listeners, because unless we explain what Davos is and what they're branding and what they're trying to pass off as doing good, this whole idea of doing good by doing good, the goop, the Gwyneth Paltrow hogwash. And uh, I think when we jump right to Davos is evil, we leave some people behind. I, I don't think enough people know why Davos is evil and what they're selling is a is a trick. Oh, yeah. Uh, don't I don't agree? think people really understand what they're selling, because by the time it gets down to the, to the average consumer, it's in the form of some sort of, uh, like you said, doing good to to do good in some sort of uh charity organization to build more schools in some war-torn country or to give shoes uh, to more uh, Haitian uh, Haitian right. people in Haiti and destroy their entire uh, uh, clothing 
domestic clothing industry. Right, right. To be continued. Philanthro capitalism. Philanthro. Yes. You, and you guys happened? are interested. There is a video, yes. on, the video essay on philanthro capitalism on the This Is Revolution video channel, youtube.com slash This Is Revolution podcast. There's a playlist of all the video essays. Uh, I wish we had more time. Please come back next week. Pascal Robert and Jason Miles are co-hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast. Download it wherever you get fantastic podcasts. And they have a YouTube channel. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Thank David. You. Thank you. Great job. We're so lucky to have them. Love the hat, by the way. We're hat twins. So. Oh, you know what? I overslept today. And I just, <laughs> I, I both, just, both look I, I, I poured out of bed. And, Tom Hanks from Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank <laughs> All right. Thanks, David. Howie Klein, are you there? I'm here. Howie Klein, founder, treasurer, Blue America Pack, lot to talk about. And also the, uh, the author of Down with Tyranny. And I want to ask you a question about Mr. Cawthorn, if you don't mind. I'm just writing about him a few minutes ago. Okay. And Miss, is it Bobert from Colorado? What about Bobert? Okay, so I said that Putin is desperate, he has compromise, and there's stuff on every single Republican in Washington, D.C., and we haven't seen the beginning of what's going to come out against some of these Republicans before the midterms. And you're writing that Cawthorn is threatening to release what he's got. And there's stuff on Bobert, supposedly, allegedly. Are we going to see an avalanche of embarrassing information coming out about the Republicans? And if so, is it coming from Putin? I think it's coming from Putin. And, and why do you think that? I mean, it's just something that you thought of when you poured out of bed this morning? I've been saying this since Trump became president. I believe uh, in compromise. I believe that Putin has been able to get the Republicans to jump through hoops, either through money or compromise. And I think as this war, hopefully as he gets cornered more and more, he's going to, you know, release information about all the Republicans who have betrayed him. Okay, well, I, I mean, that's an interesting idea, David, uh, and I'll uh, look after it. This is the first I'm hearing of that. I just came but up with know. it. What? You, you just came up with it. Yeah, I know. So, so what, I mean, that... if, if anything is possible, uh, you know, the, the, I, but I don't really see Putin's hand in this stuff myself. But who knows? I mean, what do I know? Well, what, what, do, what do we have on Bobert? What does Madison Cawthorn have on his way out? I don't know that Madison Cawthorn has anything on Bobert. I mean, he's but got McCarthy a lot on, has stuff on McCarthy, you say. He has a lot on, on, on McCarthy because, I mean, and it's sort of been out, but the media just has not paid attention to it. And now people tell me, you know, if he talks about it now, McCarthy is just going to say, well, he, he's a known liar who was rejected by his own uh, his, his own voters. But basically, this is, this is the thing. When he, when he made that comment um, about the Republican uh, orgies and coke snorting sessions and all this kind of stuff, 
Um, McCarthy's immediate reaction was to, you know, do damage control. So he calls, he, he and Scalise, his number two, call Cawthorn into the office, not so much for a wrist slap, which it was also, but really to, to synchronize their stories of how to, how to get out of it. And he just uses, you know, classic technique of, you know, uh, misdirection and, you know, well, you know, he saw some, some staffer snorting coke a hundred yards away. Well, what did he have? A big sign that said staff on his head? Mm-hmm. And, and, and there would never were any, any, uh, invitations to orgies and cause on apologies. So they have this meeting, uh, and McCarthy says all this stuff. This is what we're going to do. And Cawthorn doesn't say anything. He just sits there and, you know, looks angry and, and, and depressed and says nothing. And then he, he wheels himself away. And McCarthy goes out in front of the media and tells the media all this bullshit he made up or his, you know, damage control people made up. So then, then what happens is Cawthorn doesn't say anything. He, he, you know, he goes off to the House chamber to vote on nonsense. And uh, the next day, uh, Roger Stone comes out and says he spoke with Cawthorn. Cawthorn ca- called him and told him was, that McCarthy made the stuff up, and he never agreed to any of it. Uh, and he and and he stands by everything he said about. Um, he, he didn't name uh, Patrick McHenry, but it was Patrick McHenry who invited him to the uh, to the to the um, orgy. And he and and he's standing by it. Now, the next day, since McCarthy got that out of him, that was McHenry. So McHenry was slated. Okay, so the Republicans think they're going to win back the House. In which case, McCarthy would go from being the leader of the GOP to being the speaker. Scalise, who's the whip now, would go from being the whip to being the leader. So they need a new whip, the number three position. And it was all sort of set up that that would be uh, Patrick McHenry. He was all in line to be number three. He had already paid a $2 million down payment to the uh, uh, wow. the um, NRCC. And it was all, you know, the money's gone. I mean, and, and McCarthy said, you're not getting your money back, but you're not being the, you're not being the whip. And the next day he withdrew from uh, something that he's been plotting for the last two years. Uh, so anyway, and, and he's, he's a, a real um, ally of McCarthy's. And McCarthy wouldn't have done this to him, uh, but, you know, he didn't want to be in a position where Cawthorn could say, I told McCarthy this guy is trying to get in my pants. <laughs> and McCarthy did nothing. So is this like Hastert being propped up by Tom DeLay? They knew Hastert was a child molester, so they made him Speaker of the House because he's a useful idiot that they have stuff on? Well, I don't know that, that it's the same situation with um, uh, with this clown. It, it, it's, it's, you know, it's similar, but he, I mean, he's really been fighting very, very hard to be Speaker for a very long time. The problem you know, last time he ran for speaker, he it was in the bag. He had it just the way he has it now. And at the last minute, the Freedom Caucus, so the most right wing bunch of um, Republicans, took it away from him. And he's been working ever since then to get loyalty from from these guys, or more likely to give loyalty to these guys. So that now they don't have really 
they don't really love him, but but they know that they can control him. So they're not they're not objecting per se. So as long as Trump, as long as it's what Trump wants, and Trump knows he can control McCarthy. As long as it's what Trump wants, he's going to be speaker. Right. Unless something weird happens, and that's where that was the point of what I wrote is that I think that Cawthorne can make it very very tough for him uh, by getting the media to focus on the fact that um, McCarthy was lying to them. Well, let me read you. Let me read you what you wrote over Down with Charity, which is a great way to talk about what happened last Tuesday and what's going to happen tomorrow. You write Joe Biden won't have Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, Josh Gottheimer, or Kurt Schrader to blame when he single-handedly bungles the student loan crisis, which he seems determined to do. My advice, forget the corroded Democratic Party, back extraordinary candidates who you trust, not a party that has proven itself less than worthless. Forget the shitty Senate candidates recruited by Chuck Schumer, the same guy who recruited Cinema, and put whatever energy you can muster into candidates like Tom Nelson in Wisconsin, Lucas, how do you, I want to I want to make sure I pronounce this guy's last name? How do you pronounce Lucas Kuntz? Kuntz, okay, whoo, uh, of Missouri and Glenn Hurst of Iowa, and so let's look back. You talk about Kurt Schrader; he was defeated in Oregon last week. Your thought? I'm sorry. The thing, the thing with Schrader is this: Schrader, is, I, I think I've said this before uh, to your audience. Schrader is arguably the worst Democrat in the House. There are a few others who, who could possibly have that claim as well, but he's certainly one of the worst. He's the only Democrat who's still in the House. So everyone else who did this uh, was voted out. But right now, he's the only Democrat who voted against raising the minimum wage. Every other Democrat voted to raise the minimum wage. He voted no, the only one. To me, that's enough to kick him out. Um. So he's also, sing, not, not single-handedly, but with, with a few other Democrats who were able to get the whole caucus to withdraw their bill for lowering the price of uh, prescription drugs. So that, that was never voted on because of him, um, uh, along with uh, Stephanie Murphy of Florida and Ann Rice of New York and uh, one other guy, Scott Peters of uh, California. So those four. So anyway, so Schrader was challenged by a, uh, a progressive woman in in Oregon in the in the fifth district. So it's a new district uh, that was half of his old district and half of a district where no one ever heard of him. Uh, and and she's she's well known there. So she so she and it's it's Deschutes County for for people from Oregon who are listening. So she won. 70% of the shoots counting. She just slaughtered him. And in the other counties, it's it's more even. Those are the counties that were in his old district. She's winning about half. He's winning about half. He's winning some of them. She's winning some of them. The problem is, is one of the really big counties had a mistake on their ballot. So all the ballots have to be hand counted. So they're in the, in the middle of hand counting. The people who know how to look at these things and make projections based on the votes that have come in, said in the end, he will have been defeated uh, 53 to 47. 
That's, Schrader that, will have been defeated. Right. Schrader will have been defeated um, by this progressive uh, uh, woman candidate who challenged him. Right. So, so, that, so that, that was really, really good news. But because it, it isn't definitive yet, because, the, you know, the final votes aren't counted because of this hand counting, um, the media isn't making any, you know, they don't know how, they don't know how to process it. Now, in Oregon, you know, OregonLive.com explained the whole thing, and people in Oregon know what's going on, but in the rest of the country, people don't really understand what's going on there. Now, the same day that that happened, there was a very, very, well, there was a bunch of other races in Oregon, but there was a very, very big race that is being bollywood by the media, where um, Summer Lee beat a an APAC candidate. And the reason that he, I say he's an APAC candidate is because he was their uh, recruit. They just recruited some, you know, white Jewish lawyer. Republican, and, uh, a anti-union a, Republican. A former Republican, but anti-union, yes. And, uh, and they put, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much money. No one knows how much money. And I'll tell you why. APAC and uh, Democratic Majority for Israel, they're related, but they're not the same. They come in the last week with the big spending. And, and sometimes it's $2 million or $3 million. And that money doesn't get reported for a little while, for another couple of, you know, couple of weeks till you know every penny that was spent. So, so we know what we know what has been reported before in that race from APAC and from Democratic Majority for Israel. It was about three and a half million dollars. But the last week they came in with even more money. So it's more likely that they spent about five or six million dollars to try to defeat Summer Lee. And because she had such a big head start, now they gnawed into their into her head start and they brought her vote level down. But the, the head start was so big, she was she was up by twenty five points. That in the end, she only won by a couple of points. That's what they can do. So, and, and for example, our friend in North Carolina, um, Erica, Erica Smith, she wasn't up by that much. She was up, but not by that much. And they brought, they were able to uh, bring her totals down by spending millions of dollars at the last minute. And they can just say whatever they want. There's no the the, the justice system that will not take will not hold anyone accountable they can just say anything they can lie so, about erica smith a, they did lie about her they also yeah. claim that she's a republican i mean the same way that they claim that summer lee is a republican so in other words the thing that they whatever their candidate is guilty of right. they try to project that onto onto the progressive they, that's their technique and there's no one to hold them accountable the voters get confused the voters might not think that some of these are Republican, they probably don't. And they might not think that Eric is a Republican, they probably don't. But they just get confused, and they don't know what to do. So it's, it's a, they, they just sort of cross that off. So as, what as, responsibility as to Jew, do Jewish Americans have when it comes to APAC? APAC is a right-wing Republican lobbying group. That has, That's right. What, what responsibility do Jewish Americans have why should Jewish Americans have any responsibility? Well, Most Jewish Americans are not Republicans. They're overwhelmingly Democrats. Most Jewish Americans do not ever support or give anything to APAC. So I mean, don't APAC we... Started out, APAC started out as a bipartisan organization that leaned Democrat. And as time went on, especially once uh, the Likud took over in Israel, they got more and more right-wing, more and more Republican, less and less Democrat. And the Democrats were afraid of them. And one of the reasons the Democrats are afraid of them is because they have been historically able to defeat Democrats 
in very, very blue districts, they, like Cynthia McKinney in Georgia. They brought in, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a shill to, to beat her in the primary. And they, and they did the same thing in, in a, a race in Alabama, where they defeated a, not someone who was anti-Israel per se, but someone who wanted to treat the Palestinians and the Israelis equal. And, mm-hmm. that, and that's a red flag for APEC. So, so what we, responsibility, so we have what we have, as Jewish Americans, don't we have a responsibility to speak out against APEC and say they don't speak for Jews here in America and to instruct APEC to take their paws off our democracy? Don't Jews well, have to speak? No, you and I do, because we we're part of the media. So we, we have that responsibility. We're Jews in the media, yes. But just an average, normal Jew, they should speak out on this? Nah. But they could go to APAC.org, hit the contact button, and say, stay out of democratic politics. They and, could, and it, would be, and it would be nice if they did. And, and maybe but, but, call their congressperson to say you want APAC registered as a foreign lobbyist. Yes. Now, that's a very, very good idea. Uh, they should be registered as a foreign lobbyist, but they, you know, they have very good lawyers and they uh, take precautions so that they won't have to do that. The other thing is I, um, I have a very important post up today. Excuse me, before you more. bring that up, can you just. Well, it's related, it's related to APAC. That's why I want okay, to Okay, but before you bring it up, they crossed this year is the year they really, APAC really crossed the yes. line, right? They started, they started a new pack with millions of dollars, all Republican money, and they're laundering Republican money into Democratic um, primaries. And they haven't done that before in a systematic or uh, in a systematic way. And they haven't done it to the, I mean, the spending, I don't know what it's going to be in the end, but it's certainly going to be more than $10 million. So is this uh, about Israel or is this? No, about, no, it's not. It's a, about no, spending it's not about the Israel. money, right? The, in other words, it's, there's a they lot. They make money from it. Right. Yeah, Explain that. Melman. They take a percentage for right. themselves. Melman is getting is, is rich already, but he's getting richer and richer. Melman is, by the way, is the one that uh, came up with this uh, cockamamie uh, uh, Democratic majority for Israel. That's his operation. He, I don't know if he gets ten percent or fifteen percent or twenty percent, but he gets a large amount of money. He's literally making millions of dollars, and they none of their ads mention Israel. Right. Right. So. Uh, and the CEO of APAC makes a million dollars a year. This isn't about Israel. The same no. way the NRA isn't about isn't about gun ownership. It's about feathering Wayne LaPierre's bank accounts. They 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 get people scared. They're going to take away your guns. They're going to take away foreign aid to Israel, and they get people sending in money based on fear. And they get rich off. There's not so much of that, uh, of their very, very, very small number of donations to APAC. So people aren't doing that. Right. They do it with, with the NRA. Uh, APAC is getting its funds from wealthy Republicans who donate large sums, not, not online people who give 10 or $20. That's not the way it's going there. Their money is coming in large chunks. They've structured their organization so that it can accept large chunks of dark money. Uh, so they're getting donations for 100000 and $200,000, not, not $25. Well, they've, done, they've really, done a good, really they're very, they've done a good trick on, on the American people. They've made it so criticizing APEC is synonymous with anti-Semitism. 
if you want to believe that, fortunately, um, progressives have their own organization called J Street, uh, which fights that. So J Street is, is another Israel-oriented organization, although they are for two-state solution and they uh, do not try to ever demonize or dehumanize Palestinians. And uh, they stand up to APEC. And they've been standing up to APAC more and more effectively for the last few years. It's, it's better now than ever before. Right. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, so what, what did you that, post over down with tyranny? It's, it's, a, it's a story by a member of Congress who, who's asked me to allow him to be anonymous. I already like broke it just now by naming what gender he is. But uh, uh, he wrote the story since he knows him for a long time, because he was in Congress even before... Um, uh, Hakeem Jeffries was elected to Congress. He was uh, he was in Congress and Jeffries was still in the state legislature. He wrote the story about why uh, Hakeem Jeffries is unfit to be a leader of the Democratic Party. He's the person that Pelosi has chosen to succeed her, and um, you know, and he's he's very very one of the big. He, he's two things that that are the most important in his agenda: uh, protecting Wall Street. And protecting Israel. Those are, I don't don't ask me, but that's those are his two big issues. And he started a, a PAC also, which apparently is coordinating with APAC and Democratic Majority for Israel, and some also some cryptocurrency crackpots. And there, and he's the one that's directing where the money should go in terms of going after progressives. He hates progressives with all his heart and soul, and is doing everything he can to defeat progressives. This is someone who, thanks to our friend Mark Pocan, is a member of the Progressive Caucus. He should be thrown out of there in two minutes. It's nothing to do with progressives. And he is he's doing everything he can, in fact, to defeat people that the Progressive Caucus has endorsed, like Summer Lee, the Progressive Caucus endorsed right. her. And, he, and, and he's working to defeat her. He, I mean, he, he worked very hard to defeat her. It failed. And that and that's who he is, and it's it's an interesting story because it's not Howie writing this stuff. Although you'll think, wow, it sounds just like what Howie is saying. Right. This is uh, this is someone who has a perspective that's different from mine because he knows him personally. He's had lunch with him. He's had dinner with him. He's gone out drinking with him, and he knows the guy and talks about the real guy. And I was shocked that he agreed to do it. It took me uh, quite a long time to get him to uh, get him to agree, but he's done sexy. Uh, before without me ever, you know, talking about who he, who he was. So he trusts me. And, uh, and, and and he did it. It's quite an interesting story, and I really, really recommend that people read it. It went up this morning at around 9 a.m., so it's right there on the front page. Anyone can see it. They rewrote the maps in New York City. And, in New York City. In New York City. So Bill de Blasio is now running, I guess, in southern... Brooklyn, uh, not Southern, not, not, uh, not Southern Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Southern Manhattan. It, it, right, it's the it's, the, uh, it's Lower Manhattan plus uh, Park Slope and uh, and a couple of other areas of Brooklyn. So it's it's a very very blue district. It's you know not a place where Republicans have any chance. But there's a problem. The problem is that there are a lot of good Democrats who are running there. De Blasio is running there, but also. Um, Mondaire Jones. Mondaire Jones, who was kicked out of his district by uh, um, 
someone as bad as uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the head of the DCCC. Um, come on, show me in. Maloney? Sean Patrick Maloney. Sean Patrick yeah. Maloney, yes. So Sean Patrick Maloney move, uh, is, is in Hakeem's district. Hakeem moved to uh, this open seat with no uh, incumbent in Manhattan, Brooklyn. The problem is, is that there's a, a state legislator there named Uline, and I don't know how to pronounce her last name, Neo. She, she's a Taiwanese-American. She, so it, and it, it, that district includes Chinatown. Uh, as well as another area, which is the uh, the second biggest concentration of Asian Americans in New York City, so so this district is very um, is a good place for an Asian to run, and this particular woman, Uline, U uh, Y U H hyphen L I N E Uline Miao, uh, she's one of, by far one of the most radical members of the state legislature of the state legislature. She's really, really, really radical. Uh, so it's very, very tough. And my, um, you know, my, my artist is supposed to wait for me to say, okay, give me an endorsement meme uh, for, um, you know, and I tell him who we're going to endorse. So, and he makes the meme. Today he sent me one for her and one for Mondaire. <laughs> he said, I'm sure you'll be endorsing one of them. But well, not to Blasio. No, not to Blasio. You don't think... Why? Why? Well, De Blasio is, is okay. I mean, I have nothing against him. But these uh, these other two are movement progressives, and uh, I'm more interested in a movement progressive than in, than in a woke liberal. Okay. Uh, I mean, De Blasio is good. I mean, you live in New York. You like him? I like him the same way I love Bernie, because Bernie ran on Medicare for all to the exclusion of most things. And de Blasio ran promising universal preschool and he got it. And I think universal preschool is pretty effing important. So, yes, well, I agree with you. And he, and like I said, he's good, but you know, Mondale has proven himself to be one of the best uh, new members of Congress. He's been in, he's a, he's a freshman who is great. And then uh, Uline is quite amazing as well. Uh, and wow, she have a following. I mean, normally when I put up a post, you know, I'll get like a couple of hundred people interacting with it. I put up a post about her and eight, 800 people <laughs> jumped on it immediately. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, people, um, people really, really uh, feel strongly about her. She's, uh, very, very, very anti police brutality. That's her thing. That's right. one of her things. I didn't say that's her thing. It's one of the things. So she's someone worth looking into. The problem here is that um, uh, one of the worst members of the New York State Legislature lives in the district as well, and that's Simka Felder. You know who that is? Uh, was he, was he, go, tell me, uh, I think, yes. Go, is he, um, were there accusations about Simka? Well, there were lots of accusations about Simka, but I'm not sure what you're talking about. But he's a he, Simka. The worst accusation of all is that he's a Republican, and he right. only runs as a Democrat because his district is in Brooklyn in the Democratic district. But no one ever votes for him except for Hasidics and uh, and Republicans. That's it. So when you run for the legislature in a in an all Hasidic district like he has, he does, he doesn't have to he doesn't have to worry about being a right winger, but in this congressional district, he, of course, he couldn't win if it was him against 
de Blasio or him against Uline or him against Mondaire. But with him against all of them, that could cause a problem. I'm right. a little bit worried about that. So, and like I said, in the legislature, he was elected as a Democrat. He caucused with the Republicans. He voted with the Republicans. He voted as a Republican and sat with them. And then he saw the writing on the wall at one time, and he, he said, and he apologized. He said, take me back to the Democrats. And they said, screw you. No, we don't want you. And then he said, I'm not going to rejoin the Republicans. I, I, I'll just sit by myself. And then eventually they said, okay, you, you, you can come back. But he's still probably the most conservative Democrat or one of the two or three most conservative Democrats in, uh, in the state legislature. Terrible, terrible guy. And, and he hasn't declared that he's running, but he's probably going to run. And there's also another woman who represents the Lower East Side in the Assembly. I can't remember her name. Um, she's a uh, Hispanic woman, um, and she's probably going to run also, and she's also really good. So, and then there's a whole bunch of other people running. I mean, there's all sorts of people running. I mean, you know, there are like crackpot um, uh, vanity candidates who are running, and people. There's one guy who's running in like right. four or five districts all around the country. I mean, there's all there's all sorts of crazy people running, but there's also some really really good people running, and that that's a problem. I mean, I mean, the idea of Mondaire having to go up against De Blasio and Uline and this other woman whose name I can't remember. That's that's uh, that's pretty problematic. I mean, I don't even know what I would do. Right. What I will do. Uh, before. I'm sorry. Do you live? In, do you live in that district? No, you live uh, north, right? I live in. Yeah, I think Maloney is still. It's Nadler, Nadler versus Maloney. Right. That's the that's the sort of both Upper East Side and Upper West Side. Right. So we've never had that before because right. New York has been, you know, uh, hasn't been horizontal districts. They made they did that. Throwing the two of them into it. Do you know that there's only one Jew that now re- has represents New York City, and it's Nadler. He's the only one. I was shocked when I read that today. I mean, I grew up; it was all all Jews, right? <laughs> and, that, right. and now he's the only one left. Right. Before you go, what are you looking at for Tuesday's elections? What 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 is your what is what is it Cisneros? What are you most concerned about? Well, well, yes, there are a couple of things. I mean, I think that uh, Jessica Cisneros has a very good chance of defeating uh, Henry Cuellar, who's a very uh, right-wing blue dog, the only Democrat in the House who's still anti-choice. You know, absolutely anti-choice, doesn't make any bones about it. And she's last time there were three people in the race, and two of them were progressives, her and, and another woman. The other woman has endorsed her. And then there was Cuellar, and he was he got less votes than the two of them combined. So if the other woman's candidates turn out for, uh, in, in a good proportion, turn out for um, Jessica, then then Quayle will be defeated. Meanwhile, you have Pelosi yelling and screaming how horrible the Republicans are for being anti-choice and, and yet endorsing against uh, Jessica and for Quayle. I mean, you know, she, she's, her, she changed her name to Hypocrisy Pelosi and forget right. about Nancy. Maybe the, uh, the that's, that's an important race. There's also an important race in Georgia. I mean, I, you know, there obviously there are a, a bunch of Republican races. Also, I'm not even getting into, but there's an important progressive race in Georgia as well. We're in the suburb just below the uh, the airport, the Atlanta airport. There is a um, sort of like a, a Walking Dead blue dog 
also very Republican oriented. He he endorses Republicans. He donates to Republicans. He's more Republican than he is a Democrat, but he's an African-American in an all Democratic district. So he calls himself a Democrat. His name is David Scott. And he's being challenged by the best of the Bernie Kratz in Georgia, um, who was Bernie's guy there. And his name, he's a state senator. He was named Vincent Fort. And he had run for Atlanta uh, mayor with Bernie's um, backing, uh, but he didn't win. And now he's challenging David Scott to this congressional seat. And to me, that's very, very important district as well. They, uh, Vincent, I've gotten to know pretty well. He would make just an amazing uh, member of Congress. Absolutely amazing. Also, you know, uh, an African-American who understands all the important issues, not just from the, pro- the progressive perspective, which of course he does, but also how it affects um, really poor people, uh, especially minority groups. He, the guy is so smart and, you know, really, really inspiring. Whereas David Scott is certifiably senile. He's the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee. The whole committee has asked Pelosi to remove him, and she refuses because, of course, she would never do anything against anyone who's old and senile because the, all of her friends are. And uh, she, 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 you know, she just leaves him in there. And, you know, there have been... YouTubes that have gone up of him, you know, not being able to put two words together and run a committee chair. And it's, it's like a joke. And everyone thinks it isn't a funny joke. Right. To be continued. For more, go to Down With Tyranny. Read Howie Klein over at Down With Tyranny. Howie Klein, founder, treasurer, Blue America Pack. Donate to the Blue America Pack. They support progressive candidates. And well, more. actually, we, we ask people to donate to our candidates, not really to the PAC. Right. I mean, if they want to donate to the PAC, lovely, wonderful, I'm happy to get the money. <clears throat> but we're, what we always ask them for is to donate to the candidates because the candidates know how to spend the money better than we do. I got to tell you something, Howie. When I found out APAC was going after Erica, <laughs> Erica Smith, yeah. the gloves are off. That they would well, they go after her. Erica yeah. Smith... Horrifying, absolutely horrifying. They, and they're going after every progressive. I mean, you know, they were laying low against uh, um, Jessica Cisneros until all of a sudden this week. Right. All of a sudden, boom, $200,000 worth of smear. But to go after Erica Smith, that is. Well, I agree with you about that. You know, I mean, I, I am very, very fond of her. That that. They, they made an enemy. Good. David Feldman Good. is now the enemy of APAC. Good. A, and, and, APAC and don't, forget, don't forget Melman. Don't forget Mark Melman. Uh, yeah. They, you don't want me as as an enemy, APAC, because I back down very quickly, and then you're going to feel guilty. You're going to feel... <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's how I win. Oh, I will guilt you to death, right, APAC. I love you, Howie Klein. Thank you. I feel guilty right now because I know that we're keeping your uh, your next guest waiting. Thank you. We'll see you next week, I hope. David? Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if you hear me, but you're gone. Hello, hello, hello. Oh, there you are. Yeah, I, I was just saying I'm feeling guilty now because I feel like we're, we're keeping your next guest waiting. Well, uh, this is David Cobb, uh, Howie. I got to say, hey, uh, David. You, you, you make good use of that extra time. Uh, so, uh, thanks for, thanks for that. One of these days I'd love to 
to, to be on together and we could uh, uh, we could explore some of our agreements and disagreements. But I always appreciate what you have to say. Okay. Great. Thank you, Howie. Thank you. Bye, Howie. Bye, David. Bye, David. His sound goes, it like right, like clockwork, his sound goes. Well, this is great because I want to talk about fascism. Yale professor Jason Stanley has a new book out called How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. He also has a new article in The Guardian, and it's titled America is Now in Fascism's Legal Phase. Here to talk about fascism, how it works, and America entering the legal phase of fascism is lawyer and Green Party nominee for president of the United States, David Cobb. Hello, David Cobb. Howdy, Feldo. And for those of you who are watching the video of it live, I'm going to show you the sport the shirt that I'm sporting, I'm going to ask uh, Feldo to read it out loud for the recording and for those who are only listening to the podcast. Can you read it, Feldman? Yes. Fascism, the merger of state and corporate power, usually together with extreme nationalism. So, friends, I want to start with a recognition that uh, the fascist philosopher and authoritarian Benito Mussolini famously said Fascism more properly should be defined as corporatism because it merges the economic power of our national corporations with the military might of the state. And remember, uh, Mussolini, for all his horrors, was also a philosopher. He was a fascist proponent, proud of it, and talked about merging large transnational corporations, and remember, this was in the early stages of industrialism and the beginning of uh, the corporate state with the military might uh, of the nation. And I would argue that we need to have clarity that fascism is not merely totalitarianism. You know, Feldo, I, I, I was one who I used to say to people when they would casually toss around fascism, like, for example, you know, white racist cop murders uh, a, a black kid. Horrible murder. Needs to be, uh, you know, fought against. It needs to be called out. But that's not necessarily fascism. That's a brutal murder, to be sure, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not fascism. Uh, or, you know, my racist uncle at Thanksgiving, or actually I had two racist uncles at Thanksgiving, making a, a, a horrible anti-Semitic or racist or sexist comment. It's horrible, it's racist, it's anti-Semitic. That's not fascism either. Christian Smalls protesting outside Amazon, getting arrested by New York City police. So there you go, closer to fascism. Why? Uh, because it, you're beginning to see a state apparatus making a political judgment call around what Smalls is doing. And that's why I'm so glad that you've uh, invited me uh, to have this conversation because I, Remember, I said I used to be the one to say, stop casually tossing around the word fascism. It's a powerful word, and it should only be reserved to talk about it. Fascism 
is a political economic system. It requires a mass movement to be able to actually institute it. And it's time to start saying the F word in public. And that is, we are actually witnessing this Republican party as a fascist political formation. And again, you will never hear me say something good about Ronald Reagan's policies or George Bush's policies. I'm not one of those, oh, remember the good old days. Screw those guys, right? Their policies were abhorrent. They were absolutely anti-union, anti-worker, anti-black. Like, you know, I'm not going to romanticize them. But they were different. Like what we're seeing today is fundamentally different. You're literally seeing the big lie. Like if Goebbels could only imagine what Trump is successfully doing with the lie that Trump somehow got uh, uh, cheated out of an election. Like it's been litigated up and down. Every secretary state, every place, they haven't won a single one of their recount uh, lawsuits, right? Like it is objectively without any, any doubt at all, Trump lost that election. uh, And now 70% of people who self-identify as Republicans believe that Donald Trump won the election. The big lie is working. We are no longer in a place where you can literally even have a debate with people about what objective reality is. Climate denialism, COVID denialism, now electoral denialism. Like we are literally occupying two different worlds and one world is such that the ideology is so perverse and so thorough, literally that any objective data or evidence that you present is simply denounced as fake news. Right. Like you like. So we like literally somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of the American people, we cannot even have an honest conversation because we can't even be like we don't even have a. uh, Well, it's a it's a a, yeah, it's a cult and it's arguing religion. You're it's it's like if you believe that Christ is your Lord and Savior, God bless you. There's nothing I can do to to talk you out of that. If you believe Moses, you know, heard directly from God, this is the the Torah. These are the laws. There's nothing I can do to talk you out of that. And Correct. if you and if you believe Trump was cheated out of an election, to our new listeners, you, as you've pointed out, do not fetish fetishize as you say, electoral politics. You do not, you you believe in voting, you believe in running for office. You ran for office, you were Ralph Nader's campaign director in Texas when he ran for president, but you don't think it uh, everything begins and ends with politics. With it, electoral politics. Electoral politics. But this is something uh, different. You're, you're saying we've entered a, a legal phase of fascism. The, what was the enabling act? You're a lawyer. What was the enabling yeah. act with Hitler? Listen, uh, remember that that uh, Adolf Hitler actually uh, used the electoral process as well, and the Beer Hall push, and like so, and the so, legal system. Remember, he wasn't exactly. against. 
He wasn't against the law. Hitler. How about that? Was and not against the law. Trump. I'm sorry. And neither, and neither is Trump. And that's what really needs to be named. And that's why I appreciate you know this program, David, because you are able and willing as a host to have uh, conversations with Howie uh, Klein about particular races. And I, I got to say, I just can't not say as a Texan, like, go Cisneros, go, right? Like, like uh, Cuellar is a uh, a corporate Democrat of the worst order. The one thing that how like, the one critique I have about Howie Klein is he didn't paint a bad enough picture of just how disgusting uh, Henry Cuellar is. You know, he may have a D next to his name, but he is an absolute corporate whore. Uh, it's not just around choice, uh, which is absolutely true, uh, but in every way. Well, I mean, uh, uh, Jessica Cisneros promises that she would vote to eliminate ICE. Yes. There you go. Exactly. What we have is a clear and unequivocal choice between a true progressive uh, and the, the corporate shills uh, of the neoliberal Democratic Party. And it's worth pointing out that Pelosi is campaigning hard for Cuellar, right? Like, like th this is one of those uh, gut check, which side are you on moments uh, right. uh, in this election. So, so go, Jessica, go. Again, I'm not a Democrat. I'm a Green and proud of it. But whenever I see a candidate like uh, Jessica Cisneros standing up against the neoliberals, I say, go, girl, go, or go, man, go, or go, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, non-binary person, go. What, whatever the right pronoun is, that candidate is the real deal. And I don't fetishize elections, but I also engage in them. And that's why we have to be clear that in the election that's coming up, it is absolutely critical that uh, either Donald Trump or DeSantos, it looks pretty clear that that's uh, who, uh, it's gonna be one of the others, right? But what I'm getting at is we have to unelect or, or we have to defeat fascism at the ballot box without being told by the neoliberal Democrats what the contours of the movement actually are, right? This is, and it's a, it's a delicate thing to watch, but I, I am willing to engage it to say, defeat fascism and neoliberalism. Neoliberalism literally creates the conditions by which fascists are able to flourish. And the last thing I'll say is this, we have to be clear about something, my friends, and that is the leadership of the Democratic Party, the neoliberal true leadership, for all their rhetoric, they would rather see Trump in office than Bernie Sanders as president. And that is where the real, uh, like the, the gloves have to come off. We have to have clarity, we have to have courage, and we have to understand that we are fighting an enemy. And the enemy, they, they are fascists, and the neoliberals are our enemies too. They are not our friends, right? Are neoliberals better than the fascists? Well, of course. Like, you know, it's not as acute. It's not as horrible. But are they good? No. Well, I they think it's the banality. It's the banality of evil. It's Jessica Schumer. And by the way, to my listeners, get used to the name Jessica Schumer for the next two weeks, because I'll be <laughs> I, I'm not letting up on this. OK, so no, I know again, who Jessica Schumer is, Feldo. I, I'm going to mention her week. on the on the hour. 
Jessica Schumer, Harvard Law's Jessica Schumer, daughter of Senate Majority Leader and Democrat Chuck Schumer, lobbyist for Amazon. And that's the banality of evil that you go off, you get your Harvard degree, and then you go get your job working for a lobbying group and you don't get your fingernails dirty. Christian Smalls is on the streets. They're, you know, GoFundMe has to raise money for all the union organizers over at Amazon. They're getting arrested. But Jessica Schumer, Chuck Schumer's daughter, is lobbying on behalf of the people who are breaking unions here in America. And she goes home oh, every night. Way, by the way, speaking, and I'm so glad that you continue to lift up Smalls, I hope that folks uh, realize that vice presidential nominee, Representative Timothy Kane, excoriated Smalls I have and defeated Amazon. Let me, let me, let me play it here. Oh my God, if you've got it, tee it up. I, I love you for bringing this up because uh, this is, uh, where is it? Uh, I was going to play it today uh, again on the show. And of course, I don't have it. Where is well, it? I, while you look for it, what I will do is take over the mic uh, to allow Feldo a chance to play it. And I will let you know that what you're about to hear is an example of just how craven the neoliberal Democrats actually are. Uh, what, you'll, what you're going to hear is a clip uh, from Kane. Remember, Kane, who was the vice presidential nominee with uh, Hillary Clinton against Trump, uh, what you're going to hear is Kane bootlicking for Amazon, uh, undermining uh, Christian Smalls, who is a god, who is a hero, right? Yes. Like just straight up a true American right, here, hero. Here we go. Here we go. Hit it. First clip. Thank you for setting that up. But I don't think Amazon is an organized criminal syndicate. It definitely is. Um, the way they treat their workers, sir, with all yeah, due respect. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that that's your opinion and you are as sincere in stating that as I am in saying that I think that's a, a vast overstatement. Uh, this is you want me to keep here. Let me. Keep, I mean, look, it just goes from bad to worse. You go as long as you want. OK, to so he, here's what this is. I This is like unbelievable. So. This is what he this is the this is evil. This is Jessica Schumer, Chuck Schumer evil. Tim Tim Kane, here we go. This is this is how this is evil. This is evil. My my view is coming from the way I come from. I come from a very pro-labor household. Okay, he comes from a very pro-labor household. Well, that's good, isn't it? He's in his rumpled shirt. Why do you come from a pro-labor household, Senator? My dad ran, was management. He ran an ironworking shop that was organized by the ironworkers. Whoa, 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 whoa. Your dad was management. Well, why would management be pro-labor? Why did you come from a pro-labor household if your dad was management? And my dad was on the uh, ironworker pension fund as the management representative. See what he did? His, his effing father, his effing father was management, but he got himself on 
the 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 the, the union's health care fund and uh, and the pension. That's why they're pro labor. And this is what this is. This is this is why he's the enemy. This is why and he is a class enemy. And we need yeah. to actually have clarity to understand when. And hello, Dr. Fraud, when Dr. Fraud and myself and others talk about class, we are not merely talking about socioeconomics, right? That, like we are talking about a classification of the owning class versus the working class. Who owns the means of production? Who owns privately the ability to decide what gets produced, how it gets produced, who, how much you get paid, how it gets distributed. The fundamental decisions about how our political economy operates is not democratically decided. It is privately decided. And we are left to argue at the margins uh, around you know cultural issues. And believe me, I argue those cultural issues as well. I don't discount them. I am no class reductionist. I believe absolutely uh, in the need to dismantle white supremacy, the need to dismantle heteropatriarchal power over systems. I believe absolutely uh, in the need to confront those evils, but it's interconnected. We make a mistake if we say, okay, well, capitalism is okay as long as women and people of color are able uh, to reap the benefits of it. Because I got news for you. Like, like, uh, like Oprah Winfrey is not representative of black women in this country. Right. right. Like, like, like there is a class analysis that unless we working class people are willing to understand that we have to unite around and beyond and through race and gender and sexual orientation, those things are absolutely important. And it's not enough because otherwise they will continue to subdivide us. Divide and conquer is the only thing that the capitalist class have going for them. Sadly, it keeps working. That's why you will constantly hear me talking about the need to unite the class around a recognition of the intersection of white supremacy, settler colonialism, heteropatriarchy and capitalism. These are interconnected power over dominator systems and structures of how the society operates. And it's why, and it's not even the 1%, by the way, it's the 0.01% uh, who are actually in control of this world. And believe you me, that they are absolutely comfortable with fascist rule and dictatorship in order to maintain their power. That's the reason that Professor Stanley's new book is so critically important. And if you're not a, like, like I, I can't help it, I read books, right? But I did drop into the chat. If you're not the kind that actually reads books, there is a phenomenal essay in The Guardian. Well, first I, of all, bring, bring him on the show. Bef but I wanna play this for uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud because this is Senator Tim Kaine, and this is the personification of the banality of evil. This is a Democrat who claims he's working for unions. And this is what he tells Christian Smalls. This is what he tells Christian Smalls. This is how you identify evil. This is evil. 
He just taught us growing up unions and management. He's talking about his, his father, his piece of shit father, who was management, but somehow got on the union health care plan and pension. He just taught us growing up unions and management are not shouldn't be fighting. It should be a team. And I, I hope that's what we're I hope we're kind of shooting that we would want to be a team without without, you know, owners kicking workers around and without employers being demonized. I mean, Democrats, if we if we want to love jobs, we got to also work with those that that are building companies that create jobs. Wow. So I, I, like, I got to say, like, like the management does not create late wealth. They do not create jobs. Workers create wealth, period, full stop. That's what you will learn in any macroeconomics class, right? Labor creates wealth. And the this, this line that you're hearing from Kane is a neoliberal line. You know, it used to be, you used to only hear that from Republicans. I just want to point out again, this is the leadership of the Democratic Party now. So like like this is what I say. Absolutely. We have to defeat fascism at the ballot box. You know, Trump and DeSantos, uh, et cetera, are absolutely horrific. But we cannot allow the neoliberal leadership of the Democratic Party to set the terms for movement demands, because if we do, we will lose. Last clip. Last clip. Also, I just have to tell you, that team is making money for the capitalists. Right. right. working on a team to make money for the people at the top. It's quite a team. Last clip, because it's so outrageous. Christian Smalls, for those of you who don't remember, was a, a, a manager at a, a warehouse on Staten Island. COVID struck, and he saw that they didn't have adequate safety protocols people were getting sick people died he complained he got fired and stood up for his workers unlike jeff bezos okay mm -hmm. in his defense of amazon tim keen hillary's vice presidential nominee said you know he likes Amazon, it's a good company. And he says the customers love Amazon and that Christian Smalls should acknowledge that the customers love Amazon. When you hear this, keep in mind that Christian Smalls got fired because he wanted his workers to get PPE for COVID. And this is what Tim Keene says to him. And the customers and the customers. And customers that, that use Amazon, they use it because they think it's convenient. And during the pandemic, when they were at home and they didn't want to go to some places because they were worried about their health, Amazon usage went up. We can't wave a magic wand and make customers suddenly not like Amazon. So I, I would say um, I, I just don't see it. To say that's a Christian small, burn in hell, burn in hell. The customers love Amazon because during COVID, first responders from Amazon were able to deliver their toys to them. And he says that to the face of Christian Smalls, who saw his coworkers get sick. Some of them God. died from COVID. That's a Democrat. That's fascism, yes, that's David Cobb. It is indeed. It's very important to know that they could have the same kind of service if it were run as a co-op. Of course, that, that's irrelevant, what he's saying. 
It is. And Dr. Fraud, and I, I do have to jump, but I, I, I will end my segment once again, always uh, loving Dr. Fraud and what she brings. Because remember this, you can go to any economic analysis and what you will find every time there has been a honest assessment comparing worker-owned cooperative businesses side by side with quote, traditional or orthodox businesses, do you know what you find? That you find higher productivity, you find higher job satisfaction. In every way on the objective economics, worker-owned cooperative businesses are not just better uh, morally, which they are, by the way, but they're actually better on every single business matrix that you look at. Like workers stay longer. They're more productive. Like uh, they pay workers better, like because they're worker owners. But every matrix that you look at, worker-owned cooperative businesses are better businesses. Right. David Cobb, thank you. Reach out to Yale professor Jason Stanley. See if he'll come on the book. David Cobb, we love you. Thank you. We also love John Bowes. Thank you for your super chat earlier in the show. Feldman's rant. Hi, y'all. Feldman's rant today is what I needed. Thank you, John <laughs> Bowes, in in the super chat earlier today. Thank you for that. Joining us is Dr. Harriet Fraud. She's a mental health counselor, hypnotherapist, and she's a founding member of the feminist movement and the journal Rethinking Marxism. She is the host of the Capitalism Hits Home podcast, and we welcome you back as always we love you let's talk about replacement theory yeah although don't don't forget to say i have a radio program interpersonal update on wbai wednesdays at 2 30 and i am a member of a three-person collective to produce it's not just in your head a podcast great Replacement theory. Talk about replacement theory, because I have a lot of feelings about that. We live in New York City. I'm just going to put this out there. Mm. Uh, One million undocumented Americans are allowed to vote in our local elections. Mm -hmm. I think it's like 25 percent of our city is undocumented. I think they should be allowed to vote. I think they should collect social security because they give into they pay into social security. Uh, all four of my grandparents, you know, were immigrants. I think they should be allowed to vote. The country would be better off if more and more undocumented Americans could vote. Is it disingenuous, therefore, for Democrats to say? I don't know where the Republicans got this idea that Democrats are, you know, want immigrants coming into this country because they vote for, for Democrats. I mean, it didn't it, it's racism. Replacement theory is racism. Tucker Carlson is a POS. But mm -hmm. there is a movement in this country to give undocumented workers the vote. And they are voting. Yes. However, what replacement theory is, is a, a cute little fascistic displacement. White male workers in America have been displaced. 
between mechanization, computers, fast jet travel. Factories can operate overseas very well with cheap labor. So those union people who were white males, mostly, who fought and got better salaries can be shafted. They can be, listen up, replaced. They can be replaced by machines, by robots, by cheap Asian labor, Bangladeshis, Indians, Chinese. Robots. Robots. They have been replaced. And it's a very cute fascist displacement of the capitalists and their media to let those people feel they have been replaced by foreigners, by black people, by any people of color, and by women. No, we've had to, women have had to flood into the workforce to compensate for men's salaries being drastically cut when their jobs were displaced, sent overseas, robotized, computerized. It's not uppity women. It's women forced out of the home into the labor force. You know, that's half the labor force is now female. That was never true before white male jobs. And the best jobs were reserved for white males in our racist, sexist nation. But they their jobs were replaced by capitalists. And that's quite a trick. It's like in Germany, getting people to think the Jewish international conspiracy, which is what uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and others think as well, are trying to displace and replace white men. No. Capitalists. Are you there? Dr. Harriet Fraud, you're you're frozen. Uh, okay. Well, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And as we wait for uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud to rejoin us, we have a question from Nancy. Would we have a baby formula crisis if we had generous parental leave and a society amenable to nursing by default? Formula is a huge business, but nursing is more convenient, much cheaper, healthier for mother, baby and environment. It's decentralized. Supply automatically increases and decreases to meet demand. I don't hear anyone talking about how breastfeeding is better, although we have to account for the situations where formula is the only option as for about as many as 12 percent of new mothers. Well, I would assume a couple things on that, Nancy. Uh, the ruling elite doesn't want mothers breastfeeding. They want them working. It, they don't want to give working mothers parental leave. They, they want them to uh, lose money by dropping the babies off at daycare and using formula. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, okay, we're still waiting on Dr. Harriet Fraud. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com 
and sign up for my newsletter. That newsletter comes out every Friday now. It's a recap of the week. Plus, it includes an invitation to office hours, which we have every Friday night at 8 p.m. So if you would like an invitation to office hours, you can get one by going to my website and signing up or just sign up for the newsletter, which is a recap of the week. We look back at our podcasts and we have timestamps so you can watch the shows in the order you wish. Every segment has a specific time code attached to it. And if you get my newsletter, you just click on the the segment that you want to watch first and it takes you right there. So go to davidfeldmanshow.com, sign up for the newsletter. I think you get a gift. I think we've been curating old episodes and we send some uh, some treasures out to people who signed up for the newsletter. Everything on the website is free. We have 13 years of shows. It's all free, but they're not curated. It's just the, you know, 13 seasons, one after the next. And there's some stuff in there that, you know, you have to wade through it. I can't do it for you, but, uh, some of the people who work on the show have been going through old episodes and finding little uh, little treats, and we're sending those out as gifts. Hey, oh, hi, I'm Dr. Fraud is back. I got disconnected. I don't know why or how, but, but whatever. you're back. Dr. Harry Fraud rejoins us, and we were talking about replacement theory and yes. the trick that the Nazis played on the German people and that Tucker Carlson is playing on the American people yeah. convincing uh, out of work, angry white people that it's not Tucker Carlson's people who are taking away your jobs. It's uh, yeah. migrant, yeah. immigrant women and children are taking away your jobs. Right. Rather than the corporations that outsource their jobs, right. mechanize their jobs, robotize their jobs, all to save money for themselves. And then took the vast billions that they made overseas and invested them in American elections and replaced their voices with corporate voices in the pay-to-play American political system. That's the replacement. And it's a very sneaky trick that they have done to replace that theory and displace people's anger onto the other victims of that anger and onto the other victims of lousy jobs at minimum wages. Yeah. It's no, it's obscene. And it's obscene that the, unlike many other capitalist countries, we don't have a media to balance the lies of our government. They've gone right along. They depend on the ads from the capitalists. It's a much more subtle way to get people to do what you want more subtle than an authoritarian pronouncement is to make it cost so much money that you daren't offend those with so much money. And therefore, replacement theory has been allowed to flourish. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that if you're doing something wrong, blame somebody else. 
on, on this show, we tend to go, you know, Edward Bernays working with Freud figured out how to tap into the subconscious to trick people yeah. into voting against their own self-interest. This has been going back since the days of Hammurabi. Who yeah. stole the bread? He stole the bread. Don't buy exactly. it. I don't have the bread on me. He stole the bread. And he's and he's giving everybody the plague. Doesn't take Edward Bernays to teach somebody how to make that move. No, it doesn't. I mean, he had a new angle and used it for advertising. But really, this whole displacement is very important. If you can displace people's anger onto those with whom they could ally to overthrow you, you've really made quite a coup for the capitalists. And so whenever they exist, they pit people against one another in order to interrupt the mass of people that would overthrow them. So you're saying Freud would call the displacement theory displacement? Yes, absolutely. It's classic displacement, where right. because you don't, although that's an internal thing, right. but because you don't want people to look at what's actually happened to them, you displace it onto another enemy. That way you divide the working masses, which could unite and take over this country. Right. And it's, you know, it's a neat capitalist trick that has fooled people in the past. So they've fallen for fascism, turned on the foreigners, turned on the poor, turned on the Jews, whoever it is. Right. Rather than uniting together. And right. those divisions have been played up wherever capitalism is dominant. Right. Right. It's. You know, they call Trump a merchant of chaos, but yes. what he really does is he divides and conquers. If you work for Donald Trump, you never know where you stand. One day you're on top, one day you're on the bottom, one day somebody who's beneath you seems to have more influence with Donald Trump. He keeps everybody guessing their, their self-worth. That is what corporate, that is the business model. It is, so they don't unite against him. Right, right. And you see that in families. You see wow. if there's a patriarch who, who has some kind of power, he fears as he gets older that he's losing the power he has over his wife, grandchildren and children. He plays everybody against each other. Right. You get more money, you get less. Right. You the chosen one, you are not. Right. It's, that's what Fred Trump did, indeed. Yeah. You know, it's divide and conquer. And a nation divided cannot stand. And a, a nation, that is what Lincoln said. And it's true. And that's why we have to fight that. And abortion is the same thing. You punish women for having a Me Too movement. And at the same time, you divide half the population from the other half. What does it take for us to wake up to this? Because it sure feels that we're either fatalistic, we have no control, or uh, we know this is happening, but what's the use? I mean, what, what will it take for Americans to take back our economy? Because it really is taking back our economy. It is. It totally is taking back our economy. And I think what it is, is a unified movement where 
class transformation, that we are no longer a nation of a few employers and many employees who are at the mercy of the employers. It's a labor movement that's a radical labor movement like Christian Smalls, when they won, he said it's the revolution. That's right, when the mass of working people unite, it's the revolution. And so you have progressive labor, you have feminists, you have the sexual liberation movement of all trans and every other possibility, you have Black Lives Matter, you have climate extinction all together. That's what won in Chile, so they have a socialist government in Chile this year. That's what won in Argentina, even though the Pope flew there himself to get them to vote against abortion rights, they voted for them because they had that alliance. The indigenous people, the labor movement, the feminists, this climate extinction movement, the sexual liberation movement, all of them under the umbrella of a socialist government that allows all people and the planet to exist together. We've been kicks out the capitalists. We've been brainwashed here in America into believing that because of globalization, there's nothing we can do about the economy, that we are powerless over uh, jobs going overseas and imports and exports. But the truth is our government regulates what products come into America and what exactly. products go out of America. That's what treaties are. That's what trade treaties are. And that's what tariffs are. What's very cute as a little illustration is the crisis of baby formula. Well, they only had four producers. One of them, Abbott, killed a couple of babies and infected many others. So they had to withdraw from that market. Meanwhile, the United States has a tariff on the superior baby formula from Europe, which makes it impossible for them to sell it. Otherwise, it's, it's protectionism. It's, prote it's protectionism for American corporations. And that's why babies are going without their formula, because Abbott Labs is now retooled, having poisoned and killed many babies. They're back in business, getting huge business from the government being protected by our government. Right. by imposing tariffs on the superior formula from Europe. Right. It's a capitalist plot. However, it's never presented as such. It's supply chains. It's something else, like the prices. Well, the prices are set by the employers who are having a price party. Mm -hmm. and there are no price controls being imposed at the top. Even Nixon did that, but not Biden. And therefore, it seems like a mystery that the prices are going up. Well, gas is a great example. Oil companies for which gas is made have record profits. Hello? That's because they can raise the prices. They're right. making up for whatever losses they might have had, plus making a lot more by rising prices, by making food too expensive for people, by stopping baby formula because they have a corrupt crooked Abbott labs that poison people and they won't allow foreign companies to compete that have superior baby formula. It's, it's obscene. And Americans 
are learning this. They're learning this because they notice they're being cheated on the job. That's why 20 million have quit. They notice because people are unionizing and winning all over this country. Right. You know, a client of mine went out to a restaurant with his boyfriend, who's a very rich man and very bossy and inappropriate. And when the waitress came over, he said, I want my salad first. First. Remember, first. And then my mate, do you get that? Do you get that? And she said, I won't serve you. Good. I, I won't even bother to serve you. My manager will come to your table. And the manager said, do you realize how hard it is to get a good waitress? Do you realize how important her labor is? You can't treat anyone that way. I mean, labor is feeling its oats because we labor was essential during the pandemic. And now they all can be replaced and they're inessential. Oh, no. And so that, that there is change going on here, and people can understand that. There's change on the sexual frontier. With the threat to Roe versus Wade, millions of Americans were in the streets, from middle schoolers to old people. And I loved that poster. I was there, too. There's a poster of women's reproduction system, and it says, stop the steal. It was mm. all over. Right. That... People are starting to awaken. What we need now is unity, and then we'll win. Right. Just like David says. Yeah, yeah. Did you read that piece in the New York Times about Frank Langella, the octogenarian actor who got fired from a Netflix shoot because he violated the orders of the intimacy coordinator and he touched a woman's thigh, and they were fully clothed? It's interesting how men... It's like Al Frank, Franken, though, you know, really. These minor things. Oh, they oh, 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 oh. I think sometimes if you touch a thigh erotically, you should be out. If you brush against somebody's thigh, you shouldn't. Okay. Well, I was going to, uh, in this article in the New York Times, they bring, they, it was a female columnist for the New York Times, and she that. compared Al Franken his iffy accusations. There's a laundry list of women who step forward accusing well, Alfred. Well, that's important, just like it's important today in the Southern Conference, a Baptist conference, the biggest Protestant denominator. They have discovered a long list of known sex abusers whom they don't punish while they punish their report, the women who have been abused and try to shut them up because they want to make more money and avoid liability. I mean, right. this is- But I can't believe Al Franken has you convinced that these were iffy accusations. Well, I did think so. However, I am glad if they weren't and other women- Google, Google CNBC. I will. Google I will. CNBC. Here's a list of accusations against Al Franken. And you tell me how iffy these were. And I know one of the women. Okay, well, look, if one person says it, you don't know. If many do, you do know. But he has, he and his Harvard buddies circle the wagon in The New Yorker, Jane Meyer and David Remnick, and they, and they all, there's this article that's become the, 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 the definitive uh, apology for Al Franken on how he got mistreated. And you, but if you really read it, you know that he was a serial harasser. Well, if he were, was, then of course he should be out. 
because we've got to get them out. We've got to get them out. It's not a crime to wink at the way the biggest denomination in the Protestant church has and the Catholic church as well. This is, you know, this is an obscene thing. And as women are standing up, men are being outed. And I think part of the abortion punishment is punishment for me too. You're going to out us? Well, we're going to control your reproduction. We're going to take over. And it's up. And I was very encouraged at the demonstration. They were about a quarter male. In the old demonstrations I was in in the 1960s and early 70s, they were all women. All right. Let me just uh, take a moment here. This is from CNBC. This is a list of all the women who are willing to come forward and accuse Al Franken. Tina Dupuy, writing in The Atlantic, says that Franken touched her inappropriately at least twice. An unnamed former Democratic congressional aide told Political, Politico that, that Al Franken tried to forcibly kiss her after he taped a radio show. And uh, Franken said, it might, it's my right as an entertainer. Franken. Yeah. Uh, a woman described as a former elected official in New England told Jezebel that Franken tried to give her a wet open mouth kiss during an event in 2006. Stephanie Kemplin, an army veteran, says Franken put his hand on her breast during a USO tour in 2003. Uh, uh, two Whoa. other unidentified women told the Huffington Post that Al Franken grabbed their buttocks at separate events in 2007 and 2008. Franken suggested to one of the women that they should go to the bathroom together and finish what he was doing. Uh, it goes it goes on and on. But That's these okay. Harvard assholes circle the wagons for Al Franken and say, oh, he was uh, run out of Washington. Bullshit. He had he could have had his day in front of the ethics committee, but he was afraid that more women were going to come forward. Al Franken is a serial sexual harasser. If not, that's, some of that stuff is assault. And these these goddamn Ivy Leaguers circle the wagons in The New Yorker and spin it like he's the victim in all this. No, that's an obscene thing, and they should not do it. I I'm sorry, Doctor Fraud, but you of no, all people, a founding mother, something that's very you're, important. You're the founding mother of women's liberation, and when you oh, fall prey to this Ivy League marketing yeah. to rehabilitate this pig, Al Franken. No, I'm glad you brought it up, and I am. I stand corrected because one woman is you don't know. But a group of women, you do know. And that's, and that's the tip of the iceberg. Because he sure wouldn't go he wouldn't go before the ethics committee. He chickened out. Al Franken chickened out and he wouldn't go before the ethics committee. He resigned. If somebody accused me when I was married of sexual assault, because grabbing a woman's breast is sexual assault and I were innocent, I don't care what happens to the Democratic Party. I'm going before the Ethics Committee to check to, to clear my name. name. Of course, Al Franken is guilty. He sure is. Now that you told me that he is guilty, I had the wrong information and I, I should never trust Harvard, you know, really. But, and I know uh, one of those women. Yeah, well, sexual assault is sexual assault, and it has to be stopped, whether it's by all of these lovely, holy pastors or the holy fathers of the Catholic Church 
or the Congress or the House of Rep, you know, or the senators or anyone else. Right. Totally. Right. It's out. Right. Sorry, I, I, I wasn't I don't mean to. It, no, you're right. Because this woman in the New York Times, correctly. this woman in the New York Times yesterday wrote about Franklin Jella and she repeated the lie that Al Franken was driven out of office on iffy allegations. There's nothing iffy about 10 women that we know of. No, of course not. That's not iffy at all. And that that kind of excuses and that kind of propaganda is evil. And I agree with you. Yeah. Because we need the unity of all of us under a banner of socialism with every group included together. And we will win. And I feel more hopeful than I have for a while because people are standing up like they never did before. Right. They're so, pouring into the streets. They're joining unions. They're having strikes. What did I read? There are 320 Starbucks that are organizing. Yeah. Into unions. That's amazing because they're all over. Of course, it's an enormously rich company. Mm -hmm. And in spite of their attempts to suppress it, it's out there. This country is changing. Yep. But we need a unified movement to win. And I do think we can have it. And I think we can win a unified movement that has class transformation at its base. Because the primary contradiction here is this division between these two classes, the employers and the employees. And of course, there's the lick spittles who are right underneath the employers who might identify with them. That's fine. But those are the two, those who produce the wealth and those who appropriate and distribute and consume that wealth. And so, you know, people are catching on. I was really moved by Chris Smalls and by that 8,000 member union that went against they're being lectured to in forced lectures and all the propaganda and everything else. And they were organized by people who knew them, people who worked alongside them and were popular because they looked out for each other. That's very important. You know, the good news is because uh, we were told last year union membership dropped by $250,000. It's 250,000 uh, members. members. Uh, lowest in 100 years. However, the NLRB is reporting something like a 50% increase in the number of shops petitioning to go union. So and it's spreading where it never did before. The Chicago Art Institute is organized. Wow. The whole of colleges. What is that? Grinnell, the whole college is organized. Right, the, 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 the wealthy docents can no longer give free tours. Exactly. And they have, um, now they have the grad students and the tech assistants at all of the California schools are organized. These are people who didn't use to organize. Yeah. And they're organizing now. Museum workers are organizing so the, this is across the board, this awareness. We are workers producing wealth for other people. I'll tell you right now, I will never step foot in a New York City museum. Over. Never. For another discussion. That is a money. New York City museums are money laundering operations. Yes. They, they, they really are. Yeah. And uh, and. 
I think I went to the, I, I was standing in the David Koch, I was about to go into the Met two, three years ago, and there were, I saw the Sackler wing and <sighs> the David Koch wing, and it says, you know, recommended $30, but pay what you want. And I was with somebody and I, I said, here's a nickel. And, and that was and, generous for Sackler. And I said, $37 billion from Oxy. Yeah. Ask Sackler or the Koch brothers for the rest. And I went in and the person I was with said, you, you're, you're a disgrace. You're really? Disgrace. I was thinking, go for it. The Sackler wing at Guggen, the Guggenheim was closed down because people had a die-in and there were hundreds of people on the floors pretending to be dead saying we're Sackler victims. Right. And one of the well, biggest one of the biggest makers of tear gas, I think, uh, is behind the Whitney. It, if you go to a museum and it's in New York City, when you're visiting, it's pay what you want. Give them a right. nickel. Give or nothing. Or say, I don't want nothing. to pay. Since it's what I want, you get nothing. Go to yeah. one of your corporate sponsors. Go to the museums, just pay a nickel. Dr. Harriet Fraud, thank you. I, I'm sorry I lost it on Al Franken. I oh, just, that's fine. I got educated and I, that's all to the good. Yeah. I appreciate it, David. I really well, do. Well, this has been well, something. I need to be created, you know, corrected. It's terrific. Thank you. I've lost friends over people defending Al Franken. Well, you won't lose me. And, I see and, you. And, and there's been a, there was a conspiracy of silence about Al Franken before he ran for Senate. And oh. now a lot of stuff came out. And the the boys club is circling the wagon and rehabilitating his image because shouldn't he have shouldn't he be allowed to run again? I mean, did, didn't he pay? Not if you're a liar. Not, not if, if you're, you're a, a liar and a sexual predator. He's not just a liar. He's a liar and a sexual predator and he deserves to leave. Yeah. And a coward. Oh. And a coward. And a coward, too. That's right. You wouldn't go before the ethics. Committee. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Frank. Thank you. I'm going to get some coffee and some water. Listen to It's Not Just In Your Head, Capitalism Hits Home. And Dr. Fraud is on WBAI here in New York every Wednesday at 2.30. Thank you. I am, thank you. Thank you so much. I am going to play some Mike Steinel to calm down, and then we will be back with Wonderful. Professor Adnan Hussein. Great. Oh, that's not going to happen. Hang on. Walking 13 miles on every ship. Oh, my God. Not a shitter in sight. Lifting 20,000 pounds a day. All right. That don't seem right. I need coffee. Saving plastic bottles. All right. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to try to do this one more time and then we'll bring on uh, Professor Mike Steinel. Those TV. I don't think I can do it. Hang on. Uh, let me try one more. It's one of those days. All right, here we go. Can't do it on our own. We need to stand. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Woolite and a little bag of weed. 
got a soul bellow novel Cause I really like to read I'm traveling light I'm a creature of the road Got no regrets Gave up my postal code And cigarettes I'm doing much better With a touch of Tourette's I'm traveling light Just need a clean room In a Motel 6 Not too close to downtown But not out in the sticks I need my pen and teller Magic kit So I can do my tricks Got my favorite pillow Which I call Mr. Fluffy Four kinds of allergy pills In case I get stuffy A pound of Epsom salts Cause my ankles get puffy I'm traveling light I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket Chill, I'm traveling light. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A 50 tequila in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender. I'm traveling light. And my expensive wrinkle cream My Emmy statue For my self-esteem I'm traveling light I got my podcast mixer And a fancy microphone My exercise bike So I have a place to hang my pants My very valuable Hummel collection A menorah made of fish heads A Christmas tree I like to keep my options open Don't you know A shoe shine kit A skill saw A crossword book large supply of mechanical pencils. A year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read. Welcome back to the Al Franken Sexually Assaults Women Show. 
as if, as long as the New York Times is going to continue to say things like he was run out of office because of iffy charges from women, I'm going to rename my show the Al Franken Sexually Assaults Women Hour. And I invite Al Franken to uh, ask me to stop calling him a uh, a man who sexually assaults women. I've, I've read about it. I've heard about it. Well, I'm looking forward to try and bring on some guests uh, to the <laughs> Al Franken assaults women uh, show. It's the it's the new show, the Al Franken sexually assaults women hour. Look up CNBC Al Franken and see what see the list of women who came forward right before he stepped away. But the New York Times still says the allegations are iffy. We we believe the women, except, you know, if it's Amber Heard, right? If we like anyway, uh, you're listening to The David Feldman Show and follow us wherever you get podcasts. It's time for Professor Adnan Hussein, host of Guerrilla History and the Mudgeless podcast. And let's talk about Central Asia and how the fighting in Ukraine is affecting it. Please. Oh, sure. Uh, and thanks so much, uh, David, for uh, having me on again. Um, uh, yeah, I just I was interested because um, uh, there are lots of ramifications, it seems, uh, to the conflict in reshaping global politics, particularly in Asia. Um, and so I saw this report by somebody affiliated with or who posts on uh, Juan Cole's informed comment um, about how many of the Central Asian republics um, are responding to the security situation with the withdrawal of Russian military attention to its invasion in the Ukraine that is, it seems possibly destabilizing, um, you know, whether that's a good or a bad thing is hard to say, but it's it's destabilizing uh, the situation in Central Asia, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan and the Taliban and also um, some of the jihadist groups that are still operating in various ways within Afghanistan, including Islamic State, uh, Khorasan uh, province um, division um, that has made some attacks on Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, some of these neighboring countries. And um, now are these countries were they once you say part of the Soviet Union or they were? Yes, yes, uh, they were um, Soviet uh, socialist republics. These were the Central Asian ones, so Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. Um, these were all part of uh, the Soviet Union. Originally, they were provinces that had been kind of conquered and subordinated and were part of the Russian Empire in the starting really in the 19th century um, when there was an expansionist period of the Russian Empire. And so uh, they came, you know, after the revolution, there was a question about what to do with these, um, how they should be administered. 
And so they were kept in the new Soviet Union, but they had their own republics. And so they, you know, were presumably had some autonomy and were governed. Um, but more autonomy, part- I, I would think more autonomy than, say, Eastern Europe uh, in the Warsaw Pact. I, I, I would assume. I'm not so sure because they are actually part of the Soviet Union as opposed to separate states affiliated through a military alliance within the Warsaw Pact. Yeah. And so, for example, uh, you know, collectivization, which is a process uh, under Stalin of agricultural reform and amalgamation of holdings and administering them in a new way and removing them from this sort of feudal property uh, control of the landlords, uh, both in Russia and this also this process also happened in these Central Asian republics that are big bread baskets. I mean, did we see did we see tribal I don't want to say tribal warlords, but what was did we see uh, imposed famine on them the way we saw it in Ukraine? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not I mean, firstly, whether it was imposed or not is also subject to some debate because there were famines happening across the area as a result of war and disruption of uh, agricultural production. But, you know, it's become a narrative in the West and as part of Ukrainian nationalism to blame this on Stalin and the Soviets as an active policy. But this is debated among historians. you know, but yes, so the, but there was certainly famines and lots of people died. And that happened across this this area. Um, and also, um, you know, there was the, the, these areas of Central Asia, particularly the Fergana Valley, which happens to be where uh, my mother's uh, ancestors come from, uh, were known for two things, silk from ancient times and, of course, the Silk Road. Um, which was a trading route that connected China to uh, other parts of Eurasia, particularly, you know, um, uh, you know the Middle East and then uh, into Europe. Um, uh, so that was a big silk producing area. And the other is after the uh, civil war that disrupted cotton production, many other world regions uh, developed uh, cotton growing, one of which was Uzbekistan. And so, you know, it, it transformed into these cash crops, which perhaps also this monoculture as part of the world economy, um, you know, helped make it much more vulnerable in the future to food shortages and food crises when you had these problems. Um, I'm looking at a map right now of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Russia isn't really up against Afghanistan. No, it doesn't border Afghanistan. But during the Soviet period, of course, you could say that it did, right? Right. But now there are three Central Asian republics that were formerly part of the Soviet Union that do have uh, borders uh, with it. Um, So Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and I believe Turkmenistan um, have have borders with, with Afghanistan. And so there's a lot of concern here. Um, These countries are part of a military alliance with Russia um, that is a collective security treaty organization. So CSTO, so something very parallel in some ways to NATO and these other military alliances. Um, But they, uh, 
you know, have kind of relied on a lot of Russian support um, to keep these borders secure. Um, and uh, now what's happened, oh, it's great that we've got a map for the for viewers on on YouTube, is that, uh, you know, now um, six months or eight months on, um, you know, the Taliban are actually uh, threatening uh, Tajikistan and some of these other countries because a lot of the military hardware like uh, Afghanistan's air force, such as it was, which was all, you know, us equipment and us trained pilots. Um, they left when they fled after the Taliban's uh, very quick uh, conquest of most of Afghanistan and us withdrawal. Um, they took a lot of this military equipment, these planes and so on. Um, to Tajikistan and uh, the Taliban are demanding it back. Uh, so there's a lot of tensions that are going on and Russia normally would be kind of the guarantor um, of supporting these, these uh, republics and helping them. And in fact, doing joint military exercises and so on close to the border. Um, and that has, that military support has had to be withdrawn and redeployed to um uh, Ukraine, and it appears that uh, the Taliban are taking advantage of the kind of vacuum um, to press their uh, interests and their advantages. So, when you look at some... when you look at Central, it's it's really useful to see a map of this. the The proximity to Iran, to Afghanistan, to Turkmenistan, then Central Asia. Mm -hmm. If you were to look at Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan. Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. are are they primarily Muslim or are they, what is their? Yeah, they are. Well, they're, they're part of these, um, uh, several of them are Turkic uh, peoples from the steppes like the Mongols. They're, you know, this is the historic homeland of the Turkic peoples here in kind of inner Asia. So did and the Ottomans are, bring them Islam? No, it happened much earlier. Uh, they brought actually. they brought the Ottomans Islam, maybe. Uh, yes, exactly. Is that the Turks, uh, the West Turks migrated further west into what we think of as Persia and the Middle East. And even before they arrived in the generation or two in the 11th century, uh, the one major grouping of the West Turks or the Oroz Turks uh, was the Seljuk uh, uh, dynasty. Um, they had already converted to Islam by the time they migrated slash invaded uh, central Islamic lands of Persia, Iraq, uh, Ana Anatolia, and so forth. And they came as... Uh, you know, conquerors and established their own dynasties. And ultimately, those groups that settled uh, Asia Minor and the Anatolian Peninsula eventually established some border principalities of some minor houses managed to rise to prominence, one of which was, you know, the sons of Usman in the extreme far west of Anatolia. And most of the early um, uh, territories of what would become an empire, the Ottoman Empire, that's Ottoman just means, you know, basically over related to Osman. That's where they get the name for the dynasty. The sons of Osman were really um, across the Bosphorus Straits in uh, Rumeli um, or in the, Bal uh, in the Balkans, basically in Europe. 
Um, and it was only subsequently after they built up a kind of border principality uh, that they managed to extend their rule further east into Anatolia. And it was only by 1516 that they conquered areas of what we think of as the Arab Middle East. So Egypt and Syria and Iraq and so on. Uh, right. So originally the dynastic uh, forebears were of the Ottoman Empire were from Central Asia. Um, now, of course, the situation is that Turkey is sort of this preeminent, um, you know, uh, uh, country that has this geopolitical significance and importance. It's part of NATO. It's got a fairly large-ish economy. And these countries that came out of the Soviet Union and established themselves in the 90s as independent um, republics um, uh, needed a lot of economic development. And in some ways, Turkey was uh, uh, kind of the uh, trying to do a lot of business and be a leader of a kind of right. pan-Turkish uh, sort of community. Um, there's Where one, does China um, fit into? Is it the Belts and Road Initiative going through Central yes, Asia? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in China, like this was very important <laughs> during the initial uh, invasion of Afghanistan that China, Russia, and these new Central Asian uh, republics or newly uh, independent Central Asian republics um, established the Shanghai Cooperation Council. Uh, which was a trade and, you know, not just an economic, but was also a kind of political alliance where they agreed that they would not host no country that was part of the uh, SCC would host foreign military bases. And so it actually was quite difficult. The U.S. had expected that it would have bases from which to launch attacks in support of the Northern Alliance in the Northern from Tajikistan and Uzbekistan into Afghanistan. But this wasn't um, actually very possible to do because uh, of the of uh, the other geostrategic regional powers not ag agreeing uh, to it at the, at the time. And so China definitely has huge influence. Both Russia and China are, of course, if you look at who's uh, uh, next to these countries, are the ones that um, these countries have the most trading relationships with. And the kind of Belt and Road Initiative, as it was first called, uh, was first called the One Road, One Belt uh, Initiative before it expanded to a much more global, the Belt and Road, uh, was something that really built upon the ancient Silk Route that went across from Eastern China, where we have the Uyghur peoples, another Turkic right. people in East Turkestan, as it was and uh, they're sometimes Muslim. known. Yes, they are Muslim. Uh, Kyrgyz is, you know, the Kyrgyz, the Tajiks are actually a kind of Persian, are a Persian speaking people. So they're not these Turkic uh, nomads, but now these populations are very mixed, of course, over hundreds and thousands of years. But the Uzbeks are a Turkic people. Obviously, Turkmen is a you know, kind of not even a particular tribe or, or tribal group name, but is sort of the category of the nomadic Turkic tribal people were known as Turkmen. And um, the Kazakhs are, you know, uh, also a Turkic uh, people. So those are majority Muslim uh, um, countries, although they do have particularly Kazakhstan has a very substantial Russian minority that obviously was um, 
something that was built up over the course of late czarist uh, kind of policies for administering these territories that had come under the Russian Empire. And then, of course, during the Soviet Union, there was huge transfers of populations, which is why I mentioned that, uh, or I may have mentioned that during the collectivization that took place in the late 20s and early 30s, you know, my relatives, for example, were, you know, some of them fled to Afghanistan, which is where my mother was born, and others, um, you know, were taken and relocated to Ukraine, wow. as, as it happens, just as Crimean Turks, um, which is a different Turkic tribal group, the Tatars, um, the Crimean Tatars, um, were relocated, you know, there was a series of conflicts, and they were allies at at certain points with the Ottomans, but eventually the, um, the czars, uh, you know, there's very famously, you know, the uh, Crimean wars that, uh, you know, the charge of the light brigade, perhaps people remember that Tennyson poem. It refers basically to series of conflicts that were taking place in Crimea. Eventually these Crimean Turks were, uh, many of them were relocated to, you know, Uzbekistan and, and, and Kyrgyzstan. Um, so there was a lot of transfer and mixing of populations, and that is partly what has created some of these tense kinds of relationships you see all across the former Soviet Union is when you have these collapses of empires. They leave kind of uh, certain um, ethno-national uh, communities in territories where they are now minorities, but they were part of a ruling kind of community or a dominant community. And that creates, you know, all kinds of conflicts when these new national units are trying to establish a kind of national culture um, with historic resentments against um, the population that once dominated and ruled them who are now a minority. Great. Let, let's uh, thank you for that. I'm going to take the map down and put my shirt back on. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I like to put a map up so I can just uh, be shirtless. Let's talk about uh, Colonel Hassan Sayad Kodiari. He is an Iranian mm-hmm. uh, colonel in the Revolutionary Guard who was killed by gunmen on a motorbike in Tehran. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was he part of, is it, is it the Quds Brigade? What, am I it appears so. I mean, of course, um, these what is things the, are- What is the Quds Brigade? <clears throat> well, that is just an elite uh, kind of force of the Republican Guard that um, is partly the outward facing kind of, uh, um, you know, maybe sort of a French legion, you know, type of um, uh, force that works with allies, um, sort of like uh, perhaps, uh, you know, special forces, basically, you would you would characterize them as something like U.S. special forces that are the forward operating elite um, commandos that try and run, you know, you know, insurgency, you know, operations and links and help Hezbollah help, you know, kind of uh, Syrian government uh, and certain of the groups in Iraq. It's it's basically um, something like a special forces, I think, right. uh, for for Iran. Why, so obviously why was, a lot. They, they say he was killed by 
Mossad, Israeli agents? That's, yeah, that's the allegation. Um, now, of course, uh, well, what they said was um, they blamed it on a global arrogance, which is the particular way in which um, Iranian uh, nomen- political nomenclature designates uh, U.S. and Israel. Um, and uh, so they were suggesting, you know, that it was uh, either the U.S. or Israel. But there's been a series of um, assassinations like this and typically by people on motorbikes um, just making a sudden strike. And there was, of course, some nuclear uh, scientists um, that had recently just some months ago or about a year ago uh, had been assassinated. Um, And this has been going on apparently for about a decade that there have been um, these assassinations. And um, so I was kind of wondering, I mean, I would love to talk with uh, Professor Juan Cole about what he thinks is going on here, um, partly because there's a long history to it in the, over the last decade, but also whether there's something that's changing. Um, and I wonder if the fact that the Biden administration has not really resolved the situation regarding the Iran nuclear deal, if this has opened up the possibility for continued or further kinds of attempts at destabilizing both the nuclear program, but Iran's military um, uh, forces, particularly those that work extraterritorially or at least have links and contacts with partner groups and allies in the Middle East more broadly, that this would be of strategic advantage to Israel and the U.S. And um, it just uh, seems to me that this could turn into something quite unstable. And um, while, uh, you know, the Russians are really kind of kind of tied up in Ukraine. One thing that has happened is some of their support for other regional allies, including Syria, has also had to be withdrawn, is that this opens up, just like we were talking about Central Asia, that there's possible destabilization. And I want to say that I think in some ways there are parallels between these jihadist forces that have been um, a historic uh, a proxy or, you know, of the U.S. in attempting to destabilize other regional powers. Likewise, the withdrawal of Russian kind of support and involvement in other parts of, say, the Arab Middle East is opening up perhaps more opportunities for asserting geostrategic advantages there as well. Uh, And that could heat up conflict because when you at least had the Russians sort of providing intelligence support and um, air cover and various things to some of these governments, things had to stay in a kind of stasis. But now um, we might see increased conflict add to that, that this, um, you know, upcoming year, we will see the shortfalls in the wheat and other grains uh, that are produced in Ukraine and Russia. That has historically had um, serious consequences politically in the Middle East, where there are so many price supports for basic uh, staple commodities like bread. And there have been lots of bread riots when the government liberalized and put it into market kind of pricing that there were lots of riots and destabilization in the Middle East. So 
I would say we're looking at a kind of the first signs of possibly bumpy, you know, renegotiations of the situation in in the Middle East over the over the next year or so. There's going to be famine because of the war in Ukraine. Yes, there definitely will be huge shortages. Um, Are they talking about that? I think especially in the Middle East. The Middle East especially was dependent on uh, Ukraine and Russian uh, wheat wheat supplies. Are they talking about that in Davos tonight? Or are they just talking about defeating Putin and getting as many weapons as we can to Zelensky? Unfortunately, I think um, really accounting for the actual consequences of continuing this war are not on high on the agenda. We've commented so many times that there just seems to be in the global Western kind of uh, corporate and political establishments, um, very little emphasis in promoting a kind of peaceful diplomatic resolution of any kind. Um, And I think as a result, these consequences are, as has typically been happening under kind of neoliberal capitalism, is they smash up these societies, you have imperial wars, you have you know, global restructuring, uh, you know, um, that has led to poverty and all sorts of inequalities, uh, famine and so on. And then you send in the NGOs to do cleanup work uh, to you and know, create debt. Allow, yeah, create debt, allow people bare survival. You know, this is what these NGOs, um, you know, really uh, do is that they kind of make it tolerable for people to just survive, but there's no building of a collective project of flourishing at a social or national level. That's not the way in which these smaller organizations, they're, you know, work. Um, uh, but taking the state out of it um, in these um, global south uh, uh, um, societies means that you get local piecemeal uh, uh, projects that achieve bare survival rather right. than, you know, some attempt to really sta- raise the standard of living through universal kinds of programs and policies to bring development. Um, and so I think that's, um, sadly, I think, um, the Davos elite are are not so concerned with it because the system is basically that you just have this other alternate international NGO type economy right. that is the aid economy um, that also, again, like it's very clear that's, you know, 70 percent or more of these aid funds end up going to these institutions and the primarily European and North American employees with a few local, you know, brought in usually at a more subordinate level, but there's this whole other economy that, um, um, you know, of the foreign aid sort of world that is parallel in many ways to the military economy. The 40 billion of aid that is going is principally going to, um, line the pockets of U.S. arms, you know, industry specialists and private security and private, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, you know, private companies that provide security services and technical, you know, support and make arms and so on. And you have that kind of parallel working on a global level. Before you go, I'd like to talk about Robert Reich's piece in The Guardian, Robert Reich, former secretary of labor under Bill Clinton. I want to bring in Peter B. Collins, 
can you spare 10 more minutes, Professor? Oh, Hussein? sure. Okay, because and, this is worth... And apologies for going late. Oh, no, no, no. It, it's, no, no. It's always, it's always my fault. And uh, joining us is Peter B. Collins, Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. Go to Peter B. Collins for a treasure trove. Is, oh, is he not here? I don't see him on the panel yet. I see oh. two Joes in Norway. Okay, hang on. Okay, oh, that, we'll, we'll continue until... Oh, here he comes. Oh, there he just is. arrived, David. Peter B. Collins joins us. He is a Bay Area... I introduced you before you showed up. Uh, I'm going to throw you a curveball, and I don't mean uh, the CIA uh, spy in Iraq. Uh, Robert Reich has a piece in The Guardian that I want Professor Hussein to talk about. It seems to me we're getting to a point where we have to ask people, do you believe in democracy? We take it for granted that all of us believe everybody should be allowed to vote and within reason the majority should rule. That no longer seems to be a given, does it, Professor Adnan Hussain, here in America? Well, I think globally it's, um, you know, not quite the assumption that, uh, you know, we thought uh, was a settled law, as it were, or part of the consensus. I mean, I think we're seeing from very in various ways uh, ideas of liberal democracy, particularly in multicultural or multi-ethnic multi-religious societies under serious uh, attack. And so that's really, I think, where the pressure is, is that uh, there are various populations. Uh, we were just talking about the collapse of empires leaving or stranding kind of ethno, national or religious minorities in new nations. Um, you know, the U.S. is a very different kind of situation because its multi-ethnic population was formed in a different sort of way. But there are nonetheless um, many uh, conservative uh, pressures on um, democracy. You know, there's all these ideas uh, out there of this being a republic and that that's not necessarily a democracy. I've heard this argument on the right that, um, you know, that, and that the Constitution really does in some ways enshrine that there are privileges. You know, there were you know, property uh, requirements um, in all of the states at the time. And of course, uh, black folk um, who were enslaved were counted towards, uh, you know, uh, legislative representation without actually being able to vote. And so there is a kind of a history. They'd look to that and say, it never was meant to be a democracy. It's a republic. And um, that means that there are other priorities than purely, um, you know, one person, one vote. Um, right. And, and what we see, and Robert Reich was talking about the way in which um, this kind of what might have seemed like a very fringe attitude on the extreme right in certain, you know, dominionist, Christian dominionist circles or white supremacist circles is now moving into the mainstream because of the patronage of very powerful uh, billionaires who are you know, promoting these ideas, providing all kinds of support, giving it a platform, financing, financing it. Um, and so, you know, he's concerned very much about the consequences of this undermining of democracy. I guess my one concern with this is that it's 
it's easy to see um, the anti-democratic sentiments of the extreme right. Um, in the case of Peter Thiel, he's the one that he spends the most time talking mm-hmm. about as, in terms of the billionaires who are supporting these kinds of views. However, what he doesn't talk about is the increasing way in which there seems to be less investment in uh, democracy from the perspective of the corporate expertise PMC control in the neoliberal side of our ruling class. Uh, they also have much less of um, they're you know also explicitly anti-populist um, and you know so it may not be that they want to disqualify people from voting but they definitely do not want decisions made by government to be in the hands of you know people in a democratic sort of way and i think if we want to really confront uh the authoritarian you know uh changes that are taking place at all levels of society and of politics we have to confront both of them together as anti-democratic and really stand for genuine democracy which includes not just electoral politics and preserving people's right to vote and um, you know, having elected officials be responsive to the people, but we also have to have economic democracy. So the kinds of ideas uh, uh, that you know, are popular on this show with some of your uh, guests on Thursday, uh, the Minsky and Kay uh, group of uh, an economic bill of rights uh, that you really don't have meaningful political and social democracy without economic democracy as well. And that's something that neither the neoliberals, uh, you know, and corporate Democrats, uh, nor these far right uh, uh, extremist uh, views that are being supported by Peter Thiel actually acknowledge and understand and support. You know, when you get the PMC, the professional managerial class, together and they have a couple of drinks and you ask them, do you believe it should be easy or hard to vote? Most of them will say it should be hard. Not everybody is smart enough to vote. We should, right? Well, that's right. I mean, why, you know, why is it that we make it so difficult? You know, I mean, we want voter access, um, you know, in Georgia and famously, you know, received all this attention, but that was from Democrats, but that was purely a partisan uh, kind of position. They haven't done the things that would actually make it easier to vote across the board. By the way, good news coming out of Georgia, though. Uh, Pre-voting is higher right now than it was in 2020. That people Mm, are- Yeah, people are coming out for the- for tomorrow's primary in record numbers. So the soul to the polls, souls to the polls is was on Saturday since they shut down Sunday souls to the polls. The black churches said, okay, we'll do it on Saturday. So there is some. uh, That's positive news. That's good. Yeah. Well, people, you know, when they feel something is under threat, they might actually come out to fight for it. And so you know, people have started to realize that there is a organized campaign to disenfranchise them. And that can only be reversed by resistance collectively. So that's positive. Yes. To hear about. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein, host of the Mudgeless podcast, as well as Guerrilla History, which everybody should listen to. Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And thank you so much. 
I really, I know how busy you are. Thank you. Thank you. Peter B. Collins joins us. You're very busy, and so thank you for coming by. Uh, well, thanks of, for putting your shirt back on, David. Thank you. Yes. Well, you know, some, it's hot here in New York, and uh, and uh, it, it warmed up in California too. It's getting getting summer like. I, I want to talk about these important elections on Tuesday, but first, do you get a sense that people who look and sound like me, for example, may not be so keen on everybody voting, that there's an elitism among uh, certain types of Americans who think you should only vote if you're smart enough. Absolutely. After the Jim Crow laws were uh, essentially negated, through the Voting Rights Act of 65 and its enforcement up until the Roberts Court eviscerated it, and I pegged that around 2014. Uh, you know, there were literacy tests. To, literacy tests. Yes. But we've now replaced that with other barriers to voting. And the aggressive passage of state-level laws since Trump lost in 2020 is stunning. And these are, uh, you know, solutions to non-existent problems. The only benefit, uh, even in a state like Texas, which was solidly red, uh, they nevertheless blocked early voting, drive-through voting in Houston. Uh, many of the efforts to uh, accommodate voters during the pandemic, which were viewed as too favorable to Democratic, uh, capital D, uh, participation. So uh, we are losing uh, the representative democracy, the public participation uh, at many levels. It still remains uh, at the local level and in blue and purple states. Not, not every blue state. I, I don't want to uh, oversell the Democrats, but at least here in California, um, the you know, Republicans are not treated like second class citizens the way Democrats are in other particularly, you know, Republican dominated states. And so, you know, I in a minute want to talk about these two sheriff's campaigns that I'm working on in two different counties here in California. And one of them is Professor Hussein's uh County, Santa Clara, where San Jose and Silicon Valley are didn't, located. Didn't Michael Savage have a kid who was running for sheriff or was sheriff? I don't think he ran for sheriff. I think he ran for the uh, state assembly. Oh, okay. That's what I recall. And he's the one who made uh, a million or a billion on that uh, energy. Ener energy drink. Rockstar. Yeah. 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 So... Uh, and, and the thing that we also have to put into context is that our uh, influence on the process, which is always sold as democratic, uh, has been curtailed uh, over the history of this great country. And we know that uh, direct election of senators didn't start until the 1920s. And so the, the framers, in all of their wisdom, didn't basically trust the people. And the 
long terms and the uh, other benefits that accrue to members of the U.S. Senate have produced a form of minority rule where because the Republicans uh, and you have to give them credit for the long con that they ran. But uh, ever since Reagan, they have been building density at, at the state level. And this is what allowed them to control redistricting uh, to a large degree in the current cycle and in the 2011 cycle. And they really uh, haven't apologized for it. The other part, and uh, I'm planning to share with your listeners and viewers today, David, some of the secrets of modern campaigning that rely on all of the data that have been collected by the tech giants in order to uh, super target individuals. And, you know, Trump did this very effectively in uh, 2016 when so many people said, you know, that it was Russia that interfered in the election. Well, it was really the toxic combination of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, where they were able to send discrete messages to get people with racist tendencies to become full-blown mm -hmm. in their racist ex expression, uh, just as one example. Also to militarize the political arms of the evangelical right. And so uh, when we look back at, uh, and, and I'll see if I can think of his name. I, I've had a bad allergy day, and, and uh, I'm not cranking it with all eight cylinders right now. But there was a Welcome guy. Welcome to the who, club. Thank you. There was a guy who, who died in uh, 2018 or so. He was the architect of all of the Republican redistricting. And the district where Madison Cawthorn was elected, not the one where he was defeated, was so gerrymandered that they were able to select buildings on the campus of an all-black college and basically split them into two different districts to dilute their voting power. And the data that is collected now is so precise that we can print out maps for volunteers to walk a block and they know what kind of voters are behind the door that they knock on. Uh, we have tremendous data and some of it can be used for good. But like so many things, a lot of it can be used in a nefarious manner. So to come back to your question, and I always try to answer the question, <laughs> uh, we, we are losing uh, the the power that popular movements have been able to exercise from time to time in this country. And it appears that there may not be a, uh, a, a pendulum swing back to true popular, not populist uh, movements that might embrace single payer healthcare and, uh, a guaranteed annual income or other forms of the economic uh, democracy that Professor Hussein referred to. So you're saying it's not just the Democrats running lousy candidates? Oh, no. No, they do that. And they have misread. We talked a lot about Terry McAuliffe's laws in Virginia last year. And they misread 
the, um, the, the data that comes out of their losses. And it causes them to move more toward the conservatives. And this is the fundamental mistake that caused uh, Bernie Sanders to uh, lose, particularly in 2016. And uh, it continues to be very effective as we're seeing the candidates being recruited by the Democrats once again are top heavy with conservative Dems who are self-funding their campaigns and with uh, uh, retired veterans and spooks. And this shift in the party uh, has been pronounced over the last uh, five or six House cycles and the last three to four uh, presidential cycles. Right, right. It's, there's no question that there are forces at work that don't believe in democracy, who are trying to make it difficult for everybody other than a plutocrat or a plutocrat sympathizer to vote. Uh, and, and David, may I, may I turn this around for a moment? Yeah. Because both of the candidates who I'm working for are what we would call change candidates. These are people who are running for sheriff's offices that have been occupied by bad people. And one of them was in office for 24 years. And the real problem we have is a lack of what is is broadly called turnout. What's really frustrating for a guy in my position is that turnout in California means you have to open your mailbox. You have to pull out a letter opener. You have to then remove the ballot. And then you have to fill it out and you have to put it in an envelope and then mail it. Right. And we're still seeing a projection of only 35 percent participation in the primary election that is two weeks from uh, tomorrow as we're speaking. It's June 7th. And it is particularly a problem with younger voters. And so, you know, we can talk about the plutocrats and the Republicans who want to shrink participation, create barriers, particularly for people of color. And it's encouraging what you cited about Georgia, that the early voting is coming in ahead of projections. That means people saw the barriers that were erected and said, I'm not going to let this stop me from participating. But what do we say about the people who won't even mail in a ballot that's been delivered to their door. You mean white people? A lot of them and young people. Yeah. I mean, African-Americans, I think in Georgia, uh, in recent memory, remember how hard they had a fight for the vote. And that's just two years ago and four years ago with Stacey Abrams, where they were lining up for hours to vote. Uh, I I think a lot of African-Americans know how sacred voting is because the battles were won recently and they're still fighting for it. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, white kids take voting for granted. Yep. Yes, they do. So if I may, David, I'd like to talk about these two uh, campaigns and just for the information, the uh, informing your audience 
Uh, I have worked on political campaigns. This is number 29 and 30. And I've worked primarily as a media and message advisor. And what I've tried to do is take my experience and knowledge of uh, mostly electronic media to elect candidates who I would actually vote for. And so I'm not a, a hired gun who just, you know, goes from campaign to campaign as a way to make a living. In fact, the campaigns I work on have low budgets and it's a real lousy way to try to make a living. I try to make a difference. And I work with people who uh, understand that it's a real challenge to win an election when you're an outsider, when you don't have big uh, dark money from super PACs or even uh, enough donors who can write a check for $1,000 to pay for direct mail, uh, uh, Facebook ads, TV ads, just to mention a couple of the biggest categories of expenditure. So last August, I met Carl Tenenbaum, and he was a, uh, a cop in San Francisco, a beat cop for 32 years. He rose to the level of sergeant, and he didn't want uh, to be at the executive level. He retired, and he moved to Sonoma County. That's the county just north of where I live in Marin, which is just north of San Francisco for the geographically challenged. Sonoma County is a sprawling county. It's much less liberal than Marin and San Francisco. And it has had a series of one-term bad sheriffs. And the current occupant is a guy who uh, obstructed the implementation of a measure that was passed by the voters at the 65% level to require a public agency to oversee the sheriff's office. And this is a critical problem because in virtually every state, sheriffs are totally independent. They're directly elected by the people, and they are not accountable in general once they get elected because they have tremendous advantages of incumbency, and most people don't give a shit about who their sheriff is because most people never have contact with the sheriff. Right. They run a jail. They have bailiffs mm -hmm. in the courtroom. <clears throat> And they patrol, they patrol the unincorporated areas. And sheriffs are different in each state. The definition of what constitutes a sheriff and your interaction, it's, it's not monolithic. So what does a sheriff in California, what are their responsibilities in California? Well, they have deputies who patrol the, uh, as I say, the unincorporated areas. Right. So it's mostly the rural areas. And Sonoma County is a sprawling place, uh, uh, 75 miles by 70 miles uh, is, is roughly the dimension. And uh, so the critical thing that caused Carl Tenenbaum to decide to run for sheriff and come out of a pretty comfortable retirement was the uh, officer shooting of a young man named Andy Lopez. And the death of Andy Lopez is roughly equivalent to the killing of Tamir Rice in Cleveland, where a deputy pulled up, saw a kid with a toy gun, and before asking any questions, shot and killed him. So the Andy Lopez case created a huge... How old was Andy Lopez? He was 13. And the deputy who killed him was a senior officer who trained other deputies on the use of firearms. So this hot-headed guy got out of his car, 
and shot and killed Andy. So this is a total disgrace for Sonoma County because when uh, his parents sought justice, the district attorney declined to press charges against Deputy Gelhouse. Then the family filed a civil suit and the county lost. But instead of just paying up and apologizing, they appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court, costing taxpayers millions of dollars in legal fees, and ultimately they lost, and the family was awarded three over $3 million. So in more recent years, the sheriff has uh, obstructed the implementation of the oversight agency created in the wake of the Andy Lopez shooting. And this really enraged Carl, and he decided to run. So the challenge is, of course, that as an outsider, uh, Carl didn't get the endorsement of the only newspaper in the county. He didn't get the endorsement of the union, the Deputy Sheriff's Association. There's an old boys network. And despite the fact that the anointed candidate to succeed the current discredited sheriff is an African-American man, He's part of the inside game. And there is one other uh, candidate running. I won't uh, distract people about that. But because it's a three-way race and the rules are that this is a top two primary, our goal is to get Carl into second place in two weeks. And then he would face off uh, the current assistant sheriff in November. And so... What you find out when you run an outsider race is that there are a lot of people who just close ranks and say, you know, I don't care if you've lived here eight years. I don't care if you've had, you know, 32 years of police experience and that you're willing to acknowledge the things that need to be fixed. People tend to cling to the status quo. So the other candidate I'm working with is, is different in many ways, but similarly, he's a reformer. His name is Sean Allen, and he has been and still works as a deputy in the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office, 32 years, just like Carl did. Sean, however, is a black man who has experienced uh, discrimination, harassment, retaliation, he has seen the cronyism in the department under this 24-year incumbent. She's not running for re-election, and that's the good part. Uh, but Sean has sued his own department and won and exposed uh, particularly sexual harassment against LGBTQ persons. He's in a five-way race, and he's we don't have any polling. But he's, you know, we, we believe he's in third and, uh, you know, we hope that he surges into second. But he has challenges because uh, the top place candidate got the endorsement of the Mercury News, which is, again, the major newspaper in Silicon Valley. And uh, the guy who is nominally in second place was in the department for 28 years he ran and lost and then retired. He's been out of office, out of the agency for over eight years, and he doesn't even live in Santa Clara County. <laughs> We're running a TV commercial that we call Carpetbagger Alert, mm -hmm. and we use a, a Google Earth animated sequence to show 
where his house is, which is up near Lake Tahoe, <laughs> and, and where he wants to work as sheriff of Santa Clara County. Wow. So as we take on these races, I invite people to look at either candidate, carltforsheriff.com for Carl Tenenbaum in Sonoma County, seanallenforsheriff.com in Santa Clara County. And I, I want to take a few minutes here to explain the way modern campaigning works. And of course, uh, I have, these are just the direct mail pieces that have hit my house in the last week. And most of them are uh, misleading to some extent. And I won't take the time to point out the inaccuracies in these mail pieces. But for people roughly over 50, direct mail is still a very potent way to reach voters, even if all they do is glance at your mailer as they walk it from the mailbox to the recycling bin. Right. And if you go to a post office this time of year, you see a lot of it doesn't make it out of the post office. People recycle it immediately after they get it from their box. But uh, we still see that older voters in particular use direct mail as a reference point, and they believe that they have been asked for the candidate's vote when they receive direct mail. We use Facebook uh, very heavily. Does it work? You were, is it? Which one? Facebook? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The value of Facebook is that let's say you're running a campaign and you have 5,000 friends. Well, those 5,000 people can forward your posts to their friends. And we don't, you know, it's exponential, but we don't know exactly the number in each case. And that forward, that sharing is a validation So if I share something with you, the implicit comment is that Peter B. supports this and hopes you does, too. You do, too. I like you Uh, does, too. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. But advertising on Facebook. That doesn't work, right? Or does it? Oh, it does. It does, David. So here's why. It's the data pile. How granular can you I I thought I read that there was a time when you could go on a granular level and say, I want this ad to be seen by right wing righties with one eye who only make love to their wives on a Tuesday. (laughs) You can't go down that deep anymore, right? Uh, Deeper. (laughs) <laughs> really? So let me answer your question uh, by explaining the newest wrinkle, because Facebook is old school now. All right. But the the uh, targeting of individuals based on the collected data is the same. And this this is something that's relatively new to me, because I put both of my sheriff candidates on channel two. And you'll remember KTVU. Yeah. It's now owned by the Fox Network. And despite that, uh, it has a really good local news operation and the top-rated morning news show. When people are watching Good Morning America or the other network shows, this is a local program 
with traffic and weather and uh, Warriors coverage that the San Francisco Chronicle can no longer muster. Uh, during these playoff games, the day after, the Chronicle will have a picture of something that happened in the first quarter. And they go to press before the game is over. And the games are over now at local time, 8.30 or 9 p.m. Wow. So the newspapers have really cut themselves out of the action. All right. So what I discovered, and I'm using this platform, people are probably aware, if you're a cable subscriber, that you have the option to watch a program in the mode called On Demand. So you can choose any network, whether it's, uh, uh, let let me go to my list here, uh, TNT or uh, Sci-Fi, Nat Geo, uh, FX, Sundance, USA Network. But get this, traditionally, I have placed political advertising in a program environment. I say, okay, this show or this channel appeals to a certain type of viewer. It might lean more female than male. But now, irrespective of what you're watching, I can use the targeting selectors to insert one of my commercials if you're watching on demand. And I can feed a separate commercial to up to five people in the same household who are watching different channels at the same time. So I could feed one misleading message to dad, another one to mom, another to that 25-year-old who never quite moved out (laughs) and who we're hoping will will vote. And it is extremely powerful. The other thing that is insidious is that if you're like me, most people have a a DVR. I record a show, uh, or if I'm watching a live show, I pause it for 15 minutes So I don't have to watch the commercials. I just fast forward from one segment to the next. But on-demand viewers do not have control of fast forward during commercial breaks. You are forced to watch them. Okay. So, So let me sum up that I am offended as anybody else (laughs) that this exists. But I am not going to unilaterally uh, surrender. And I am using it to try to elect people who will change the status quo. And it's fascinating to see how it works, but it is uh, more than insidious to be on the receiving end of it. Right. I thought one of the lessons from Cambridge Analytica was it didn't work, that that it was insidious, it was a violation of people's privacy, but in the end, it wasn't as effective, and it, it Cambridge Analytica ended up serving as an advertisement for Facebook's advertising model, but nothing else. Well, I, I think there were there was a lot of intentional misdirection to try to uh, reduce the perceived impact of Cambridge Analytica, but remember, Steve Bannon got the Mercers, uh, this right-wing billionaire family, father and daughter, to fund the takeover of Cambridge Analytica. And I think they used some sleight of hand where they then transferred the data 
so that it didn't have the uh, digital footprints of Cambridge Analytica. And they put it in the, the Trump campaign somewhere. The other big factor is that Facebook offered both Hillary and Trump uh, Facebook experts who could live in the campaign offices and provide daily advice on the best way to use Facebook. Trump took their offer. Clinton did not. Trump spent $85 million on Facebook alone. And in the you know intervening years, Facebook has released the posts and the short videos that Trump was using. And that guy, he, he went crazy in- uh, Pascale, Parscale. Yeah, Brad Parscale. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was a genius. He may have been on a spectrum or two, but he was the, the evil guy who really made all this stuff work. And his wife never pressed charges on the assault. They were called out to his home in, I believe, 2020, when, after he got fired as Trump's mm -hmm. campaign manager. He was drunk. He had weapons. His wife was all bruised. And the uh, Florida police had to tackle him and uh, it was almost suicide by cop. Yeah, yeah. I think he was shirtless, too. He was what? Shirtless. At yes, the time. he was shirtless. Yeah. <laughs> what are you before you go? What are we looking at tomorrow, Tuesday? What are you going to keep an eye on? Well, I, I mean, I think Georgia is going to be very interesting. And let me just note for people that Georgia is, with the exception of a couple of the Democrats, a noir situation. You have various degrees of, of creepy people who curry favor with Trump. So it does seem that Purdue is uh, a lost cause, but that gives Brian Kemp another term. Term And Kemp was the guy who was the secretary of state who ran the election that got him elected. And he purged uh, tens of thousands of voters and he refused to process some 50,000 or more voter registration forms that had been collected by the groups uh, aligned with Stacey Abrams. Then we have Brad Raffensperger, who succeeded Kemp as Secretary of State. He continued the purges, but he had some moments that lead the corporate media to try to make a hero out of him because he couldn't re-rig the election. He tried to rig it for Trump. And you'll never hear Jake Tapper say that. <laughs> but... After they went through the partial recount, the machine recount, and then the hand recount of the entire state of Georgia, and the election had been certified and the electors selected, Trump waited until January 3rd to make that phone call that should be an instant conviction mm -hmm. for him. And the grand jury is impaneled, in, in, in and we, we have our fingers crossed about that. But uh, now Raffensperger is, is portrayed as a good guy because he's trying to fend off a Trump guy who would be even worse than Raffensperger and Kemp were. So uh, for me, if, if people want to follow the, uh, the electoral process, the election uh, and the vote counting, 
Greg Palast has done a great job covering Georgia. He uh, has great access to Stacey Abrams, and he's, he's done amazing work there, exposing the purges, the failure to register people. Uh, and uh, so he's the one I would watch uh, for the post-election game in, in Georgia. Great. We've had him on this show. He's a yeah. great, great, brave guy. As is Peter B. Collins. Thank you, and thank you for bringing on Joe Loria. I hope we have him back. That was a great interview over at Consortium News. I read that they asked the White House Correspondents Association to defend Julian Assange and call on the Justice Department not to extradite Julian Assange. Because, you know, the White House Correspondents Center is all about freedom of the press, and they never got back to consorting about Julian Assange. Go to PeterBCollins.com for a treasure trove of this man's interviews, conversations, radio shows, and podcasts. Great job as always. Thank you. And David, I just want to note that my website with the archives is back up after a 10-day uh, a battle, uh, 11 phone calls with GoDaddy because they didn't believe that I was the owner of PeterBCollins.com. And if you have stale data of two-factor authentication at a place like GoDaddy, update it before something gets canceled because once it has, it's hell to pay. They simply won't accept when you show them proof about who you are and that you own the damn domain name. So <laughs> I mine went down because of GoDaddy. I was with GoDaddy. But I like to I like the owner of GoDaddy. He's a big game hunter. Yeah. You know that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I like to I'm waiting for him to take the uh, Trump boys on safari and we yeah. can just hope that somebody won't come back. <laughs> yeah. From your mouth. Thank you, Peter B. Collins. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, DavidFeldmanShow.com. I rolled out of bed this morning. I don't know how we got this show. I just was not ready for today's show. But we do it 52 weeks a year, twice a week, no matter what. Joining us is Professor Marianne Cummings, who is, besides being a particle physicist, also Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois. How is your voice? A week ago, you had laryngitis. And, you know, and that was the time I really had some questions for Joe Loria, but I couldn't, you know, I could only, you know, just wheeze out one or two statements. That was really. Yeah. That, that, you know, my voice is back. I don't know what that was. I think it was just pollen. I mean, I didn't even realize I'd lost my voice until a friend of mine called up about 1130 that morning. And uh, I found I couldn't talk. I, I had no fever. Joe huh? said, Joe said, you know, I know people don't listen to this show the way I do. I listen to every single second of this show because I have to. I was amazed. You know, he is as good an investigative reporter as you're going to find. And a lot of what he said, we have heard on this show. I'm always amazed and the, the brilliance of the guests, that things that are said on this show are often said by 
new guests who, anyway, uh, a lot of stuff you've said, he said on the show, a lot of uh, difficult things to swallow. Yeah. Well, you know, the consortium news has always been, um, basically, it was founded, as, as you know, um, like, who was it? Um, Harry, what was his last name? He was the guy who um, broke the water, the Iran-Contra scandal. He was an Associated Press. Uh, Do you mind leaning in a little? Just a, yeah. okay. me, thank you. Okay. He was associated with press was it Pratcher? Uh, um, I, I don't know why I'm blanking out on the name. His last name is Perry. And, and you know what? I can just go to Al Gore's internet right now. <laughs> Robert <laughs> so, Perry, P-A-R-R-Y. Wait, 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 wait I, I think it's come back to me. It's Robert Perry. 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 Yeah, it's come back to me. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Well, I no, I, I remembered it. But the thing is, is that Peter, um, just talking to my ear, so I seem a lot smarter. Yeah. The, the the thing was, is that he ended up becoming an editor at Newsweek magazine and was trying to break stories and found that he couldn't, which is why he he started consorting news all the way back in 1995. So that's kind of an old school site. And uh, he died, I think, about four years ago. I stopped following the site so much after he died. But then, like, two years ago, I started following it again. The only uh, U.S. news organization that was allowed into the trial of Julian, uh, Julian Assange last year. So, um, Now, what is was, happening with Julian? I just mentioned him. Joe uh, wrote to the White House press correspondents. White House press correspondence uh, to speak out in favor of Julian Assange. Yes. And no I think it, it, it's just this one gal. I don't know their legal system in, 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 in the UK so much, Patil. but it's, it's all boiled down to like a foreign secretary or one person. Who Her name is Patil, I think. Yeah. yeah. To release, um, you know, to 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 if he if he gets released to us or not and it's just it's a scandal because you know we should not be i mean this trump era charge yeah uh it was uh, in line with what uh, unfortunately what obama was doing in invoking the espionage act and it was you know even uh, Chris Hayes of MSNBC and Rachel Maddow in the last couple of years have mentioned it. I will give them credit that this is a very, very da dangerous precedent. But, you know, Julian Assange was, uh, he, he was dangerous to people. I mean, he was dangerous to powerful people. And I think, again, and I've said it before, and I said it during, during the time it was happening, I think one of the corrosive effects of Russiagate on the Democratic Party because they were so butthurt over you know, over Hillary losing to Donald Trump. Never accepted that. Okay, to be no, to be fair, I never accepted uh, George W. Bush either as president. But the thing is, is that it it, it just got the the Democrats all hyped up a against Russia. It was really like fomenting a lot of xenophobia, but it was also 
hyping up a lot of uh, animosity toward whistleblowers and the press, independent journalists. I mean, like, what are you guys doing? Like, back in 2010, Julian Assange was a hero to you guys. You know, because he was revealing, among other things, uh, the Bush crime family, a lot of the the crimes that was were going on around uh, Iraq and even Afghanistan. I mean, he was just revealing the secrets that powerful people didn't want to be let out. So uh, I'm... Uh, but he said something which is very relevant to the current day. You know, everybody's heard about Smedley Butler, you know, war is a racket. But Julian Assange back in 2011 had a comment about Afghanistan. Of course, you know, after we had captured, after we had killed Osama bin Laden, then what was the point of this? Well, he said it's just one big money laundering operation. Which I'm afraid that the recent vote for the 40 billion to Ukraine sounds like just this kind of thing. You well, know, Rand um, Paul said it would be nice to have an inspector general to see where all this money and where the weapons end up. There's no inspector general. He voted against it because there's no inspector general on the. I'm so disappointed because. Um, Basically, this was the kind of thing that Bernie Sanders used to do. <laughs> he used to call for audits of the Pentagon. He used, like, at the very least, you could do that. You're about to send $40 billion to the most corrupt country in Europe, at least the most corrupt in Europe, probably up there in the world. And where's the accounting? How do we know what weapons go where? I mean, how do we know what money goes where? I mean, it's, we're going to leave it to Zelensky's government to, like, parse out who gets what funds. I mean, it's and, – and I think what's just perverse about it is that there's so many needs that we have. And what do we get from our government? We get Pete Buttigieg saying, well, you know, it's capitalism – uh, we shouldn't be in the, the government shouldn't be in the business of making sure babies have baby formula. And it's, I, I don't know what is in the adult clouded brains of this think tank, you know, neoliberal little bubble. And I don't think these people are inherently evil or want to be, but I mean, they're so far removed from just the concerns of normal people. You just have to wonder, but um so I, I think that, you know, I had a little bit of hope last week um, because, you know, at, at one point I'm, I'm reading some sort Ukrainian sources about, you know, well, we, we negotiated the surrender. Or we, we're evacuating our guys out of Mariupol and the Azovstal steel, steel factory. And I thought, oh, that's ridiculous. On the other hand, I'm looking, I'm thinking, Hey, that's that's their victory story. That's their victory narrative. You know, mission accomplished. Um, maybe there's a little crack now where we can, you know, end this war and, and end all this nonsense and get everybody back to the negotiating table. Um, Lloyd Austin, I read something this morning. It was just off my Yahoo feed, but uh, he was being questioned, I guess, over the weekend. Uh, about, you know, what the end point of the war would be. And he said, well, that's completely up to the Ukrainians. He's like, okay, well, 
Zelensky made a statement this weekend that that you know we will, this this whole thing only ends with negotiations. So I don't know. So, so you would I, think a, you would think we would start that, diplomacy, wouldn't you? But we just gave them. Whoa, 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 whoa! You want diplomacy? We just gave you another forty billion dollars worth of bombs, and now you want diplomacy? Aren't you going to use those bombs? There's no time for diplomacy. <laughs> I think one analyst was just saying this was a way of just clearing out our old stuff and and allowing these guys to our, our guys to stock up on a new weaponry. Plus, you know, the military guys get all the contractors get all their contracts. It all you know, it's all flowing to the military industrial complex anyway. Admiral Mullen, Admiral Mullen, I think mm -hmm. he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I met him once, and he's a good mm -hmm. guy. And as far as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff can be, and he said over the weekend, this is going to be a long haul. This isn't even close to being over. This is... Uh, well, I mean, they milked Afghanistan for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> like 11 years after we got Osama bin Laden. I mean, they can milk this, I guess. Six million, refugees, that, six million refugees, six million refugees, something problem. like 300 Ukrainian soldiers dead each day. Uh, Mariupol uh, is Mariupol, yeah. Yeah, lost, except for the Azov battalion they're fighting on. And the Donbass region, uh, not looking particularly... Uh, good for Ukraine. Seems to me uh, now's the time to try some diplomacy. But I would be, be accused of being a naysayer. We're so close to winning. We're so close to winning. That's what I've been told. We're, we're, you're, you're, you have no idea how close we are to winning. Well, uh, well you know, right. I... I you know, a very easy thing to say at this point is something from Orwell. You know, the war was never meant to be won. It was only meant to be eternal. And in eternal war, these guys, you know, in chaos, you can steal. That's what I remember Randy Rhodes saying way back at the beginning of the uh, Iraq war, where it didn't seem, it, it, it seemed like there was complete chaos. And there was. And they said, what? And she just said, look, this is planned chaos, because when there's chaos going on, bad actors can come in and you can pretty much you know, do what you want if you have access to, to power. So, you know, it's uh, I, I feel really bad. I mean, Ukraine, what an unfortunate place. Um, I think there's other factors at play, though, because, um, you know, the. Uh, the world needs the grain that comes out of both Ukraine and Russia through the Black Sea. I mean, sooner or later, maybe some of the adults of this world are going to sit down and say, hey, you know, we can go back. Actually, they can go back to the terms of, uh, of the original Minsk Accords and start, you know, just the Ukrainian army, which is still shelling. I mean, they never stopped into the breakaway provinces. They had kind of 
lowered the number of, of attacks over 2000 and 2001. I was uh, reading an article, well, I think I quoted two months ago or three months ago from uh, crisis.org who was uh, quoting the Office of Security, um, it, the European Office of Security and uh, I can't remember what the C stood for, but it was basically a, a European mon- group that was monitoring the uh, it was monitoring the war, the civil war. And well, uh, I only looked at 2020 and 2021. I didn't see the beginning of 2022 where there was a decisive uptick in the number of shellings into the Donbass area from the Ukrainians, from the Ukrainian army. And what we didn't know, we everybody was pointing out to the buildup of Russian troops at the border, which had happened every year, but what they weren't reporting was the enormous buildup of troops on the border on the other side of the breakaway regions, you know, the, the other side of that big World War I, uh, and that goes right through the middle of the Donbass region. So you get back to, I, I think they can get back to terms. They, By the way, I just, I, I didn't know this, but I had read that after, um, after the coup in 2014, there were eight regions, uh, provinces that basically did not recognize the current government. They thought it was illegal. That it kind of was. I mean, uh, Yanukovych was was democratically elected. He was from the Donbass area. So all eight provinces uh, voted to uh, become autonomous. And if only only two of them succeeded in breaking away or remaining autonomous, uh, and, and in fact, those two regions, the Luhansk and Donetsk, are actually divided in two. So if I mean, it looks like the Russians got their land bridge to Crimea, and that just it happens to include all of those regions that voted for autonomy back in 2014. Maybe we get back to the negotiating table and they can work out either they are their own countries or autonomous regions within a Ukraine federation like Crimea used to be. So, uh, but, you know, that's, and, and the bright side is that the Russians may have done the world a favor by getting rid of uh, some really nasty people. So. Where? <laughs> the Nazis. What? You know, I, I know. This is, look, you know, it, it was kind of funny because I had, um, you know, at the the shooter, the Buffalo shooter. Uh, you know, many people pointed out all, all over so, social media about how he admired this Brenton Tarrant, the guy who uh, shot up the mosque in New Zealand back in 2019, and who was associated with extreme right-wing groups in Europe, uh, in his diary also notably mentioned Ukraine. Um, I kind of went on Al Gore's internet and, you know, found a lot of articles that have yet to be wiped from Ukraine, um, from rather from the internet. And, you know, these are like uh, the transnational network that nobody's talking about, the Christ, the Christchurch shootings, Eastern Europe, far-right groups. I mean, there's like a whole bunch of articles. Um, Ukraine, Ukraine raids houses of neo-Nazi followers of Christchurch shooter. 
This was from June 18, 2020, and so on. Um, yeah, that, that was a problem. You know, I used to say that, uh, you know, our big buildup of the military, what for? We have no, no, we have no enemies, significant ones, except for ones of our own making. Right. And certainly the, um, you know, certainly the the Taliban. Well, I mean, the uh, Osama bin Laden was a was a creature of our making. Um, ironically, to to bog down the Russians in Afghanistan. No Inspector but, General looking into the weapons we gave the Mujahideen. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, but here's something. Um, this is to the. Uh, this is a letter. It was scrubbed off his website. This is Matt from Max Rose, uh, dated October 16th, 2019. The Honorable Mike Pompeo. Um, and he and 40 members of Congress had signed on to it, uh, including Ro Khanna, among others. But uh, we write to ask why the, deputy, the State Department has failed to include certain overseas violent white supremacist extremist groups on the foreign terrorist organization list. And he goes on to list several incidents, including the Christchurch incident. Um, today, if an American citizen swears allegiance to the Islamic State and spreads their message of terror, there are several resources available to the feds to, to uh, investigate this. As you know, the State Department's criteria for inclusions on the foreign terrorist organization list are simple. Be a foreign organization, engage in, or retain in capability and intent to engage in terrorism and threaten the security of U.S. nationals or national defense, and a whole bunch of other, uh, a whole litany of other things. After this, he says, for example, the Azov Battalion is a well-known ultranationalist militia organization in Ukraine that openly welcomes neo-Nazis into its ranks. The group is so well known, in fact, that the 115th Congress of the United States stated in its 2018 omnibus spending bill that none of the funds made available by this act may be used to provide arms, training, or other assistance to the Azov Battalion. Well, as uh, Franco Marcetic has reported in Jacobin, the CIA have been training these guys all along. So anyway, um, yeah, I mean, we... You know what? A, what's going to be the ramifications of having built up this group, which is was? I mean, there's organizations all over Europe, white supremacists, but in particular, after the Christchurch shooting, they were noting how the Azov Battalion was, in particular, was a hub for this kind of activity. So that you know, where people would go, where people would go to network, and either get training or network with other guys. Um, in fact, um, what was it, the Sufan Center, um, Ali, Ari Sufan and Max Rose uh, wrote an article, wrote a, uh, an op-ed in the New York Times uh, late 2019 about this kind of thing. But in particular, they were saying that, you know, the, there's very, there are differences in ideology, but there's the strategy and recruitment tactics of these right-wing extremists, particularly the Azov Battalion, uh, are very similar to those that I, of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Um, both types of violent groups seek to implement their own versions of what they would consider a pure society. There are outreach offices 
uh, at the Azov Battalion's Western Outreach Offices are very similar to the Maktab al-Kidamat from al-Qaeda. And it's uh, also providing a safe haven for these guys. So, you know, um, you, you might think that, well, this is one way we can get to a, to the Ruskies. But on the other hand, you know, uh, we just like the Mujahideen. I mean, what are we doing? What have we been in, incubating? I, I think what I think in World War Two, we fought yeah. with Russia to defeat the Nazis. Now we're fighting with a couple of Nazis to defeat Russia. It's the circle of death. Ah, the circle of life, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know. What are you looking at tomorrow? What are you excited about tomorrow in the elections? Well, oh, oh, I'm trying not to be excited. I, I think I was a little, I think I was a little more upset than I realized at how badly Nina Turner lost. Well, I you mean, know, that, yeah. But what do you think of Jessica Cisneros' chances? What are you doing? You know, I'll be at a drinking liberally tomorrow, so I'll uh, be watching the results over a glass of wine or something. I, what I is that, is that uh, John Fugel saying? No, drink. Well, well, he's performed he uh, at uh, laughing liberally, but it's a it's a national organization. It's actually not a bad idea, where you can just you can sign up to host a regular meeting, maybe once a week, a month, month, maybe once a week, maybe twice a month. And uh, you just put on the, then you advertise your event uh, on the national site. In fact, a lot of friends that I've met in Las Vegas, because I used to go to Vegas regularly, um, I decided to see if they had a drinking liberally. They had two. And I've met some, their drinking liberally was really politically connected and very well, I mean, very much of an activist hub. So, yeah, so you can be a stranger in a, in a strange town. If there's a drinking liberally, you just show up and, you know, at least you'll be with people who are of a lefty bent. Is and it free booze? No, it's uh, usually if you're new, traditionally at the Naperville drinking liberally, Rich will buy you your first drink. But you just go, you, you just hang out at a pub, at a restaurant, you know, it's, Sometimes people meet in coffee shops. So it's, it's, a, it's actually a pretty nice idea. So, uh, and in fact, the one in Naperville is also kind of a nexus. This is where I've gotten uh, a lot of the candidates I've supported an introduction to the DePage side of, of uh, the, my congressional district. So it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's a good idea. But tomorrow, I, I really, it would, oh, man, I think I would be really upset if Cisneros lost. Because that would just be a consolidation of Nancy Pelosi and, you know, the corporate Dems power. And it's like, well, where do we go from here? I mean, do we have like 20 or 30 years to eventually get a few more people every election cycle to like make anything happen? Yeah. I mean... I don't know what we really need something really disruptive, disruptive because, you know, I was just thinking about um, Medicare for all. I caught a little bit of your Dave, sec, uh, segment with David Sirota. I'm going to have to really listen to He's it, great. but it just, uh, yeah, it just struck me that there is no way the, the regular Democrats are ever going to let Medicare for all 
even the possibility of it taking hold, because that basically will destroy Obama's legacy. Think about this. You know, Obama's legacy, his big legacy, is the Affordable Care Act. And you, you know, it's, it, it is predicated on a private for-profit insurance, you know, industry that's nonetheless regulated somewhat and heavily subsidized by taxpayers' right. dollars. You have to destroy that system. I mean, that system will be destroyed if we have a real Medicare for all. And with it, Obama's legacy. Now, some skillful uh, spinmeisters could just say, well, I mean, it was always meant to evolve into Medicare for all. (laughs) This was just a, you know, the first. That's why he gave us the public option. Yes. Oh, yeah, we didn't get that. So anyway, but didn't Biden and, promise us a public option when he was running? Yes, he did. Did he also? Oh, prom- he promised us. He promised us Medicare for all. He said, "Just give me sixty in the Senate," and we gave him sixty in the Senate. And he could not use like an eighty percent approval rating to, you know, strong arm. Who was it? Max Baucus or Joe Lieberman? He didn't have that. And as a matter of fact, he was pretty much um, a tool of Wall Street. I don't know if you ever read a uh, black commentator or a black agenda report. Uh, Glenn Ford. Mm-hmm. Glenn Ford read, I think, about two years ago. Right. Um, I remember an interview that he did with uh, Sam Cedar, Majority Report. And this is back, you know, 10 years ago or something like that. So he's. Uh, he basically was talking about the time, the massive disappointment of Obama and that, you know, lefties really need to stop their loyalty to the Democratic Party. And he says, so but Sam asked him point blank, so you don't buy into the lesser of two evils? And he said, I don't believe Obama is the lesser of two evils. And this was, uh, at this point, Obama and, uh, and Mitt Romney. He goes, I think Obama is the more effective evil. You know? And after reading Listen Liberal, I mean, I kind of thought about that, and I thought, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, after reading Listen Liberal, that kind of solidified all of this stuff. Like, I think that, you know, we've got a good cop, bad cop situation here, funded by the same donors, and there's God, I mean, I thought this, the squad would be the disruption. And, you know, I don't know at this point what it takes. Maybe the right leader. Well, yeah, it's a problem of leadership. Did I mention Chuck Schumer's daughter, Jessica Schumer, is a lobbyist for Amazon? Did I? Have I mentioned oh, that on the show? I think once or twice or like 200 times. Yeah, it's going to be. Uh, no, it's just amazing these people, I mean, and their offspring and just how blatant. I mean, that used to be unseemly, wasn't it? That, you know, no, it's not, not anymore. Yeah. But, Chuck Schumer's unseemly. But Professor Marianne Cummings is not. Follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl, G-R-R-L. And I predict we're going to be happy on Thursday. I think there's going to be some good news coming out of Texas. That's what I think. Thank you, 
Professor Marianne Cummings. Let's go to Denton, Texas, where Professor Mike Steinell is standing by. You look great. Well, thank you, David. I wish I could say the same of you. <laughs> I thought maybe you got an acting job for <laughs> a skid robum. Oh, no, I rolled out. I don't, I'm sorry. That's that's kind no, of no, 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 no. I, I got up really late today and we had David Sirota on the show and I was nervous he, having him on the show. He was, was great. Yeah, uh, he was great. He was fantastic. You've had a lot of your show. I mean, you've got the usual great people, but then you had a bunch of guests. Jen Sanko, she was fantastic. Greg Barak, Bob Shank, that uh, Barry and Bob, their interaction, yeah. that was amazing. Yeah. David Jong, Ivan Kachanovsky, and Corey Brettschneider. You know, I used to think about this show for a while. I thought, I'm not sure if I want to be part of this show that would have me as a guest. <laughs> but then you realized. <laughs> then I, but lately I'm going like, I, I don't think I belong here. Me neither. <laughs> I have the same thoughts. But I mean, I've come in heavy. You've, you came in heavy today? Yeah, I got, I got, a, I got, well, I sent you one. Did you get oh, it? Oh, no, I didn't get it. <gasps> oh, no. Okay. When did you send but, it? Uh, this afternoon, about 3.30 been working on it all day until until 3 30 i'll find it while you're talking i i also i also have one f for you to do do live and i'd like to just do it right now i know we got the quiz maybe coming up but no i think dan went to bed oh good for him anyway i listen i get ideas the one i sent you is uh the the headline the the subject says i'm coming in heavy but anyway uh, it's uh, talk is cheap it's, I redid that one we did last week. But I, I heard something in your uh, monologue today that inspired me to write a song. Would you like to hear it? Absolutely. Okay. Before you do that, I want to find your song because I don't want to get the notifications. There we go. Hang on. Okay. All right. Uh, how's, my, how's my volume? It sounds really good. I, I just want to mention... Uh, hang on for one second. Uh, Hazel Henderson passed away. She was a guest two weeks oh. ago on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Oh, no. And uh, if uh, I really recommend you go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website and listen to Ralph Nader talking to Hazel Henderson. I just got word. She oh, I'm sorry away. to hear that. Yeah. So. I, I listened to last week's about the, uh, oh, the guy, the war industry. That was amazing. Yeah. I, I listen. I, I it's the best radio show. Check. Hannah, Hannah was doing your part. Yes. Have you been, have you farmed that out to her? Or are you, are you, are you, um, is anything or you just haven't you got stuff to take care of it in the in your household i think right? i had some i have some stuff so hannah yeah was, yeah was, uh, she was great she's got a great voice she should do a lot of voiceover work she's yeah. got a very pleasant voice and solid delivery you yes. can pass that along to her you want to hear your song that i wrote yes please okay i wrote this this I'm evening i'm gonna lower this my is... sound because there's okay oh i'm gonna i'm gonna let me see what do i do I'm going to 
How do I do this? Can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Do you hear the, the, the I'm going to lower my sound so we don't get the feedback. Do you hear the construction noise in the background? I do not. I do not. I don't hear that. The mice are building. Uh, <laughs> they they have an add-on. They've decided they're sick of crawling through the wall in the kitchen, so they're oh, remodeling the kitchen. They want a new wall to <laughs> crawl through. When I do these live things, I don't have an introduction, so I'm going to do a chorus of harp out front. Okay. okay. Please welcome Professor Mike Stanell. Volume good? I went out last night to have some fun. Now it appears I'm a man on the run. I'm not really sure why I did what I did. I guess it's something deep-seated that I've kept well hid. It might have been his mustache or that funny little hat. At first I'd figured that we'd just have a chat. But he wouldn't stop turning that crazy little wheel. Even when I yelled at him, man, what's the deal? So I killed that organ grinder. I know that's kind of funky. But I killed that organ grinder and then I took his monkey. <laughs> So I'm out on the street I can't go back to my place I got that dang monkey with me And I can't look him in the face I dressed him in some clothes That I bought at the Baby Gap A onesie with cute bears And a pretty blue hat A lady walking by asked Is that a boy or a girl? But when she got closer she said Oh, maybe that's a squirrel? I told her he was a monkey And I'd be glad to let him go she said she didn't have the time. She was headed to a show. I killed that organ grinder. His grinding days are done. Now this crazy monkey thinks he is my son. I took my monkey son to have some lunch at Denny's. He reached into his pocket and he handed me some pennies. I ordered him a sandwich and he started in to chew. I could tell by the look in his eye that he hated that grinder too. I guess I did him a favor because he jumped into my lap. He gave me a kiss on the cheek and he offered me his hat. I started to pay the bill and he had a terrible fit. He pointed at the menu. He wanted a banana split. I killed that organ grinder. His grinding days are done. Now this crazy monkey thinks he is my son. The fade out. I killed that organ grinder. 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 <laughs> 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 
that organ grinder. Wow. Wow. We have to, what we should do is put a clip together of me doing my little tirade against organ grinders. And then go right into where did, where on the where on where did that come from? I don't know. I hate organ grinders at the top of the show. I think I have you had did did you have like a did one try to molest you when you yeah, were a young boy? He tried to grind my organ. Is what he tried to do. So Wow. I tried wow. to grind my organ. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. a whole other song right there. <laughs> we oh, man. we have to do something about the plague of organ grinders here in America. Something has to be done. <laughs> I, I don't think there's that many. I don't think it's, really, it's kind of a dying thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, big news today on the soaps. On the soaps. Oh, yeah. But which one? Bold and beautiful. I told you a little bit about it. Anyway, I, I made a diagram. Yeah, good. This is important. Okay. Okay. So you see... Lee. Sheila, I see Sheila. Lee. Okay, Lee. I'll get to Lee in a minute. Sheila, yeah, killed Finn and shot Steffi in the alley. Wow! And Steffi survived. That she was confronting Sheila about the fact that Sheila spiked Brooks. She changed the label on the champagne on New Year's Eve. This has been going a long, long time. Yeah. So Brooke, the alcoholic, got drunk and she ended up in bed with Deacon, her ex-husband. Ah. Which upset. She carried it from Ridge. I see. There's Ridge. Ridge, who is Steffi's father. Oh, well, what'd she get? What? What? what, what? Brooke slept with Deacon and gave. Nothing what happened. To, Nothing happened. Supposedly. But what happened? What did Brooke give to Ridge? Well, she, not, nothing but she, Ridge moved in with, with, with uh, Taylor, and then Steffi was shot. And Sheila, Finn's, Sheila shot Finn. Finn was, that was kind of an accident. She was confronting uh, Steffi, and Finn showed up, jumped in front of the bullet. She shot her own son. Now, she gave up her son at birth, but he, but he knew her, and... Lee was the adoptive mother. And at the hospital, this has been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Finally, Steffi remembered and she accused Sheila and Sheila's gone off to jail. But today, Lee shows up to talk to Steffi about the funeral. And she says, I can't talk about the funeral right now. And then she goes back. You see her go back to her apartment. <clears throat> wherever her house and she walks in and finn's still alive finn is in the bed still alive right wow. the police said he didn't make it but they, he, they you know and then everybody was acting like he was dead but she's got him uh on a machine and she's keeping him alive so. oh, oh oh so he's comatose yes he's well he's well he's not he's not yeah he looked pretty kind. And that's the actor you like. That's the guy, the Bibbidi Mutual guy who comes out of the, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, he's a neat actor. Yeah, he he, he's got a neat part there. I'm glad they didn't kill him off. Well, we don't know. So, he's a, he's in a coma. Oh, they'll, yeah, they'll, they're going to bring him back. He's, he's, he's too important a character. And this but is the nobody, bold and the beautiful? Or nobody the knows. Nobody knows except Lee. <laughs> it's so crazy. 
uh, my wife is going, I told you she was screaming at the TV. I told you, I told you they couldn't. We're into this. It's only a half an hour a day. So are you and addicted? Nadine, what's that? Are you addicted? Oh, yeah. It's Sheila time. You know, I yell. It's Sheila time to the whole house and we gather. I, I, uh, I wish I could get addicted to us. I, I was thinking like if they're the, so stupid, but well, but they're if manipulative. The crown, if the crown were like a, a, a soap that was on every day for a half hour, I would watch it. Or, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's certain yeah. shows like if Mad Men were a soap like a half hour every day or The Sopranos. I would watch yeah, those it. those shows they they can take a whole uh, day and stretch it out for weeks. You know, like <laughs> people, it's it's pretty amazing how they put those I'm together. I'm surprised and, nobody has thought of taking something we all love because they do it with video games. But to take The Godfather, for example, and make it a soap, and make it a soap, just because. You really well, just... <clears throat> they, they've kind of done that with some things. Movies have been turned into serialized TV shows. By the way, we watched a movie called uh, Mincemeat. I started it. You, you recognize who that one character is? I, th I went through half of the movie the and then I had from, to look at The guy from Succession. Yeah. Yeah. So he's British all the time. Yeah. All the yeah. But it, you know Those... what? I, it wasn't grabbing me. Is it worth... It's a little convoluted, you know, um, but stick is it, with it. Is it good? Is it? Oh, yeah, it's good. Yeah, okay. stick with it. Um, right. I like the, the, you know, the characters. The, the you know, it's, there's not a lot of action, it's, but but when they. Because um, that's, a, you don't want, when it's a movie about World War II, the last thing you want is action. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, this is an important holiday or. Uh, anniversary heimlich himmler killed himself in 19 on may 23rd 1945 heimlich himmler yeah killed himself in was this during the nuremberg trials i don't know he was in um no Allied... 1945 would have been during the war no it was after the war because uh v ve day is may 8th so this was um, a couple weeks later. Where did he kill himself? Uh, in the head. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I'm assuming. They're not an old joke. <laughs> no, you're thinking of the, the newly game. game. What's the strangest Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't need to. Don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. <laughs> Um, what was that guy's the host's name? We did hang on. There was there was. We used to do Bob Eubanks. We used to do room bits on a show yeah. I worked on. Just to and we and so one of the bits we did was this was back when you could do room bits in comedy writing rooms. Now it's and. Uh, What's a, what do you mean a room bit? What's a room bit? You would try to gross each other out. There's a oh, bunch I of see, comedy writers sitting around <laughs> and you would just gross each other out. Just try to say the most offensive things. Just to, And I think those days are over. But uh, 
we used to do Bob Eubanks on the newlywed game. Where's this? Where's the strangest <laughs> place? What's would... funny about the guy, the way they, well, Bob, <laughs> he, he sets it up. Well, Bob, I think it would be. <laughs> so we had, there was a female comedy writer and I go, yeah. uh, where's the strangest place you and your husband ever made whoopee? And she goes, in the vagina, Bob? <laughs> the idea being that they did it the other way so much that the vagina. I get it. I get yeah, it. Yeah. It was I one of it. our, uh, there were, this was, these were little room, little shows we used to put on to offend people. Yeah. Probably not a good idea. Looking no. Back. Probably, you'd probably have trouble with that these days. And it has nothing to do with work. It was really just being lazy and trying to make each other <laughs> laugh. And yeah, well, that's good. That's get the creative juices flowing. Nah, no, no. I actually think uh, making dirty jokes, just in general, trains your brain to think wrong. That, that's something that's that when you think a certain way, it becomes a habit, and then it's hard to get back to writing uh, what you're being paid to write. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a good habit uh, not to to make those the room bits. Well, because the math is different on a dirty joke than just a regular clean joke. Well, it's it's too easy. It's shocking. It's not. Yeah. It's not what you're hired to do. And then yeah. it becomes a habit of trying to make the other writers laugh as opposed yeah. to working for the show. You're, you're there yeah. to work on the show, not make the other writers laugh. But most writers want to be liked by the other writers. They don't care about the show. So Yeah, yeah. I was guilty of that. I was guilty of... Do you have remorse about any particular things you said in the past? Any lines you went, went over and you went like, boy, I wish I hadn't have done that one. I've got two or three things in my life when I look back that I said in the, you know, trying to be funny and provocative and, you know, and then I went like, and at the time, everybody around me went like, what? <laughs> Come on, Mike. You know, it was like no one laughed. It was like too much. And then you, I carry that. I, I thought about calling a couple people up and saying, yeah, I'm sorry about that thing I said, you know, because it wasn't, it wasn't funny. It's a th thin line, don't you think? Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think I've ever said anything. Uh, well, there's, there's something I once said on a, on a radio show in San Francisco that I wish I could take back, but are you glad there's no tape of it? Yeah. 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 Hey, I'm, I almost got, um, <clears throat> I've been doing a lot of stuff. I, I built uh, savingcharlie.com. It isn't, I, I built my website, which I can. Is it up? And, no, I'm not going to put it up. I'm not going to put it up until the, the book is ready and the CD is but ready. But did you build the, the website yourself? Yeah, I did. I was, I was about ready to hire somebody. And then I just started, I, th I said, no, I've done them before. I did MikeSteinel.com. It's not very good. And I did yes, Tex Zimmerman. I've done uh, three. 
<clears throat> but I got a new um, a new platform and a new theme, and it allowed me to do like movies on, on the banner. So you open up the site and you see a, a you see. I made slideshows, you know, and like right. things like I've done here on on my background. Right. But I was I was pretty impressed with myself, you know. That's fantastic. It, yeah, I'm, the, everything. The book is going to be by Dorrance Publications, but the audio book and the CD are all going to be uh, Rosewood Audio. My I made a company, you know, and um, um, so that's there's going to be a lot of work in the, <laughs> in the next. Uh, six, seven, eight weeks, but I want that all to come out at once, you know. Right. And uh, I'm trying to work on a couple of, a couple of bookstores, <clears throat> a couple up in Kansas, and a couple here in Texas where I can do a little concert and a book signing. So. Well, we'll do something here. We'll do a Saturday night where if everybody shows up, they get, you know, we'll do an Eventbrite thing. Well, it's hard. I mean, that'd be fine. I would that'd love to rip you off. I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I man. would love to. Well, I didn't say I didn't say we made a lot of money. I haven't sent it to you yet. Ah, <laughs> oh, you know what? I am. I am so angry that, that oh. you haven't gotten money yet. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you make money in this business. You know, it's tough. I'm glad, I mean, I'm, we're at a point where I, I uh, hate to say this, but I mean, we've got our retirements and everything. We're fine. So I don't, you know, like if I was 30 years younger, I wouldn't be able to just produce a CD on, you know. Yes, you would. Well, I could produce a CD, but I, I don't know if I'd have the resources to yes, you would. be able to pay the musicians and, you know, the studio and the, you know, the if CD you're, baby. If and, you're 30 years younger. I'm, I'm talking as a comedian. Yeah. If I were 30 years younger, I would be taking every gig offered to me. I'd be up at six on the bus to Roanoke, coming home back on the bus with cash in my... <laughs> and I'd meet other comics and they would tell me about other gigs. And I would be working 365 nights a week. I'd be tapped into clubs that I don't even know exist. There are clubs, there are venues that I don't even know exist, nor should I know. And that's where people who are 30 years younger than we are, are making money. Well, that's good to know. I'm glad somebody is. Yeah. Well, they're hungry. I mean, they're going to get, you're not going to get, I, I don't think you would get it. In, I mean... There were gigs that I did where I was offered money, not a lot, and I would I would take my kids with me when they were younger and it was it would be like a a casino uh, on a reservation like in the middle of the the floor like where where everybody's playing and I would say to my kids, I got to go pick up some money. And they get in the car. I would take them to the casino. And I would, you know, half hour jokes, bomb. I, you know, and they hated me. And I'd get my cash and I'd drive home. And my loved ones my, would say, why would you do that? Why? And, I, and I said, if somebody said to you, get in the car, drive 100 miles, 
tell jokes for a half hour and we'll give you cash. You would do it. I couldn't say no to that. Yeah, yeah. I prob. I think I, well, anyway. Did, did, would you, you would be out on the floor with, with all the slot <laughs> machines <laughs> and everything? Ding, 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 ding. You would be like in an adjacent bar? Yeah, but you could see, people were listening to me and playing the slot machine. And I loved bringing my kids to see that. <laughs> they because, let them in? Yeah. And, and A lot of places. Yeah. How old were they? They were like, you know, 10, 11. What state was that? California. That must, not in Texas you, or in Oklahoma, well, you can't. You gotta it was be, a reservation you gotta be, uh, too. Oh, okay. And they would see me humiliated and I loved it. I loved it. They would just see me and they their eyes would be bug-eyed and I'd be getting no laughs. <laughs> Nobody was paying attention to me. Oh, and, that's the worst. But I, I don't know, for some reason, having my kids see me uh, not humiliated, I guess not broken by it. I think that might be a flaw in your uh personality that's probably related to why you want to kill organ grinders <laughs> something there's some connection there some synapse that's that's locked in you know um i don't think musicians know. i don't think musicians have the thanatos that comedians have that no no we don't i don't mind i don't mind playing a gig where no one's listening i've done plenty of those um, but I don't like the ones where people are listening and they're yelling bad things, you know. There, there's something really cleansing about being hated by a hundred people. By just being, where they really hate you and you just stand your ground and you keep going. And I've noticed sometimes, because most audiences hated me, that if I could get through it, they would applaud. Once go. again, you, you can talk to Dr. Hirschenfeld about this, but I have a feeling that taking in all that hate had to come out and it came out against organ grinders. <laughs> <laughs> no, myself. You know, uh, I had a pretty, we always had bands. I started running bands when I was in um, junior high. First band was called Susan and the Bachelors. And <laughs> it was three guys and a girl. We, and we won some talent shows. I think it and was all of you grade. were bachelors. Yeah, high. we were. Okay. <laughs> it was cute. You know, Susan and the Bachelors. That's I mean, funny. the moms in the band that had to drive us around thought right. that was fun. Oh, it's funny. so funny. Susan and the Bachelors. But that. anyway, in college, I had a really good group. We played a lot of different things. And we would play, we would play any bar. And, you know, like we could, I would go around. Yeah, we'll play here. You know, let us set up and play here. You know, give us whatever. And the, we had a good friend. <clears throat> he was trying to be a comic. He later actually did the comedy clubs. I don't know where he is now. His name is Keith Harrison. I'll tell you, tell you the name. Maybe someone out there has heard him. Yeah, he was I just arrested he was in New York. for killing an organ grinder. Yeah. But anyway, so we're, he's gonna, he says, can I do comedy during your break? I said, sure. You know? <laughs> and so he goes up and uh, he, he's, he says one joke and no response, you know? And he, he says... Uh, that reminds me of a funny story. And somebody in the back yells out, tell it outside. <laughs> and he told me, I said, that was brutal. He says, yeah, that was my best friend. <laughs> right, right. That's great. <laughs> That's a funny, it reminds me of a funny story. And he, yeah, tell it outside. <laughs> Poor guy. But he was funny. 
you know, he he was just the kind of person who was, if you were around him, he was always funny, you know. Mm-hmm. So he had that he had that impulse. I think you had that impulse to do. There's always some humor aspect of whatever's going on, you know. Yeah. I ask people who, you know, who are starting out in comedy, just how many sets do you do a week? And they'll say, oh, you know, I try to get out once a week. And I thought, I don't know. If you're not doing it seven nights a week, I know people, you know, have jobs and they're tired. But if you're not doing it seven nights a week when you're just starting out, I don't know. Yeah. What the the point is. I think it's the same way with music. You know, um, used to be, there were a lot of gigs. Like I used to play, uh, you get a gig and it'd be, it was six nights, you know, you get Monday off, maybe get Monday off. And then there were, I found as a stripper, it was good to take time (laughs) off. The audience, the audience can tell when I haven't had a couple of nights off. <laughs> oh man. All right. Should we You want to pl- play the new song? Yeah, I got to just do uh some I my software lasted tonight, which is great. It is so hot in here. It's hot in New York. We had a cold snap. It's really? been really hot and yeah, but uh, um, I hope you like this one. This was I, based well, on I may your- not be able to, I have to find it first. I I, I have to find the uh, thingamabob that does the... The player? No, it's a... Hang on. Bring all to front. And once again, this one grew out of uh, just one thing you said in your rant. We need a serious conversation about a serious conversation. Right, and you did, you kind of... Did I did a, a live one last week. This one's better, though. I like, I like the way this turned out. Is it called Talk is Cheap? You got it. Talk is cheap. New music yep. from Professor Mike. Hang on. I'm going to mute myself. New music from Professor Mike Steinell. Talk is cheap. It doesn't cost a dime. That's what they tell us most of the time. They say they'll keep you in their thoughts and prayers, but probably not gonna be there when you fall down the stairs. When you're laying there bleeding and you're starting to weep, just remember what I said. Talk is cheap. We need a serious conversation about conversations that are serious. So many people talking nonsense, it's making me delirious. For every situation, they got a simple platitude. I'm so distracted by it all, I got a bad attitude. Everyone seems to know exactly what I should do. I don't think they have a clue as to what I'm going through, cause talk is very cheap but you can get it for a dime at least that's what i hear most of the time 
people think they're helping when they spout those aphorisms. I'm beginning to think we should lock them up and put them all in prisons. Stuff like it is what it is and take the good with the bad. Let a smile be an umbrella and don't be so sad. An apple a day keeps the doctor away and look before you leave. Just remember what I said. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. All these words sound good and logical on the face of it. But when you really look around for the truth, sometimes there ain't no trace of it. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. But if you're allergic to apples, I don't know what to say. The early bird gets the worm unless the worm is a very large birdie worm. Good things come to those who wait is a statement I simply can't confirm. Cause talk is cheap, you can get it for a dime. That's what they tell me most of the time. All good things come to those who wait, but while you wait, you start to resent all the great stuff your friends are getting. Pride goeth before a fall, but what if you fall and you feel kind of proud about it? Look before you leap, unless you're scared of heights, then I suggest a blindfold. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, unless you're kind of weak to begin with, then it probably will kill you. And remember, actions speak louder than words, unless you can yell real loud. Say they'll keep you in their thoughts and prayers, but probably not gonna be there when you fall down the stairs. When you're laying there bleeding and you're starting to weep, just remember what I said. Talk is cheap. Thank you.
Mike Steinel is a jazz trumpeter, composer, educator, member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 to 2019, author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary, and Running the Changes. You can buy his record on Origin Records. It's called Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert. And pretty soon, Saving Charlie Parker will be out. And we look forward to promoting that. I appreciate all the help you can give. I, I really do. It's an honor to do your show. I mean, the guests have been so, so fantastic. I, well, uh, to paraphrase Bernie, it's not us. It's me. <laughs> I think I got that right. right? It's me. <laughs> not us. It's me. Okay. It's me. I think Bernie said that. Thank I you. I don't know I about you, that. Buddy. Thank you so much. <laughs> Well, that's the David Feldman Show. We'll go to Rodrigo in a second. I want to invite you all to go to my website, sign up for the newsletter. That's the best way to get an invitation to office hours, as well as a recap of the week in Feldman. You get uh, on Friday, we're sending out a newsletter. It's a summation of all the guests who appeared on our show that week. It comes with time codes, so you can watch the show in any order you wish. If you want to watch Professor Marianne Cummings, you just click on her time code and she comes right up. Or if you want to see Professor Adnan Hussein, you, you click his time code. We'll also have uh, reading material that's been mentioned on the show as well. So go to davidfeldmanshow.com and sign up for my newsletter. And if you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, you can sign up there as well. Rodrigo is our correspondent in Mexico who speaks five languages. Hello, Rodrigo. Oh, thanks. Uh, hi, David. Um, How many languages? Four. I, what did I say? Five. That's how bad inflation's getting. You now speak five languages, Rodrigo. So if you've been trying very hard to avoid all the left-on-left -left drama, such as the righteous ban of Dylan Bourne's followers from the Kefar's chat, you might still have heard a lot of, quote, left, quote, analysts talking about the squad's betrayal of Nina Turner and how they didn't endorse Nina on time. A reminder that the establishment created the idea of the squad in an attempt to marginalize women of color within the democratic congressional establishment. The underlying assumption here is that if only AOC had tweeted once for Nina, voters would have gone out in droves to vote for whoever AOC told them to. Now, the last time Nina was running for election, the Jimmy Dore fans were all disgusted with Nina because she and AOC were going door to door on Nina's district on the last Saturday before her election instead of driving a hundred miles to join her nearest, quote, March for Medicare for All, end quote, 
For a little context, that same Saturday, Jimmy Dore was in Los Angeles yelling, Where are you, Bernie? The real moment is happening here. Where are you, Bernie? For 15 minutes. And if you remember, Bernie was in DC trying to save Build Back Better, and Bernie failed, but I promise you something worse could have happened if Bernie hadn't been there fighting for the people. I don't know about AOC, but Nina Turner's campaign certainly learned something during that last run. She learned that she could spend thousands and thousands of volunteer hours she didn't have explaining to her voters that APAC is wasting the last of the goodwill Israel earned in the 70s to keep their far right in power, or she could hire a dedicated Jewish outreach director whose name is Sam Klein, to bring over 22,000 Jews or around 5% of her district, but a reliable voting block. Nina, who at the time captioned a video of her with Jeremy Corbyn as, quote, solidarity is a verb, end quote, has attempted to convince this key demographic with the following ad in Cleveland's Jewish News. Quote, just as I would not support sanctions on us because of the actions of our government, it is not appropriate in this circumstance to place sanctions on Israelis for their government's actions, end quote. In essence, Nina Turner was trying to counteract over $6 million in ads spent to convince her prospective voters that she is not aligned with the squad, that she is anti-BDS and pro-Iron Dome. In this, she failed, and in turn failed to win the race. It's not clear how these are correlated. Nina's current district, as it is drawn, is reliably pro-Democrat, but that means they reliably vote for the corporate Democrat, not that they're progressives. If you hear from people whose analysis you trust, quote, why didn't the squad endorse Nina, end quote, normally I'd say it's not a failure of analysis per se, but it in this case, it is. If the people telling you that the squad betrayed Nina have never been against the squad or Nina before, it's still a failure of analysis, because it is not a secret that the voters in that district feel more comfortable with a corporate them that says all the quote-unquote right things than with someone affiliated with AOC or Ilan Omar, who voters have been told again and again prefer Palestinians to use. My point is not only that a full early AOC endorsement would have damaged Nina's chances of getting elected, my point is that none of us are, quote, too smart to be propagandized, end quote. It takes dedication, initiative, and time we often do not have to find out that the squad was trying to help Nina by not endorsing her. But you have a right to know whether people commenting on this race have done a minimum of double-checking to make sure they're not falling for the, quote, the squad betraying Nina Turner, end quote, propaganda. There is no easy way out of this predicament. I, too, have often discovered I was championing an idea that turned out to be wrong or even fake news. But we need to at least be aware when someone who should know better repeats lies. The Congressional Progressive Caucus is, cra is trash. Maybe we expected better from Pokan or Jayapal, but anyway, I'm hoping you'll bring Kathleen Madigan back, and Jeremy Corbyn is asking for money to send a team to Colombia to observe the presidential elections next Sunday. Thank you. Thank you. 
Great job, Rodrigo. Fantastic. Uh, and let's go to Florida. We have Florida man Benji. Hello, Benji. Hey, how's it going, David? Can you hear me? Yeah, you sound great. Good deal. I got a new uh, headset. I was trying it out. I wasn't sure how it was going to sound. So uh, Yeah, sound, sounds good. How are things in Florida? Good, man. Good, man. Uh, sorry I wasn't here last week. I was at my uh, old high school for an alumni football game. It's, huh. you know, it's always strange going back to your old high school, man. Uh, have you been back to your old high school lately, or is the restraining order still active? <laughs> How did you know about that? <laughs> <laughs> no. no, man. I, had, uh, I saw my old girl, high school girlfriend's mom in the stands when I was there, and uh, yeah. it just took me back. And I remember when she called me up all angry saying, you know, I can't believe you took my daughter's virginity. I, like, I promise I won't do it again. <laughs> I really didn't intend to have sex. I just wanted to see if it fit. <laughs> she, she didn't like me. She had no use for me, man. I was, I was like a celery stock on Chris Christie's hot wing plate. Man. <laughs> my daughter or something else. But first time me and her daughter had sex, she told me it wasn't great. I was like, how could you possibly make that determination after just 34 seconds? <laughs> then I was getting dressed. She looks at me and she goes, man, I've seen more meat on a dirty fork. <laughs> Jeez, man. No. That's cruel. No, I, That's no, cruel. I know, man. Yeah. On a different subject, they, they just took my neighbor away today to a rehab. He's, uh, he's hooked on brake fluid. Mm. He thought he could stop anytime he wanted. <laughs> No, he's been having some family problems lately, yeah. man. Uh, first of all, this guy, you know, he's, he's one of those really lazy people. I mean, you could give him a job sleeping and he'd wake up and quit. You know, he's one of those kind of guys, you know. <laughs> but uh, he really messed up yesterday because, uh, you know, the old saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Mm -hmm. Apparently, that's a bad way to tell your kids they're adopted. <laughs> yeah. No, man. I'm, now you shit. tell me. <laughs> oh man hey david i'm gonna have to cut it short here man i my dishwasher's making some noise i gotta go pour a glass of wine and stuff like that. <laughs> hey i'll see you friday night bro all right thank you benji florida man benji checking in with us well that's our show and i want to thank everybody who did it uh david sirota please i want david sirota to come back Go to levernews.com and subscribe. That's L-E-V-E-R news.com. Please subscribe so he'll come back. And I want to thank our friends Jason Miles and Pascal Robert, hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast. Thank you for showing up. Howie Klein, founder and treasurer, Blue America Pack. Read them over at Down With Tyranny. Thank you to David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Listen to Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. Professor Adnan Hussein, listen to Guerrilla History, as well as the Mudgeless podcast. Peter B. Collins, go check out the two candidates he's talking about. Sean Allen for Sheriff.com and Carl T. for Sheriff.com. And then go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of his interviews, conversations, podcasts, radio shows. Follow Professor Marianne Cummings on Twitter at RazorGirl. That's R-A-Z-O-R-G-R-R-L. And go to MikeSteinel.com. I want to thank the crew that puts this show together. 
They are Dan Frankenberger, Joe in Norway, Professor Jonathan Bick, Andy Brown, the Invisible Ninja, Grace Jackson, Sarah Bush, and Hannah Feldman. Did I leave somebody out? Hannah Feldman, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Andy Brown, the Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Professor Jonathan Bick, Dan Frankenberger. I left somebody out. All right. That is our show. Please sign up for my newsletter. And if you would like to attend a live taping, go to my website. And that's where you can find all that stuff. I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. We wake every morning like the Rolling Stones, cause we just can't get no satisfaction. Democracy's in change, we could bury its remains, but infotainment culture has infected our brains. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The pathological pursuit of power and profit drives everything in sight. Not sure we can stop it. Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top. We've lost the power to think, so we shop until we drop. We're surveilled and monitored while they keep us all distracted. So we never notice that our data has been extracted. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. All right. The 
Republican agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, 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 slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, the media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of Now we can't seem to get out of this neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. We've been diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. Yeah. Well, we're living every night. Thank you.